It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. going to do it. We're going to do it. Somehow we're going to get through this show. Welcome to the mop up for September 16th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 66 degrees and mostly sunny. And we're doing a show even though I'm starving. I have never been this hungry and I'm not working. This is joy for me. I don't consider this work, so I'm uh, not going to get into trouble. Coming up shortly, gentlemen, farmer John Ross will be joining us and Henry Huckamacki. We're going to get a lot of Henry today at the top of the show. We have a lot of new listeners because of Slavo Zizek. I'm kind of taking the day. I'm not taking the day off. It's kind of an abbreviated version of the David Feldman show. And Henry Huckamacki did two amazing interviews, one with a doctor in Guinea where they just had a coup. And we talk or Henry talks to his friend, a doctor on the ground in Guinea. We'll get up to date on what's happening over there. Her name is Dr. Emily V. Nelson. I'm looking forward to that. Henry also talks with a friend of this show's Jackie Luckman. She's the host of Luckman Nation, Black Power Media, and by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik. Henry is going to talk with her about her husband's tragic passing. We were sorry to hear about that. And they'll also be talking about mental health in the African-American community here in the United States. And then if there's time, they'll touch on internal colonial mindsets. That sounds uh, very interesting. I have a quick correction, okay? Uh, from Tuesday's show, Senator Bernie Sanders is not 
the chairman of the Finance Committee. I misspoke. Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon. I hope it's Oregon. I'm pretty sure it's Oregon. Senator Ron Wyden uh, is the chairman of the Finance Committee. Bernie is chairman of the Budget Committee. I apologize for the error. I will correct everything I say on this show except my pronunciation. I mispronounce words and I can't do anything about it. I'm trying to do better. Well, President Biden is pushing Senators Joe Biden and Kirsten Sinema to get on board Bernie Sanders' $3.5 trillion spending bill. Today was the fifth meeting that President Biden held with lightweight Kirsten Sinema. Joe Manchin said earlier this week that he is not on board Bernie's $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill and said the highest he's willing to go is $1.5 trillion. Senator Manchin is reportedly worried that Bernie's bill has way too large a a safety net that would be unpopular back in his home state of West Virginia. I'm not making that up. There are reports that Senator Joe Manchin says his constituents back in West Virginia are concerned that the safety net would be too big because uh, he represents West Virginia, one of the, if not the poorest state in America. And if there's anything people in Appalachia with bloated bellies want, more than food is a fiscal hawk, making sure Washington doesn't run up deficits. If, anyway, I'm gonna, I'm not going to say anything bad about Joe Manchin. Let's see if he votes for Bernie's bill. Okay, be nice. I'm going to be nice. Well, this Saturday, white nationalists who hate African-Americans, Mexicans, Jews, Arabs, the LGBTQ, and most importantly, themselves, they will gather in Washington, D.C., on Saturday to show support for the 50 some odd insurrectionists being held in jail, awaiting trial for trying to block the certification of Joe Biden's presidential win back on January 6. This rally of preeclampsia victims with receding gums and wet jelly-like coughs is being called Justice for J6, that's the rally if you're thinking of attending in Washington on Saturday. It's called Justice for J6. It's being held uh, on Saturday. I would assume Justice for J6. I'm assuming the, the J6 would be January 6. Or maybe J6 is the winning bingo number that's paying the bus fare for all those Cretans to attend. Low lifes racist lowlifes with untreated bleeding ulcers from all over the country will gather in our nation's capital for justice for J6. They're gathering because Homeland Security wants to videotape them to know who we need to keep an eye on and eventually arrest. Well, Roger Stone, the Republican operative who threatened the life of my good friend Randy Credico 
when Randy told him he was going to testify before Congress about Roger's involvement in Russiagate and Julian Assange. Well, uh, Roger Stone, who should have gone to prison, but he was pardoned by Donald Trump. Uh, Roger Stone was served papers today in a lawsuit filed by survivors of the January 6th riot. The papers were served while Roger Stone uh, was talking nonsense on some nonsensical radio show. Enjoy. You've said before that Trump should run again, but I think lately you said it's imperative he run in 2024. Is that right? Yeah, I've kind of, there's been an evolution in my viewpoint. Um, I really, you know, in politics, three and a half years is a lifetime, <laughs> uh, to say the least. And, and uh, I really did not know um, if, hold on a second, I have a protest server at my front door about to serve me in the, the latest lawsuit. I, I'm going to oh take this gosh. live on your radio. On your radio. Oh, holy smokes. Wow. Good morning, sir. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Terrific. You know what I have? Yes, of yeah. course. I'll be happy to accept your... Court papers from uh, something to do with the... You know, with oh, yes. A civil court in the District of Columbia. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. It's, it's still a fraud. Doesn't matter. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right. I've just been served uh, in the January lawsuit. Oh, uh, live right here on your radio. Wow! wow. Tomorrow's news today. Tomorrow's oh, this news is a today. Big, big, this is a big, big stack of papers, which is good because we're out of toilet paper today. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my, right? Oh my, yes, you're out of toilet paper. Yes, yes, and you don't have a president now who can pardon you. I love the way Roger Stone talks to process servers. Like, I'm surprised you didn't call the guy by the first name. Bobby, how's it going? Another uh, subpoena. How's the wife, the kids? Come on, and I'll make you a cup of coffee. I would assume Roger Stone gets served every day. And uh, good luck on that. Well, during an interview with conservative Dave Rubin, do you know Dave Rubin? If you listen to Sam Cedar's show, you would know about Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin... Uh, how can I describe him? Imagine a phony liberal whose brain appears to be riddled with tertiary syphilis squared. Well, anyway, Dave Rubin was interviewing Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson decided to tell the truth. Well, it's I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie if I'm really cornered or something. I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. That's the first time he ever told the truth. We'll be playing that a lot, a lot. Well, speaking of white nationalist racists with blood on their hands, Derek Chauvin, the police officer who murdered George Floyd, pleaded, pled, pleaded not guilty today on charges of using unnecessary force on a 14-year-old in 2017. Our Department of Justice is accusing Chauvin, did I mention he's a murderer? Chauvin of, quote, holding the teenager. This is a 14-year-old. Chauvin uh, has been indicted and accused of, quote, holding this teenager by the throat, then striking the teenager multiple times in the head with a flashlight. A second count 
says uh, Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd, uh, quote, held his knee on the neck and upper back of the teenager, even after the teenager was lying prone, handcuffed and unresisting, also resulting in bodily injury of a 14-year-old. He, he pled not guilty because that doesn't sound like Derek Chauvin because the 14-year-old is still alive. So that's not uh, the way Derek Chauvin uh, rolls. Colorado state investigators looking into the Aurora police and their fire department has concluded there is systemic racism in Aurora, Colorado, running rampant throughout the city, and it played a role in the death of Elijah McClain in 2020. McClain was a 23-year-old African-American massage therapist. He was attempting to walk home, but police reportedly murdered him by administering a lethal dose of ketamine. Five people have been indicted for using excessive force on Elijah McClain. State investigators report police in Aurora use force against people of color almost 2.5 times more than they did against white people. Systemic racism. That's what critical race theory is all about. When uh, people, 23-year-old massage therapists or African-American like Elijah McClain end up dead because they're just walking home, that is what critical race theory is about and partly about. And the, uh, the state of Colorado has issued a report coming out of the attorney general's office saying there is systemic racism in the police force of Aurora, Illinois. Aurora, I'm sorry, Aurora, uh, Colorado. In July, if you'll remember, we covered this. British journalists played, I think it was BBC Four, I think, or TV Four. They did a documentary about lobbyists, oil lobbyists in Washington, D.C. in July. And they secretly recorded and then played video of an oil lobbyist bragging about how he helps Exxon sow seeds of doubt about climate change by funding secret studies filled with lies and then using those phony studies to lobby influential senators. Senator Joe Manchin, according to this lobbyist, was the most receptive lawmaker to oil lobbyists. He is the one who is most willing to meet with oil lobbyists listen to their latest bogus studies about climate change not being man-made, and a willing recipient of money from ExxonMobil. Well, today the House Oversight Committee said they will look into this and have asked the CEOs of Exxon, British Petroleum, and Shell Oil to testify. Documents released in the past five years reveal that Exxon knew they were destroying the climate as far back as the 1950s, but chose to suppress the evidence. News of this 
news of this prompted the Rockefeller Foundation to divest itself of their holdings in Exxon. The Rockefeller family made their fortune through Exxon's parent company, Standard Oil, and they now want nothing to do with nothing to do with Exxon. All right, very upsetting. In a new book written by the Washington Post's Bob Woodward and Bob Costa, it's going to be published next week, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan revealed he was advised by a rich Republican donor who was also a doctor. He was advised to research narcissistic personality disorder after Donald Trump became president. He wanted to know how to deal with Donald Trump. So this rich Republican donor and doctor said, you need to research narcissistic personality disorder. Symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder include disregard for the needs of others and a deep-rooted and overpowering sense of entitlement. So I guess Paul Ryan researched the illness by looking in the mirror. All right. Uh, Hey, remember the Trump administration? Remember how ICE rounded up undocumented Americans in the middle of the night and shipped them back to their gang-infested countries to face certain death? At least some of them face certain death. Aren't we glad those days are over? It's been a month since Haiti's earthquake that killed 2,200 people that that we know of. The earthquake injured 12,000 and destroyed 120,000 homes. It would have destroyed more than 120,000 homes, but those extra homes never got built by the Red Cross or the Clinton Foundation after the last earthquake. I don't know if you've been following that. Remember all that money you and I donated to the Red Cross and the Clinton Foundation about 10 years ago after the last earthquake in Haiti? Well, it never made it there. The Clinton Foundation never built any homes down there. They took money. The Red Cross took money. They built, look it up on 60 Minutes, they built, I think, one home. They raised a lot of money, the Red Cross, but they built one home. It's on 60 Minutes. They raised a lot of money, the Red Cross, and they kept it. And that helped them pay for that big fundraiser at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in 2017. They couldn't get the money to the builders in Haiti. They couldn't bring builders, the Red Cross couldn't bring builders down to Haiti. But in 2017, they were able to bring, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to Mar-a-Lago for a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's our tax dollars that should be helping Haiti and not grifters like the people who run the Red Cross or Bill and Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton and her hedge fund manager of a husband who all run the Clinton Foundation, taking tax-free trips around the world, ripping off people who donate to the Clinton Foundation, 
because it never made it to Haiti. Well, those days are over. The Biden administration, and by the way, this is sarcasm, the Biden administration is sending something better than money down to Haiti. They're sending Haitians who kind of try to seek political asylum here in the United States. Well, the Biden administration is using Title 42 and our friends over at ICE, those morbidly obese, self-loathing racists who work for ICE, who should be arrested. Anybody who works for ICE should be arrested. Uh, the Biden administration is using our friends over at ICE to quickly deport Haitians seeking political asylum. Yesterday, the Biden administration resumed what are called repatriation flights to Haiti, expelling 86 Haitians as the country faces political uncertainty and recovers from that devastating earthquake. On Thursday, Federal District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan, who is a Clinton appointee, he uh, gave the Biden administration 14 days to begin processing families and stop shipping them and separating them before they ship them back to Haiti and uh, Mexico and Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. We'll see if that... Uh, that ruling holds. I'm sure the Biden administration will will appeal because Joe Biden was uh, Obama's vice president, and Obama used to brag that he was the importer, importer, exporter, deporter in chief. I haven't eaten in 24 hours. Uh, this is from. Uh, the I believe this is from The Hill. I think this is from The Hill. I think. Uh, I'm a little lost here. I'm getting hungry. Hang on. Oh, dear. What do I have here? Uh, the Hill was asked to comment, and they did not return a request. I've called I several times. They don't return my calls. The Department of Homeland Security... ICE's parent agency confirms that the flights are taking place. And Jule, I don't know how to pronounce this, Gerlin Yosef, he's co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, said, told The Hill, we are in utter disbelief that the Biden administration would deport Haitians now, hours after the 7.2 magnitude earthquake. That is uh, pretty amazing. Joe Biden, nice guy. Well, I'm rooting for him, right? How, how can you not? University of Alabama police are investigating reports of a man purporting to be a preacher. This man uh, was assaulted by a female student at the University of Alabama. She took exception to the, the preacher's sign that read, women belong in the kitchen, they don't belong in college. I'm going to play video of this. Uh, I don't approve of, of college co-eds, women beating up misogynistic preachers. I'm playing this as a cautionary tale. This is very ugly. If you have any children, 
please bring them uh, to the computer to watch this or bring them to the iPhone to hear this. This is uh, terrible. <laughs> I do not approve of that woman beating up that preacher. And I know I don't approve because I've watched that video 53 times. And each time I've watched it, I've said, I don't approve of that. Do you remember Sarah Gideon? She was the Democratic nominee in Maine who ran against Senator Susan Collins, who was reelected. Senator Susan Collins, remember her? She said that she was going to vote for Justice Kavanaugh because she was absolutely certain that he wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade. And we saw how he ruled on the Texas abortion bill. Sarah Gideon, according to The Intercept, 10 months after she lost to Susan Collins, she is, according to The Intercept, hoarding close to $10 million in her war chest now, she's given, she's already given $750,000 to 21 main charities. That's a good use of the $10 million that she raised. And she also donated $1 million to Maine's Democratic Party. Sarah Gideon will not uh, give an interview to The Intercept, but apparently she's keeping the $10 million in her war chest while she's working over at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. She uh, lost, which means uh, she should be teaching at Harvard, and she's holding on to her $10 million. Well, we want to call it an endowment. I guess Harvard would call that an endowment. A lot of money in losing Senate races. There are several 2020 Democratic Senate candidates who, according to The Intercept, raked in obscene amounts of money by writing the national anti-Trump 2020 animus. And then she went on, along with the other Democrats, to lose by a huge margin. The Intercept in this article talks about Amy McGrath of Kentucky, who ran against Senator Mitch McConnell, the uh, then majority leader, she raised $96 million and she lost by 20 points. And then there's Jamie Harrison of South Carolina. He raised $109 million, but he lost by more than 10 points to Senator Lindsey Graham in 2020. Jamie Harrison raised $109 million. Amy McGrath raised $96 million. So that's about a, what, a $13 million difference. So the Democrats decided to make Jamie Harrison the chairman of the Democratic National Committee because he raised $109 million and Amy McGrath 
only raised $96 million. Two losers who prove that the upper echelons of the Democratic Party are more concerned about raising money than winning. It's all about raising money. Sarah Gideon has $10 million to spend pretty much any way she wants. She just can't deposit it in her savings account, but she can pay herself six-figure salaries off that. She can hire her family. She can travel around the world. And she can do something that is really unseemly. She can rent out her email list. And that's what she's doing. Whenever you donate money to a candidate and give them their give them your email list, that's gold. That is gold. And uh, Sarah Gideon, it says, has earned five hundred thousand dollars just by renting out her email list. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show coming up. John Ross joins us in an hour. But let's now go to Russia to talk to Henry Huckamaki. This is a pre-tape. Henry Huckamaki is in Russia, and he has uh, got two great interviews. I've got a return guest, one of my favorite comrades to listen to, learn from. We have Jackie Lukman of Lukman Nation, co-host of By Any Means Necessary, um, and we come with some bad news that it's not breaking news anymore, but uh, this is Jackie's first appearance on the show since her husband, Abdu Shahid Lukman, Baba Lukman, uh, sadly passed away. Um, it was very heartbreaking for everyone who even had a passing knowledge of, of Baba Lukman, like myself. You know, I interviewed him once on this show before and had watched and listened to him uh for a while previously and when the news broke uh i cried it was it was devastating for me and everyone that i've seen that's had any sort of contact with uh baba lukman has had similar reactions so a very tragic news but we're very happy that uh jackie is able to make it here today and uh, we're going to spend part of this interview talking about baba lukman so jackie Hello and welcome back to the program. Hey, Henry, thank you so much for having me back. Appreciate you and, you know, really appreciate uh, the, the, the loving words about, about Abdus. Uh, I, it's entirely warranted. I really, uh, you and him meant more to me than you know. Uh, your words of, of wisdom and inspirational words that you've given on, on your programs um, really have meant a lot to me. And I know one particular thing, and I'll, and I'll turn this over to you to, uh, you know, say whatever you want in just a second, but one particular segment that really hit home was, I believe on the last Dope Intellectual with Dr. CBS, where you talked about your revolutionary love with your husband. That segment also had me in tears. Those were, you know, tears of like, oh, how wonderful, uh, as opposed to tears of sadness. That was one of my favorite segments of anything that I've ever seen. Uh, it really was moving. And I highly recommend everyone to go and find that interview that the Lukemans did on, I, I believe it was on, uh, on yeah. Dr. CBS's last yeah. Open Intellectual. 
Uh, unbelievable. So Jackie, why don't I just turn it over to you to talk really as long as you want about uh, your husband and about what it's like to have that sort of revolutionary love that you talked about and to have that loss. Well, it's, um, it's it's big. I'm sorry, but yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, grief is, is something that we're all going to experience. We all hope that we experience it in a way that we can handle it. Right. And, at the where we have a long life with someone and you know we're the the we are the children of you know elderly parents and we're preparing for them to transition out of this life after having you know a, a good long time with them or we're you know what i had hoped what Abdus and I were certainly planning to do was to, you know, grow old and cantankerous together and, you know, go move out into a cabin in the woods with the dog and, you know, raise hell from there and eventually move to Africa uh, somewhere, um, which those were really our plans. And, you know, we fully expected and planned to, you know, grow old together, you know, raising hell and just enjoying this life, however it came. And that's, that's not what happened. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for why that ha- why that is not what happened. Um, and, and, and those reasons, interestingly enough, are the reasons that I still believe we were brought together the way we were um, and that we did the things that we do, that we developed Luke Mon Nation, that we provide the content that we do. I, I His death doesn't make our love story and, and my belief that we were brought together for a reason and a purpose doesn't, doesn't change that. As a matter of fact, I, I feel like his death only confirms it. Because, um, you know, here was a man who was incredibly intelligent, just, you know, just and just a wonderful, kind hearted, loving person who really had a long life of trauma and neglect, um, both personally and as far as the system is concerned, and ended up struggling with a couple of issues one of which I talked about um, on Black Power Media last week, my first show back since his passing, um, where I talked about his undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Um, where he was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I said in the show three years ago, but I think I was actually wrong. I think it was actually two years ago, uh, much sooner uh, or, or much more recently. And so, I mean, so there was so much that he went through just in the course of life, being a black man who was, you know, poor working class um, and being a, a victim, a target of the system and also being around people who are also targets of the system, but who didn't understand that some of his behavior was not because he was, you know, trifling or, you know, he, oh, he's just another black man who ain't shit or, you know, he, he, you know, whatever negative thing people said about him, um, he was struggling with an undiagnosed mental disorder. 
And I look at his life and the way that he told me about so much of these things that he went through. And I reflected on the things that he said and how he felt about himself and how he felt so negatively about himself and how before he met me, he didn't have a a lot of hope for a good life, you know, and then here I come (laughs) and, and we have this great time, but we didn't know that he was struggling with bipolar disorder until just two years ago. So I saw some of this behavior, but what was, what was different about me that I didn't respond to him the way other people responded to him. I didn't respond to him. I didn't throw him away. Well, the thing that was different about me is that I don't believe in throwing our people away. I mean, I knew him and I knew the heart that he had, who everybody saw, when he was online, he was that way really 60, good 70% of the time. He re- we really were that way together almost, you know, a good chunk of the time. But because of his bipolar disorder, he did suffer mood swings and he did suffer through the irrational behaviors. And he did, you know, make poor judgment that, you know, put himself in dangerous situations. And that did impact some other things that he was struggling with. But for me, because I saw so much of the wonderful part of him, I knew that that was who he was, you know, and I saw so many black people, especially black men, being thrown away by other black folks and by society throughout my whole life that I just wasn't going to throw this man away. I wasn't going to give up on him because there was something going on with him that I didn't understand and that he didn't understand. So, you know, he's diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, 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 you know, we think that we've, got it figured out, but you can't undo a lifetime of undiagnosed mental disorder in two years. And we just didn't get the time to, to get the kind of treatment that he really needed and to really learn and understand the disorder and how it impacted other things. And I'll talk about that in, in the next show next week in black power on black power media. Um, But we just didn't get the time to do it, but you know, his legacy is so enormous and so huge that as much as I miss him and I I miss him terribly, I miss him terribly. It's hard to talk about him. Um, I know that everything I do is guided by him and it's influenced by him. So I can't let this thing that we created die, you know, because he is not here beside me to carry it on with me. So. Yeah, Jackie, I'm going to just reflect on one thing that you were talking about was the undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And I think that this speaks to to two things in particular that um, I, I think are worth reflecting on, which are one structural racism as well as two, an internal colonial mindset. And and I'll take these two things in in turn and then I'll turn it back over to you. Mm -hmm. What I mean by structural racism is that, sorry, one second. What I mean by structural racism is that 
Not only is it difficult for people in general to get adequate mental health services, and we've talked about this on the show before. I brought my sister onto the show once. She uh, uh, works at Michigan Psychological Services. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And we talked about the absolute dire necessity for more psychological services in a place like Michigan, which is not the most underserved place in the world. Mm. The complete lack of psychological services. There's entire counties in the upper peninsula where I'm from that don't have any, not only psychologists and psychiatrists, but don't have any mental health professionals whatsoever in entire counties. It's, it's, so this is a problem that is, is far reaching, but it's even more. And we know when we look at the statistics of the people that have access to mental health services, the black community is particularly underserved. It's not that the black community does not want to seek mental health services. It's that they don't have access for one reason or another. Yeah. They either don't have access because the way that mental health services are financed puts most black people out of the ability to access them financially right. or the location of psychological services are put in more gentrified and white and affluent areas so that black people just physically don't have access to these places. Even if they did have the ability financially to be able to go to them. So that's the structural racism side of things. And I know that you would have a much more cutting analysis than I do on that. So I'm not going to, talk more about that. But the other thing is this is an internal colonial mindset that I think about sometimes. And what I mean by that is that in a country like the United States that is so stratified between races, white and non-white and particularly black, but I mean, really white and Mm non-white, the white populace, which has for a long time, I mean, basically since the country was conceived, since Columbus landed, really, the white population has taken this mindset of we are superior. This is the old colonial mindset where the white people would go over to Africa. They would go to the Caribbean. They'd go to Latin America. They would go to Asia. They would land. They'd say, look at these barbarians. Look, they don't know how to live in a civilized way. We white folk know how people should live and we will impose this upon them. Yeah. Inside the United States, we have these communities, white, black, Hispanic, Asian American, Pacific Islander, indigenous, that, again, are outside of what we would consider to be uh, mainstream in terms of consciousness. Yeah. So like in terms of the country's consciousness, it's generally a white consciousness. And so when we look at how we think about black folk in the United States, we, we inherently have these stereotypes, not because we're bigots, but because the United States as a country has this internal colonial mindset where we view these other people as barbarians. Again, internally, just it's ingrained into us and we have to consciously fight that. And so when we see a black man who is acting differently than what we would think. We don't necessarily think immediately this person has an undiagnosed psychological problem and needs access to mental health services. Mm -hmm. A lot of white folk think to themselves, 
this is an angry black man. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the stereotype, mm-hmm. right, that's Jackie? Right. That's right. This is this internal colonial mindset that actually has to be dismantled. And it makes me angry because I know that this is something that is never talked about. And it is something that is pernicious and something that affects all of us, whether we're on the white side of the color spectrum or on the non-white side of the color spectrum. Those of us who are white have had this mindset ingrained in us and we have to actively shrug it off for our entire lives no matter how much time you spend reflecting on that, that the fact that you grew up in a country with this internal colonial mindset is going to be part of your DNA and you will have to fight it every day of your life until you die. And on the other side of the color spectrum, you have this mentality imposed upon you twice. You have it imposed upon you thinking of yourself as less human by the country, by that Mm -hmm that ethos, that, that, mm-hmm. that thought of the country. And you also have the white people that have had that thought imposed upon them also imposing that upon you. So you get hit twice and it makes me angry and it makes me sad because we have someone like your husband who has an undiagnosed mental health uh, issue. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And he is affected doubly by the structural racism of not having those same access to the services as an affluent white person would, where they get to see their therapist all the time. Yeah. And they would catch it very early on. Mm -hmm. And you also have it where the person isn't being able to be diagnosed early on, even outside of that professional setting, because the struck, the internal colonial mindset imposes a different view of how they normally are Mm-hmm. So you can't see this is abnormal. This is a mental health abnormality that can be worked on over time. They see it as something that is inherent to them as a race. Right. Anyway, Jackie, right. I'm ranting now. Right. So I'll just turn it back you know, over to you. That, that was a great rant because there was not a thing in that rant that you said that was not only not true, but that Abdus himself didn't always talk about. That was the interesting thing. Even though he did not, know that what he had was bipolar disorder, he knew that he suffered from depression. And we know that depression is a different thing from bipolar disorder. And bipolar disorder actually usually very frequently gets misdiagnosed as severe depression. And that's an enormous mistake um, because, of course, it, it leaves the bipolar disorder untreated uh, and incorrectly treated. But you can't even talk about the issue of treatment when you you can't afford it, right? Like he recognized that his mother suffered from depression um, and he also suffered from depression and he understood that there was not only the societal traumatic um, aspect to the intergenerational trauma that, you know, oppressed people feel if we understand this, is true of the of the uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors. I'm not sure why we don't understand this is true. The the uh, um, the intergenerational trauma that's passed down through gene- through genes um, of oppressed people. That's absolutely true of black people, uh, not just in this country but throughout the diaspora, um, and as well as indigenous people. So he understood that. Even not understanding that what he what he suffered with was not depression, 
It was bipolar disorder, but he never had enough money and he never had enough. He never had good enough health insurance to actually get it treated, to actually be able to go to a psychiatrist to be treated and to be and to, to be diagnosed and to receive the medication that he needed. And the only time he was able to do that was when he was married to me because I had good insurance <laughs> through my job at uh, uh, Sputnik, I think. And yeah, this is why I think the timeline was wrong because I think I've been at Sputnik for a little over two years. Um, so he was finally able to get the access to mental health treatment that he needed because his wife had a good job where I had good health insurance. And that was not lost on him. That that was not lost on either one of us. And he he was also very angry, um, Henry, and so was I, when he was diagnosed and we realized, oh my God, <laughs> like and then he was treated, he was, you know, immediately given medication for it. You know, we just didn't have time to work out um, the correct dosage and the and the other treatments that he needed, the other therapies the, that he needed for um, the kind of um, help that he really needed that would have improved his life um, and would have avoided, hopefully, what happened. But... I mean, this was not, it was not something that was lost on him that so much of the behavior that he exhibited that people judged him so harshly for that he internalized the judgment um, about that, you know, sometimes he was a bad person and sometimes he was selfish and sometimes he made poor decisions and, you know, this kind of thing. No, he finally realized I wasn't a bad person. I had a mental disorder and I and I really couldn't control what I did. But we didn't understand. We we still didn't understand the 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 impact that bipolar disorder has on other things. Um, And and, you know, the 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 colonial mindset that you mentioned, Henry, it is so incredibly prevalent in the way we respond to people um, who struggle differently, you know, from things that we do from, you know, because I, I see on my timeline, my Facebook timeline among some of my friends who I love. And this is not a statement of judgment. That, you know, there are people who are are very open about, you know, uh, marijuana use and, and very open about, you know, taking mushrooms and microdosing and that kind of thing. But you let somebody say that I'm struggling with crack addiction. You know, I'm struggling with heroin addiction. Then all of a sudden we've got a condemnation for people who are struggling with crack addiction and heroin addiction and alcoholism and meth addiction and, you know, opioid addiction. We've got a judgment of those people. But we we accept that people are free to microdose uh, you know, psychedelic drugs and do mushrooms and smoke weed. And, and I, and I don't have it. And I, I don't like that, that colonial mindset that we have toward people who 
are, are also struggling from not just the choice to do a drug that we don't do, but are struggling with also a mental disorder because that is what substance abuse is. That's what addiction is. It is a mental disorder. But we don't look at it that way. We look at it because of this colonial mindset that those are bad people who do those things because that's what this white supremacist settler colonial system has indoctrinated us to think because, see, they created the conditions that cause people to be addicted to these certain drugs in the first place that they want to escape from the horror of the reality that they live in, the economic reality, the racist reality, the sexist reality, you know, the reality of not being able to provide for your family. This is something that we understand is happening with, you know, working class and poor white people in the Rust Belt who are struggling with opioid addiction. And they're, they're struggling with that because of the despair that comes from their generation not being able to provide for their families because those working class jobs are gone. So now they're destitute. They're struggling to uh, survive economically. Um, they are, uh, you know, they, they, they feel a sense of shame because they're on public assistance that they thought was, you know, reserved for those other people, usually people of color. So now they so they feel this incredible sense of shame, this American dream that they thought was theirs. They realize that it was all a lie and now they have nothing. And that hurts. They fall into despair and they don't want to feel the despair. So they turn to a substance. They don't mean to get addicted. They don't think they will become addicted. But the nature of addiction, the nature of the drugs that they use makes it impossible for them not to become addicted. You see, so that's where the that's where the, uh, uh, the 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 science and the the medical facts come in that we ignore because it's just easier to condemn people who are struggling with uh, not being able to control their use of a substance that this society has uh, created, but also at the same time created it and made it not just available, but has have flooded communities with it, you know, made that made these substances extremely powerful, extremely addictive, extremely hard to break away from. But then the exact same society that created those conditions then says that people who can't break away from those substances, those are bad people. And they need to be outcast and they need to be shunned because they're not productive citizens. And that colonial mindset is in so many oppressed people who just happen not to be um, struggling with substance abuse addiction that is unacceptable, according to this society. But a lot of those people are dealing with other kinds of issues um, but, you know, it's not crack. It's not heroin. It's not it's not opioids. It's not meth. You know, so well, you Jackie, to, Jackie, if yeah. I may, just quickly, uh, we don't have that much time left. I mean, this conversation oh, is no, 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 no. It's OK. I mean, the conversation is excellent. It's just we, we have a time limit. But I, I just want to throw in one other wrinkle here, which is that there is racial coding in this uh, yeah. in, in drug addiction as well. So. Again, with this internal colonial mindset, look at how, for example, a white 
a rock and roll musician that dies from a heroin overdoses, heroin overdoses portrayed. Yeah. Sex, drugs, mm-hmm. rock and roll. The guy died out right. in a blaze of glory. Right. Look at, for example, let's say that there was a black actor who was a mm. cocaine addict, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not based on anything that's happened recently, Jackie. But let's say, for example, there was a black actor who was a cocaine addict. Again, it is a mental health issue. How was that person portrayed? Crack, a crackhead, right? Right, right. Exactly. It's, it's the same mental health condition, mm-hmm. but because of the racial coding of this problem and because of this internal colonial mindset, we have a completely different portrayal of how this, this problem even in the most serious uh, manifestation of death by overdose, the portrayal is still completely different depending on who it happens to. Or let's look at someone who you know doesn't actually die from it. Let's look at David Crosby, for example. I mean, I'm a big Crosby, yeah. Stills, Nash, mm-hmm. and Young fan. I absolutely love him. David Crosby was overdosing continuously from about 1967 to about 1981 or so. I mean, continuously overdosing. He had to get a new liver because of his overdosing on speedball continuously. But everybody still loves David Crosby. He was almost like it was a joke, the fact that he was overdosing so frequently. But everybody loved David Crosby. Everybody still loves David Crosby. He's still with us and, you know, still has fairly okay politics, unlike some, you know, other aging rock stars who used to have good politics that that took very reactionary turn. David Crosby's is still okay. But we also have other famous people who overdosed and, you know, got a second chance and overdosed and got a third chance mm-hmm. when those individuals are black. And I'm not going to say any names in particular here, but you, you know, you can certainly think of some. Sure. Yeah. These individuals have a stigma around them. Then they don't have this lovable persona like David Crosby. They have a stigma as this person is a screw up. This person is a menace to society. That's you know going to endanger other people that are around them. It's a we've got about a minute and a half left so do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to wrap up with i know that this conversation really unfolded in a very different way than we were planning on but nonetheless i think it was very enriching i i really appreciate you giving me the space to just kind of wander off on you know because this is i mean this is political what what we talked about today it is entirely political it is you know, the things that my husband experienced, it's political. The things that I experienced, absolutely political. This is not an issue, you know, struggling with with various types of mental health issues and recognizing what we have long been led to believe are moral failings as also medical issues and mental health issues. These are political issues. And I think it just reflects once again how politics, uh, everything's political. Everything in this life is political. What you eat, the music you listen to, you know, the reason we think the way we do about people who uh, struggle with certain drugs as opposed to others is because of uh, the messages we get from Hollywood. And Spike Lee was one of the worst offenders of that. You know, other movies by black directors involving black actors were 
the perpetuators of that kind of narrative that caused us to internalize this colonial mindset that black people, especially poor black people, particularly poor black men who struggle with certain substance problems, they should be thrown away. They are worthless. They are menaces to society and they deserve no compassion. But that's a different response when we're talking about working class white people in, you know, Kensington or, uh, um, you know, the Rust Belt somewhere who, you know, can have someone sue the big pharma industries to get a settlement for them for perpetuating opioid addiction. Do you understand what I mean? So this is this is politics. You know, everything about our life and the way we live and even the way we die in this country is political. And and if if nothing else, I think my husband's life and even his death reflects that. And as difficult as it is to have these conversations, um, I, I think it's my job to. I think it's my responsibility to. Again, my guest was Jackie Lukeman from Lukeman Nation. You can find Lukeman Nation on Black Power Media. You can also listen to By Any Means Necessary by any means necessary on Sputnik radio, Jackie, can you tell the listeners how you would like them to, you know, follow you on, on Twitter, for example, how they can support you on Patreon, all of that information. Sure. You can find us on Twitter at Lukeman nation, the number one, all one word L U Q M A N N A T I O N the number one. Um, you can find us on Patreon. Please support us on Patreon. Also Lukeman nation, L U Q M A N N A T I O N. Um, and if you support us on Patreon, you get a nice sticker or a nice mug. So, you know, we, we appreciate your, your support and, uh, yeah, just thank you so much. Absolutely, Jackie. It was a great conversation and my love and solidarity with you as always. Thank you so much, Henry. Mine as well. Back to you. Of course. David, we'll turn this back over to you now.
two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. Sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket. A coup just happened in Guinea on September 5th. The president of 11 years, Alpha Conde, was deposed by a military colonel named Mamadi Dumbuya. Dumbuya. Yes, Dumbuya. And uh, it was a very interesting situation. There were some very interesting statements given by Dumbuya. For example, he said something to the effect of the rape of Guinea is now over. We need to make love to our country, which is just a very Very interesting, very poetic from a military colonel. But this guy was a French foreign legionnaire. Uh, Many of the people that were involved in the coup were uh, trained by AFRICOM, U.S. Africa Command. And for listeners who want to know more about the coup itself, the last episode of Guerrilla History that we put out is uh, roughly an hour long 
historical grounding and discussion of the coup with uh, a guest from Pan-African Newswire to talk about the coup itself. So if you want to know about the coup that just happened on, again, September 5th, check out the Guerrilla History feed. It's the last episode that we put up. And Emily, I dedicated that episode to you because you had to live through the coup and are still in Guinea right now. So Emily, you're, you're a phylovirus researcher. That's how we know each other. Yes. And you're in Guinea for work. So why don't we start by having you tell the listeners what are phyloviruses just briefly, because I think that, you know, it'll be interesting for the people to know, but also what are you doing in Guinea? You're not usually based there. You only got there shortly before the coup happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, to answer your first question, so phyloviruses, I, I pronounce it a bit differently than you, Henry. Uh, phyloviruses are a family of viruses that I'm sure many people are familiar with. So they include viruses like Ebola virus and Marburg virus. And uh, if people think back to about 2014 to 2016, there was a a very big Ebola virus outbreak that um, started in West Africa, which was actually quite shocking and surprising at the time, because typically these viruses are endemic to more uh, central Africa. Um, DRC is a big hotspot for for filoviruses, especially uh, Ebola. So there the was that Democratic big- Republic of the Congo for people who aren't up on acronyms. Sorry, sorry, sorry. DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. So really the heart of Africa. Um, yeah, so these includes, yeah, Ebola virus and Marburg virus, which uh, people will remember was quite a scary time, I think, 2014 to 2016. And they're really nasty viruses. So depending on the outbreak, they can cause a case fatality rate as high as 90%. So that's... Um, yeah, that's pretty high. They require what are called biosafety level four laboratories or like the highest containment laboratories um, to, to work with them and to study with them. So part of my job is also to work in a, a laboratory like this and uh, to make sure that you work safely. And um, just for a brief interjection, Emily, for comparison's sake, for the listeners, COVID research is conducted under biosafety level three. So a lower level of biosafety containment than filoviruses because filoviruses are incurable. We only recently have vaccines available and they're super, super highly um super high case fatality rates. So that's why these, when you're thinking of laboratories, if you're thinking of high safety level laboratories for working with COVID, ramp it up another degree for work with these kind of viruses. Anyway, go ahead, Emily. Exactly. No, that's very, that's a good point, Henry. Um, and the other thing about filoviruses is that they cause a very rapid course of disease. So typically the incubation period can range from five days to about three weeks. Um, but after you start to show symptoms, typically those who um, unfortunately succumb to fatal infection will typically you know, die within about two weeks. So it's, it's really rapid. Um, so very scary viruses and again, endemic to, to Africa, to Central Africa, but now also kind of West Africa. So I work, my work here is involved in, in mostly capacity building. So we have a lot of partners on ground um, that we work with to help improve diagnostics. So that's uh, 
testing people's samples. So people who come into the hospitals with a febrile illness, or they have a fever, maybe they have some bleeding, something like this, they'll be tested for filoviruses, among other things. So also things like Lassa virus, which is also endemic in this region. Malaria is really common. So, But a lot of these diseases tend to present very similarly at the beginning, at the onset of, a, of the infection. So uh, it's actually very important that there's a strong surveillance system and diagnostic capacity in, in country so that we can prevent something else like the, the West African outbreak from happening again. So we work, um, yeah, trying to, we do a lot of training. We train local staff on the, how to work safely with these viruses, importantly, and how to diagnose them. So that's more or less what we're doing here, working to improve capacity and, and train locals. Yeah, so you go down periodically for that work. And just uh, to add a little bit more flavor in for the listeners, when you said when people present with fever in the hospital, they test them for a bunch of things. When people think of Ebola, they tend to think of the Richard Preston-esque depiction of Ebola, of people bleeding from their eyes and their mouths and their ears and their nose and their their rectum and everything. Uh, Generally, that's not what happens. And at the early stage of the disease, particularly, these diseases almost all look exactly the same. I mean, there are minor differences, like sometimes you'll see petechia, which is like uh, blood spots under the skin for some uh, hemorrhagic fever viruses where you wouldn't see it with some other also fever causing uh, diseases, but these are pretty minute differences. So to be able to have this capacity for testing in place at the early stages of the disease is very important for breaking that transmission that starts an epidemic. So Emily doing very important work, um, not just in Guinea, you do very important work in general. Thank you. But now let's turn to what it was like being in Guinea during this coup. So when did you first realize that something was off? Like maybe before you even realized that there was a coup going on, was there, was there kind of a feeling bubbling up anywhere that something was different, something was off in the area? So actually not really. I, it was kind of funny because I had a thought to myself the other day or a couple of days prior to the coup d'etat that um, I felt very comfortable here. The people here are so incredibly friendly and welcoming and uh, my French is uh, quite shitty, uh, I have to admit. So even though I, it's hard for me to communicate, I can understand pretty well, but uh, speaking is not so great. Everybody's so nice and, and welcoming and I've never felt unsafe. I've come to West Africa many times. I've never felt unsafe. Um, But then things changed a little bit. So Sunday was the 5th. Um, We had kind of planned to have a chill day. Typically we work every day, so it's a bit exhausting. And I've been here already for almost three weeks. So we wanted to relax a bit. And actually we were thinking of going downtown close to where the presidential palace is to get some food. There's a nice hotel that has a pretty nice pool. So we were excited to have a chill day, but actually we got a bit lazy. And so we decided we would stay at the hotel that we're based at now. And um, we heard someone from the lab, actually, one of our coworkers from the lab, a local, local staff, called us in the morning, I think around 9 a.m. while we were eating breakfast and said, hey, guys, be careful. There was a shooting downtown. And that's all we really heard. And it was 
you know, we didn't panic or anything. We said, we're far away. It's just maybe one or two shots, maybe. And it, they, they said it was between the police and the presidential police. So we thought, okay, maybe the misunderstanding, who knows? And then we were still chilling. And suddenly my coworker sitting next to me, who's a French guy, he looks at his phone and said, Alpha Conde was arrested. He got an alert. And we looked at each other like, oh. Alpha, well, Alpha Conde being the president, uh, right. or up until recently president, from 2010 to uh, last uh, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday, yeah. Sunday, yeah. So this was quite shocking. And this is kind of when we started thinking, okay, something bad is happening. Um, and yeah, so then I immediately went to Twitter because even though I'm not a Twitter person, I do think that Twitter is quite good for rapid news um, and like on the ground perspectives, I guess. And it was just blowing up and they were talking about heavy gunfire going on around the presidential palace and all of these things. And then uh, these pictures of uh, the military guys sitting next to Alpha Conde. And he, it's actually quite a funny picture because he's wearing this horribly ugly shirt that everyone is making fun of. It's barely buttoned. He has no shoes on, no socks. He's like kind of laying on the couch like this. He doesn't look worried for, at for all. For podcast listeners, he's all sprawled out. That's what Definitely Emily was trying to, to depict. At this picture. It's a really funny picture. I mean, a very serious topic, but very funny insane how relaxed he looks so then we realized okay there's a coup d'etat and it's a military coup d'etat which uh yeah anything involving military i think is a bit scary so we convened as a team we have a very specific protocols in place which is good for emergencies that we never thought we would have to use but i'm really glad that we have them in place and i'm really proud of my team we did a really great job responding quickly we called our boss back in germany um and then it got a bit more stressful because we were all sort of trying to figure out what to do next uh, yeah. uh, before we turn to that, Emily, let me just get when you first realized that there was a military coup going on. This is something that we don't generally think about when we look at these stories. We tend to look at the power dynamics. We tend to look at the personalities that are involved. We tend to look at, as we did on guerrilla history, the historical context of the country to help us understand the competing factions within the country, to understand uh, relations to major power countries. We don't tend to think of what the psychological impact of these coups with people that are there on the ground are. So when you realize that there was a coup happening, uh, you know, very close to where you are, a place that you were planning on spending the day at by the presidential palace, which of course is where the, uh, the coup took place. What was your psychological mental state like at that time? Just, you know, thinking back, what was it like in the moment where you first realized that this happened? Because of course it would have evolved over time as well. Um, I wouldn't say I was necessarily scared or panicking but i definitely felt very uh, at not at ease at all but interestingly going like in the back of my mind i thought okay actually it won't it will be okay we're quite close to the u.s embassy 
And I, I really truly believed that the U.S. Embassy would take care of me and my whole team. I work with all Europeans, so I thought, you know what, like this is this is going to be fine. The American Embassy is going to help us. Like they're, you know, after hearing everything about all the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan, you really believe that the country is going to do everything in its power to try and get its citizens out in case there's, you know, a lot of violence or whatever. And at that point. We really had no idea how it was going to be. It didn't seem incredibly violent at the time, um, besides the gunfire. But I mean, based on Alpha Conde and how relaxed he was, that did give me a little bit of peace. And we weren't seeing anything online about yeah, riots or any of this. So it was scary, but I didn't necessarily feel like we had to leave the country immediately. And I did, yeah, I felt. Like I could trust the U.S. Embassy to help me. Yeah, which, of course, when you say that, it made me have to suppress some laughter, not because, you know, I, I thought you were naive, but because I know what happened, which is the main reason that we're doing this interview right now. Uh, that faith in the U.S. government and in the U.S. Embassy in particular was a little bit misplaced, Emily. So can you just tell us the story? Take as much time as you want. Tell us your experience of trying to get assistance from the U.S. Embassy in Guinea. Remember, listeners, we're talking to an American citizen who's in a country that is undergoing a coup, trying to contact the embassy for some emergency assistance. Yeah, this is kind of the main reason that these embassies exist uh, is to assist their citizens, particularly in times of crises. So you would think that the United States being the most powerful country in the world, being the richest country in the world, would, uh, you know, be able to uphold and fulfill that mission of, of taking care of their citizens during times of crises in foreign countries. That wasn't really what happened, Emily. Can you tell us the story? So, yes, uh, I apologize if I get a bit uh, angry about this because I'm still, yeah, a bit disappointed. Uh, so, I, I'm registered with the State Department. So whenever you travel, you, you, I don't, maybe people know this, maybe they don't. You can and you should, although now I'm not so sure, uh, register with the State Department. It's, a, it's called the Smart Traveler or something program. So basically you just tell them where you're going, for how long, and then they know kind of where you are. And if something goes on, they send you alerts. So I'm registered with this program. Uh, but of course, I mean, things were happening very fast. So I didn't expect to get an alert immediately. Uh, but then I went to the U.S. Embassy here in Conakry. I went to their website and I looked for a phone number and they had a couple of options. One was for normal working hours. So basically Monday to Friday. And the other was for emergency emergencies or off peak hour times. Uh, I called this number and it didn't work. It the it just came a woman was talking and saying the phone number was unavailable. So I kept calling and calling thinking, okay, maybe a lot of people are calling. Maybe it's busy. Uh, but I couldn't get a hold. I could never get through on that phone number. So there's another phone number that they list for people that are based in the U S um, who can call it. I guess it's a state department number. So I called my sister who's based in the U S and I said, Hey, can you call this phone number? There's a coup d'etat and I can't get a hold of the embassy and I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do at this point. 
So my sister, of course, called. I actually had another friend also call because I was uh, at this point a little panicky because I couldn't contact anyone and I felt a bit, uh, yeah, panicked. Um, so my friend and my sister were calling and apparently they got through to the State Department and they told my sister that I should email the embassy. Okay, that doesn't seem very urgent and i don't know my experience emailing government institutions it's never a quick reply i don't know if you've ever I, tried to renew a passport or something like this but it's it, the chances of them responding is almost zero so i sent them an email saying hey i'm here here's my phone number uh i don't know what to do but of course i still have never heard back to that email um, and then apparently they asked my sister if I was registered with this step program, which uh, of course I am. And, and brief interjection, it's, it's five days after that you, you would have sent that email and you still haven't heard back from them on this yeah. emergency case. Yeah, nothing. So um, my sister and my friend get a hold of the State Department. They tell me, they tell them that apparently the embassy staff are sheltering in place, but that's about it. So uh, this is basically the end of my day, my interaction with the U.S. Embassy on this day. And um, we basically tried to contact other people, our bosses, tried to get advice. But the embassy is totally silent. I keep trying this number and it never, ever, ever connects me to anybody. I called the other phone number thinking, OK, maybe there's an option. But it was just like, if you want to renew your passport, press one kind of thing. So totally unreachable um yeah that was that was on sunday i wasn't able to talk to a single person here and my family and my friend in the u.s were able to talk to someone at the state department but me personally in this crisis situation i was completely in the dark so then moving forward you you eventually did get a phone call Yes. Can you can you take us through that? Because I think that this is where you're going to get particularly angry, Emily. I can see it on your face already. Yeah. So so actually, uh, my I called my sister because I didn't want to scare my parents. But my sister was actually, unfortunately, at home with my parents at the time, which I didn't know. So my parents found out immediately and they were understandably freaked out. So they contacted um Senator Susan Collins, because they live in Maine, so they contacted her office. Uh, I won't say anything about Susan Collins, but uh, yeah. No, no, I didn't feel free, have... feel free, Emily, feel free. I expected her just to say, my thoughts and prayers are with you, and that's it. Um, but actually, they got a hold of a, a, nice, <laughs> a nice staffer who was actually quite helpful, but she sent me an email asking for some more details and to send her my passport information. And I really thought nothing is going to happen with this, and my parents were just freaking out over nothing. Um, but apparently she was able to get a hold of the State Department and contact the embassy directly. So this woman who lives in Maine is able to talk to the embassy here, but I, I'm not able to. And she told me, yeah, there's nothing really they can do. Uh, just shelter in place. Try not to get into any trouble. And she actually offered to stay in contact with me, which was which was very nice. Um, and this was, I think, still on Sunday. Uh, then the next day. I still have heard nothing from the U.S. Embassy, and 
the the woman from the Senator Collins office uh, was very nice. And she said, OK, she got in contact with someone again at the State Department and th- that there was a phone number that I should call because of confidentiality reasons. I had to be the one that called. Um, but we were still a bit panicky and trying to figure out the best situation and pack our bags in case we had to evacuate quickly and try to organize some sort of escape plan. Uh, but then the end of Monday, still no news. Uh, I've been unable to talk to anybody. Then on Tuesday morning at one in the morning, my time, some guy from the State Department calls me and I was asleep. So I was half awake during this conversation. So I don't remember exactly everything, but he basically asked if I was enrolled again in this uh, step program. And I said, Fucking yes, I'm enrolled in this program, but this program has done nothing for me at this point. And he said, okay, uh, just stay out of trouble, shelter in place. That's it. So very helpful. Okay. Then the next morning, finally, somebody from the embassy here calls me. And it's this woman who says, I hear that you've been trying to contact us. And I promise you that the phone number that you tried does work. And I said, Okay, well, every time I tried to call it, it didn't work. And then she sort of said, yeah, I know that there's some problems and I've been trying to fix it, but I just didn't have time before the coup d'etat. And I said, well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you are, you know, not doing your job. So then she says a very strange thing, which I find I, un, totally unprovoked. She tells me, but I just want you to know that we're not hiding any information from you. And everything that you know is exactly what we know. And I said, okay. I mean, I didn't say you were hiding information from me, but now I kind of think that you are because it was just very strange. Um, she told me, and she was very patronizing during this whole conversation. She told me, well, you know, just shelter in place. We can't really do anything. Uh, don't get yourself into any trouble, kind of like very, very patronizing, which I really did not appreciate. Uh, and by the way, no apologies for the inability to get in touch with them. Uh, and then she told me, basically, if things get worse, you're totally on your own. There's nothing that we can do to help you. And this is when I was really shocked. And I like to think I'm a very nice person. I tend to be friendly. I don't like confrontation. But I started to get angry because of the way she was talking to me. And then the fact that she told me, basically, you're shit out of luck. If anything happens, we can't do shit. And I said, uh, is it normal that the U.S. Embassy does nothing to help its citizens during times of crisis? And she kind of, I think she wasn't expecting me to push back at all. And she kind of... Uh, just gave me a weird answer where she said, well, it's just because we don't have any police or military to come get you. And I said, okay. And at this point I was like, okay, this woman is useless. There's no, I don't need to talk to you anymore. You're wasting my time. You're wasting my credit on my phone. Uh, and she gave brief, me some brief interjection, Emily, brief yeah. interjection, since I know that this is something that you wouldn't want to bring up because, it, you know, it, it's kind of unconfirmed. But there has been significant number of videos and photos that have been available online from inside Guinea, inside Conakry itself that have shown what appears to be American military personnel. So the claim from the embassy that they don't have any police or military officials that would be able to assist American citizens may just be a flat out lie. Again, unconfirmed, but I have seen numerous, 
not saying hundreds, but I have seen tens of videos and photos from different sources showing what appears to be American military personnel present within Guinea. I know that you wouldn't want to bring that up, but I will. Yeah, it's not not confirmed, so I don't want to you know jump to any conclusions. But not only does it sh- do some of these pictures and videos show military U.S. military, uh, they show them driving a car that's full of uh, Guinean military dudes, so like the military guys that were taking over. So, I mean, maybe it's from a long time ago. Who knows? Very strange. And also, I don't know if anybody has been to a U.S. embassy abroad. Those things are built like fortresses, and I'm 100% sure that they have their own security, their own police force. There's no way they have no police. There's no way. So this woman is telling me, we can't help you. There's no police. There's no military. I'm sorry. Don't fucking lie to me. I'm not stupid. (laughs) And everything she was telling me just felt disingenuous and a lie. So after she told me that there was nothing they could do, I was uh, maybe a bit indignant, but she, I asked her, okay, well, is the phone number that you called me on a number that I could call in case something happens, in case things get worse and I need help? Even though I know she just told me they can't help me. And she immediately was like, no, 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 no. Don't call this number. This is my personal phone number. Uh, No, you have to call the other number that I know doesn't work. And I was like, okay, great. Thank you. And then she kind of tried to, to, yeah, step it back a little bit, and she's like, "Oh, it's just because you know I don't hide. Sometimes I don't have good reception at home. Like, uh, okay." So that was basically the end of the conversation, um, and really the end of of what I all of my interactions with the U.S. Embassy. We did get some alerts from this step program that were basically like, "There's a coup d'état. Don't try to avoid this area." Um, be smart, take shelter. And explicitly in this email, it also says have an emergency plan that does not depend on the U S embassy. So they're really covering their asses and saying like, uh, here we're pretending like we're helping you. We're telling you nothing and really don't depend on us. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was honestly shocked. I mean, I'm an expat. I live in Germany. I, I like the U.S., but it's not like I'm a super patriotic about the U.S., but even with my expectations quite low, I couldn't believe that really they their offer of help was nothing. Not even, hey, we'll call you to keep you updated. Absolutely nothing. They did not give a shit at all that I was a U.S. citizen in this potentially dangerous, uh, violent situation. And I still... Maybe I'm naive. I still am just so completely floored by this. Emily, we only have three minutes left, and I've got two questions that I want to ask you. So they're both pretty brief, but we'll just run through them. Now, surely, surely the United States, biggest country in the world, biggest military in the world, spends more money on its military than the next 10 biggest countries in the world in terms of military spending. Economically, the strongest country in the world has more military bases than every other country in the world combined by a factor of 10. Uh, Surely, if the U.S. cannot help one of its citizens in a time of a crisis, Nobody could help their citizens. Nobody could help an American citizen, but nobody could help their own citizens either. Right, Emily? Right? You would think that. However, I feel incredibly lucky and thankful that I work with a team of Europeans because I work with a German and an Italian 
And they were able to contact their embassy immediately. In fact, the Italian embassy unprovoked called. They have like an emergency hotline. And they called my coworker and said, hey, are you okay? If you need anything, we will help you evacuate. Both the German and the Italian embassy said this. And they made sure that I, I mean, I have a European contract, thank God. But they said, okay, we'll, we'll evacuate your whole team full stop. So I felt very thankful that the European embassies seem to be doing their job. Um, but uh, yeah, otherwise. So the, the Germans and the Italians both can help the American citizen, but the Americans can't help the American citizen. So last question, Emily, we've got about 60 seconds left. Um, and this is probably the most important question of the whole interview, which is how did this fiasco with the American embassy and trying to get help during a time of a crisis and the fact that they literally will not do anything at all for you. How did this affect your mental state and how has it changed your perception of what being an American abroad in the time of a crisis is? I will try to keep it brief. Uh, yeah, we can bring you back some other time, Emily, but <laughs> brief for now, brief for now. It doesn't feel good. It didn't make me feel safer. And honestly, I was embarrassed because my I had to tell all of my coworkers, like, look, we cannot depend on the U.S. embassy. Even my boss was like, hey, like the embassy, U.S. embassy is quite close to you. So if the, if the shit hits the fan, just go there. And I was like, nope, we can't. So I was embarrassed. I was I didn't feel safe and I feel really disappointed, like even more disappointed than I was during the whole Trump era. It's really is bad. Well, I'm going to sign off by saying that Emily not only is one of my absolute best friends in the world, she's the smartest person I know. She is the nicest person I know and one of the strongest people I know. So the fact that you were there in Guinea having such an issue, uh, this would have been significantly worse for just about anybody else that would have had to go through the process. Um, and I, I really value you as a person. I really am proud to know you. And uh, well, I, I love you. You know that you're, you're really one of my favorite people in the whole world, Emily. So uh, David, I know we're out of time, so we'll pa- pass it back over to you now. But Emily, I'll see you here relatively soon. Thanks so much for having me, Henry. It was a pleasure. Bye. Thank you, Henry Huckamacki, who is... Oh, you can't hear me? Hang on. There we go. Thank you, Henry Huckamacki, who is in... uh, I believe he's in Germany. Not Germany, Russia. Joining us in Deerfield, Massachusetts, is John Ross, gentleman farmer, comedian extraordinaire. And did you have a a chance to listen to Henry's interview? He's brilliant. He's just absolutely brilliant. I didn't know it was happening. I tuned in the last five minutes, so I wasn't even sure what it was about. You sound great. Do I sound great? You do. You really do. You got a microphone. I got a microphone. My, my, my wife heard me talking to you, and you uh, <laughs> trying to convince me that I needed to buy a microphone. And then you said you'd buy me one, and I was like, "You're not buying me a microphone." And then <laughs> after we hung up, my wife came into the room and she said, "You make David Feldman buy you a microphone." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Make him buy you a microphone. The only reason you use it is to be on his show. Not <laughs> buying me a microphone. What are you talking about? I would. I would have bought you a microphone. Yeah. I would never take that, and I'd be beholden to you. Uh huh. What would, would you be holding? Bad. Yeah. How yeah. are you? Did you have a nice week? This week it was a lovely. Yeah. What'd you Fantastic. do? How about you? Uh, you know, hanging in there. Uh, you know, uh, today was a, a difficult day, but I got through it. Feeling uh, what was what was difficult about it? I didn't eat. I just grabbed a quick snack, and I feel better. I was fasting for the holidays. That's what we do. Oh, Did you right. fast? No, I don't do that. Yeah, you 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 said something on the other show about uh, some thing Jews who are only cultural Jews who don't do it. Like, what what's my problem? What is it that I what am I doing? What's your theory? Tell me. I think. Well, I call you people foul weather Jews. Foul weather Jews. Okay. That you only embrace all the negative that comes with being Jewish, but you don't embrace the joy and. The, the stories and the lessons you just embrace. I, am, I embrace my joy uh, at least once a day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not, I don't embrace the neg negativity. I, I, I embrace the negativity of all religions. Yeah. Not, I don't want to get into an argument with you. Sure you do. Okay, I do. You're like an anti-vaxxer. I put you in the exactly. <laughs> you are. You're mad. Oh, the thing I've I was watching Jim Brewer, very funny guy, but he's a you know anti-vaxxer, whatever, and he's just doing this crazy tirade. And I thought of playing it because it's another example of why you should not listen to comedians. But he's mad at the medical community, so he's saying no vaccines. People who've had bad luck with doctors. Our you think that's what it's about? You think that he in particular had some bad experience with the medical community and regardless of everything else that, that happened and all the influences on him, he would have had this reaction? Bullshit. He's an idiot who is listening to right wing. Why is he going to Tucker Carlson's show? Because he's a moron who who's supporting. Then he's he's anti-vax. He has kids. Do they do they not have the uh, mumps and rubella and polio vaccines? He goes, yeah, I don't want people to have to come to my show to get a shot. They gotta get a shot. <laughs> what what's wrong with you? Do your kids not get a shot? Why is it somebody's an adult? They, that suddenly that's a terrible thing. And you gotta get a shot. Go boy. What a moron. You know when I was at SNL, you know briefly. I'll never forget this. You know, you have that stupid all night, you know, night where you got to stay up and, and write. And like, it's like college frat house bullshit. And there's that, you know, a lot of the comedians, it's very cutthroat. You know, the, the, the cast members are clawing and fighting to be in things and to break through. And they never know. They're always on thin ice. So they're trying to be funny around the office because a lot of those bits, you know, are like office bits that end up getting on the show. So you know how annoying it is when comedians are like always on. And so he's like trying to be always on and trying to be funny. And uh. so anyway, it's one of those like nights, you're staying up all night to try to write something. And I go into the bathroom and he's in the bathroom and he's like peeing and he's like half 
nodding because it's like maybe three in the morning. Right. And all of a sudden he notices me come in and he like perks up and starts like singing an ACDC song. <laughs> You know? And he's like, ah, now I'm, I'm doing my rock and roll character. I'm like, just fucking pee, man. And shut up and let me pee. I'm trying to think of a funny sketch to write. Just go away, go boy. And now, go boy. Go boy. Now he's, and he's talented, but he's stupid. He's another stupid guy. Yeah. Thank you. I, I didn't want to say that. He's really stupid. Talented, but stupid because he, should, he, just keep, he should keep his mouth he, shut. Did he's, you see the Tucker Carlson clip? Which one? I don't know. He's on Tucker Carlson. I just saw it on Twitter. I, I don't watch the show or anything, but there was a clip of him on. And so he's talking about how he doesn't want to do it. And something about how Joe Biden was the, the way they're doing it is that they're saying the unvaccinated kills a beast. I knocked over my microphone and. and like who's saying kill the beast that the unvaccinated is the beast so that's some weird thing that he's uh -huh. kind of drawn up in his head but then he starts saying oh you know i got two friends i got two friends who are fully vaccinated and they got covid <laughs> and you're like okay so now you want to bring up facts you want to bring up statistics your two friends you, you wish i you know, I wish I had the power of like a, a, a Dickens thing where I could just appear in his bedroom and go, <laughs> let us go to the hospital now <laughs> and like bring him. And we walk through. He goes, oh, geez, look at these people are waiting their cars to have to go into a hospital room because there's no beds. And like, oh, let's go now to Alabama where this man had a heart attack. And they called 50 hospitals and they couldn't find an ICU bed and he died. Oh, really? What a fucking moron. You know, oh, but he's got two friends who have COVID. <laughs> who were vaccinated. You want to talk numbers? Let's talk numbers. Don't tell me right. you stupid anecdote. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. God bless you. That was like wasabi. Yeah. That cleared you my know what sign. I saw on Twitter? Was, huh? You know, so he's canceling his gigs. Yeah. And I saw uh, Doug Stanhope tweet. He goes, hey, I'm open. Book me. <laughs> he goes, I will take that gig. Doug <laughs> and be there and i'm like oh shit i would never go see uh jim brewer but i would go see doug stano uh -huh. seeing him a lot yeah you should try to get him back on your show i love i know i just been uh i'm yes i should i know yes. it's hard because you have i don't know why i'm on the show you have such like brilliant people you're brilliant professors yeah you, you are brilliant you're brilliant you are I can't stand you, but you're brilliant. No, that's yeah. why you can't stand me. But you know, Jim Brewer, it's an example of, there was a time when people like Anthony Cumia, Opie and Anthony, and I'm even gonna throw in Howard Stern, weren't allowed to reach as many people as they, they are now able to. They're reckless, they're inconsiderate, and they're dangerous, and they elevate scum. They really do. They they bring, granted, Opie and Anthony, like Louis C.K. was on, you know, there were funny people, but they also allowed really lowbrow comedians to reach a big audience. And you and Jake railed against, not, I'm not going to name names, but how lowbrow comedians 
destroy comedy. Yeah. They do. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think so. I agree with you. There isn't room for everybody. I used to argue with you. I'm being serious. We used to argue. I said, there's room for everybody. And now I realize, well, there isn't room for really brilliant comedians because the easiest thing to do is to put morons like Jim Brewer on. And people think they're smart. People think Jim yeah. Brewer is smart. I, I, I guess so. I don't know. I, I just found that the problem was that, that, you know, certain rooms you could depend on. Like, I think, what's his name? Uh, who's your friend in Canada who you have on the show? All Breslin. The time, uh, Breslin. People didn't have to know who the comic was. They just trusted that Breslin was putting good people right. in, in his room. And any night you went there, you were going to see somebody really good and that's kind of how it was in san francisco you know you didn't need to know who the person was mm -hmm. it was really everybody was pretty great you know but what happens and, and this started happening when you know i i think stand-up comedy is like akin to jazz you know it belongs mostly in the inner cities and in small rooms and enjoyed by people who have some life experience like 30 years old plus Right. And, and preferably African-Americans. <laughs> uh, but but then what, what happened was when people started seeing the dollar signs, they started opening these giant clubs in malls. And I remember there was a club in Indianapolis had four full time clubs, like one across the street from the other. No knock on Indianapolis. But you were going to places in the Midwest in malls and they were opening these 400 seat places and it you needed to have somebody with a guitar who could reach the back of the room right. or who was juggling or was doing dick jokes or really lowest common denominator stuff. And I just watched, and then they had to start putting the curtains up so that they'd make the room smaller because mm -hmm. they couldn't put 400 people in a room, even on the Saturday night show, unless they had somebody famous. So they started chasing fame, people on TV who necessarily weren't necessarily that good. At like Kato Kalin. Yeah, they yeah they're doing that, or they were getting and they liked the the rowdier kind of comics, like John Fox, were getting the audiences to drink. They noticed that the bar bill was huge when those kind of acts. But when you had an intellectual act, you had Larry Miller come, you know, the bar bill wasn't as good. And also, I just watched the the average age going down and down and down and i would just see people lined up to come into the show who were you know 19 20 i guess the drinking age is 21 so they're probably 22 and 23 and i'd be standing there thinking i don't know what i'm going to say to these people you know right. what i mean right they, that's why the only thing they got were references to tv shows so like a guy would come on i'm doing you know reverend jim and it's like that's <laughs> reverend jim's fucking ass you know what I mean? I know. I, I've had to explain that to several people. You can't get laughs with somebody else. If somebody's already funny, you can't impersonate them. You're right. You're surfing and, and off their way. You're doing some like genius take on it, you know, and it, you're putting them in a situation. But when you're doing an impression of like Reverend, Jim, it's not like Reverend Jim was a real person. It's not like that's how. Right. You know, what's the actor's name? Uh, the Christopher. Lloyd, 
something Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah, it's not like that how he, how he really talked. That was a thing he made up to be funny. Right. And so like somebody else is just going to do it and you go, oh boy, that sounds just like that. So I didn't want to talk about Norm today because oh, that's an yeah. example of somebody, and I'm being serious, who was too funny, too good. You watch him and you go, Nobody should have been doing stand-up. It should have just been Norm and maybe a handful of others. We're, the rest of us were pretenders. I, my son really turned me on to Norm. I, I knew Norm. Really? You know, I, my son would isolate bits. And it was like the Bill Hicks thing where I said, I can't watch this. It's too good. It's such I, genius. To me, it isn't even that, that Norm was so much funnier than everybody else it was just that he was so much more original like there was just nobody else like him at all right you know, he um he it, and that's the real gift is that yeah. to be somebody that's just not like anybody else he you know he was it's not like he saw somebody and said oh i'm gonna try to be funny like that you know he just was himself and your parents would love him he he's I, when I used to watch him, like, this is the kind of act I would see as a child in love. Yeah, it, there was a sweetness. Yeah, it was cross-generational. Yeah. Smigel yeah. sent me a tape, and I'm not doing it justice, and I apologize. <laughs> Night of Too Many Stars, the benefit that Robert does for autism. Norm recorded <laughs> something, and I'm not doing it justice. <laughs> And he said, I don't have any money, but what I do have is a tip. The Bears, if you bet the Bears on, on Sunday's game, and he goes into all the language yeah. about betting and whatever. Trust me, if this charity takes this tip, you will make them. It was just genius. It was it was because it was about he was, anyway. he was definitely he was an odd bird. You yeah. Know, and he really did gamble quite a bit. He yeah. lost a lot of money. Um Couple times over, um, a lot of money. Couple times over, yeah, a lot of lot of money. He just, you know, uh, that's uh, an interesting he, gene, the gambling gene. Yeah, I I don't get it. I have a I have a friend who does it, and I just can't understand it. Do you gamble at all? No, no. It's part of every market. A little bit in the stock market. Yeah, but at least with the stock market you can take joy in destroying people's lives. Uh, you get Ooh, to see the train. How's the, how's the new mic picking up the train? I'm sorry? How's the new? It, oh, I hear it now. I hear it. You can yeah, buy a stock, hold on to it, and then read, oh, they shipped some jobs overseas. At least I'm participating in the American economy. Exactly. But it is gambling is what makes capitalism. You have to gamble. It's why casinos are so evil. I, I, I don't like them. Well, what do you make of our president, Donald Trump? You want to watch a clip? You have of, of you, when you say our president, you, me and you. Our Biden. Uh, oh, our yeah, fan oh, club. Oh, we don't talk about our fan club. I thought Trump was our president. Well, we, they, would, they, they think the audience thinks that we're oh. Democrats. Oh, I, and I, I, well, I wanted to extend my uh, condolences about Larry Elder. Yes. Uh, I know what a, a big fan you were. I loved him. Um, 
Well, you know, I was rooting for him because, hey, we're comedians. It would have been <laughs> funny, right? Isn't that what they say? You know, now this might be racist for, of me to say, but if I was Tabas Smiley, I would kill Larry Elder. <laughs> Well, Tavis wasn't a conservative the way Larry Elder was. No, that's what I'm saying. People mix them up. Tavis is, is way left. Yeah. And, yeah. But people people make that mistake. They go, oh, yeah, the black guy on the radio. And Tavis is like, no, no, not me. Right. And the thing is that uh, Larry Elder reportedly told this reporter, Kaplan, that this is all an act, that, I, <laughs> that I'm really not a conservative that I really don't hate black people. I'm black. Why would I hate black people? But, but you know what? That's like, you know what that's like? That's like me going up to somebody and, and punching them in the nose and breaking their nose and then bleeding and go, hey, look, I'm just joking. This is right. a joke. It's like, right. I don't mean it. Like, right. I, I'm not serious when I punch you in the face and break your jaw. It's just, it, I don't mean it. So right. what is it? What does it mean? So he goes home and privately in his room by himself, he goes, I'm really a liberal. And, I, and then he goes out in the world. And right. like, wow, what sense does that make? Right. How is that? I've worked with comedians who did racist acts and would insist that they weren't racist. And I remember thinking at first, I believe them. Then I thought, wait a second, you're going to spend your whole life making racist jokes. How can you not be racist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, if it has the same effect at the end of the day, what difference does it make? You know, I guess you could still, you know, not act on any of that. But I remember this one comedian. I don't remember his name. He was, this was on the road somewhere. Or maybe he was on the road and he came through San Francisco or something. But his whole act was, he goes, I and I can't remember what it was every issue. It was like, I hate racist jokes. There's no place for racist jokes like this one. <laughs> <laughs> and he would tell the joke. And then and he would go and you know, domestic abuse, it is wrong and, and it's not a laughing matter. Like when somebody tells this joke and he'll tell the joke and his whole act was that's a, genius really that's an act but uh, he would just every time say it's terrible no one should tell these jokes that's genius it's you know, kind of genius but yeah. it's sort of infuriating because the audience they don't even hear that first part they just laugh yeah yeah what are you reading what are you watching on tv well i was um well we're re-watching the wire because uh, I was actually doing your show the last time when Michael K. Williams, my wife, told right. me that he died. So we had just finished uh, the night of. And so we're rewatching The Wire, which is pretty great. Uh, I, I am sort of like Slavo in that I have a couple of books going. I'm just finishing that book, Breath, by James Nestor. You should read it. It was what everybody, is it? everybody's obsessed with it. I, I become obsessed. It's all about breathing through your nose. And how you can change your whole life by how you breathe, and I, I, I believe went, that. Yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. A lot of the, some of the things that the yogis can do just through breath. I went and got a uh, a, a full fat mask, a face mask for swimming with a snorkel, so that I can swim and breathe through my nose. Um, so I'm just finishing that up. When I uh, have oh, I'm reading, dis, I'm I'm reading disloyal. Um, Michael Collins. Book. Oh yeah, I read that. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And then yeah. while I swim, I'm listening to a Michael Connolly, you know, murder mystery. Really? What, while you're swimming, you can listen to? Yeah, I have uh, I have waterproof uh, earbuds. And you download the book. And so listen to a couple chapters while I'm swimming. It's great. Now, were you raised in a religious household? Well, to, to do jokes, I don't know if they're not for my act, but for my one man show. Um, when I was when we were growing up, uh, we went to an Orthodox synagogue, but we were conservative in the house. And then after my brother was bar mitzvah, we, we moved to a, a, a conservative synagogue. And I would say we were reform in the house. And then after I was bar mitzvah, my dad had a ham sandwich and a glass of milk. <laughs> he mixed dairy with pork? I'm, I'm it's a joke. I know. I'm just I'm saying making, I'm, everything went out the yeah. window. Did it and um, did it all go out the window? Well, I mean, you know, we stopped. I think my dad stopped the uh, you know, um contributing to the to the synagogue so we stopped going there we used to go on the high holidays i mean I, I went to hebrew school and i went to um junior congregation every saturday and i got bar mitzvah but you know and so nothing around this time of year stirs anything no not at all no you don't act a little weird no because it just, it, it all, you know, so much, when I went to junior congregation, I would be in there and the. Oh, the prayers, look everything. at that. Hang on for one second. Look at that. Mm. Look at that. What's up, John? Oh, beautiful. What's up, Dave? Oh, that is, oh that's, God. you know what? It's, wow. it's like somebody, it's such a beautiful picture. It re, I, yeah. I, I'll get, I'll go back to being mean, but that's just a beautiful picture. Sorry, we're still praying here, so you guys can <laughs> Hey, it's still Yom Kippur somewhere. <laughs> we're still praying for David to say something and tell him. <laughs> you will be wandering in the desert for 40 years. Uh, three more minutes and then we'll wrap it up. So uh, all right, I, I will just say this. I remember I would go to junior congregation and the, you know, it was all in Hebrew, right? Yeah. So you're just memorizing these prayers, and you're singing these. And I would like say to the rabbi, like, what does this mean? Like, I don't know what it, I'm just saying this stuff. I don't know what it means. And, and you know what it all means? God is great. God is great. Give unto God. You're a piece of dreck, but God is great. And, you know, God is almighty. Thank you, God, uh -huh. for everything. You're the source. It's just it's this repetitive nonsense of just God, God. It like it didn't have any real meaning, and then I, I, so I I lost the interest in it very quickly. No guilt about it. No, none whatsoever. Because this <sighs> is what this is what I'm prepared to talk to Ethan Hershenfeld about and his colleague, Doctor Philip, about. I have guilt about, there's so many other things to feel guilty about, you know? I, I feel guilty for um, drinking too much. <laughs> I feel guilty about not working hard enough and being lazy. I have, I'm guilty about spending so much time playing baseball and- Hey, congratulations, you were the MVP. I was named MVP of my team, which uh, I think they're gonna, 
I think the vote might have been rigged. I think there's going to be a how um, how good does that feel? I would rather be the worst player on a great team than the best no. player on a on a on a not as good team. We we did not have a great season, so I kind of felt like they looked around and said, "Eh, give it to John." Congratulations. I, I I led the team in hitting and I caught a lot of games and I pitched a little bit. So, yeah. But good for you. Good for I you. I would like to have gone to the, you know, the championship game. So. Congratulations. Thanks. Great microphone. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yes, thank you. We'll talk to you next week. I hope so. I'll have clips and everything prepared next time. All right. It's, I was busy today. Yeah, I thank understand. You. All right. You were fasting, right? I was, I was fasting. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that takes a lot of time. All right. Next week. Thank I, you. I hope, I hope uh, God is good to you. Thank you. Have a great and healthy whatever you people celebrate. Let us now go to, are we in Cape Cod? Are we in New York? Where are we, Hershenfelds? Yes. It's Cape Cod. It's Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Uh, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan, and thank you for on this of all nights to, to share this with us. Let me ask you a question. Yes. I have several things. I want to talk about lying. I want to talk about narcissistic personality disorder. And I want to talk about guilt. And I want to start off with guilt. I feel guilty. Of course you feel guilty. This is the third time you've raised this topic in the last couple of weeks. So, of course you feel guilty. And I feel guilty about raising it for the third time. So I was raised in a pretty secular household. I had to beg my parents to send me to Hebrew school because I wanted to fit in. I grew up with, you know, everybody on the block went to Hebrew school. So I, and I beg, and so I went. And if I called my parents around Yom Kippur, they, you know, nothing, nothing like, and yet I feel guilty on Yom Kippur. I feel like I, I kind of worked today. I, I fasted, but I prepped the show. I thought, well, it's not really work. It's kind of joy, but you're not supposed to be joyful on Yom Kippur. But so I feel guilty doing this. If I may. Yes, doctor. I'd like to begin with a, with a question. So people ask, for, people often ask, why is it that in so many religions there are multiple opportunities throughout the year and even within a single week to atone to repent to ask forgiveness you can do it all year many times a year but in in judaism people people have often asked why is it that that only happens once a year but that's not true right i was pointing out that these people are just morons yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, break down the word. Last week you did numerological tricks. Break down the word atone and, and give okay. me a numerological lesson with the, the word atone. Okay. okay, atone, A, that's one. Mm -hmm. right. take, take one. <laughs> he, it's towards the end of the alphabet. It's somewhere around eight. Right. Okay. Somewhere. Let me do the math here. Okay. So A is this is amazing. A is the is number one. 
Okay. <laughs> T is what? I don't know. What is it? Like 20? or is it's, it's close 18? to the end of the alphabet. So, okay. So I'll, <laughs> I'll add 20 to the T. So I've got 21. <laughs> 20. Okay. Right. Now, mint. Just do the mint. All is one. The suffix of mint is worth six. Six. A tone mint. So that's 27. That's right. And now uh, take the cube root of that. That would be uh, three. Correct. So three. And now if you if you uh, raise three to the second, <laughs> the second power, and then hocus pocus. I don't know. David. I thought you were say one. You were going to bring out the one in a tone. I'm, I'm at, that would be very good. You, you never watched Louis Farrakhan. He, that's something he did. Oh, wow. I, I'm serious. He would talk about the word atonement and somehow he'd break it down. I thought you had seen his work. Oh, I'm being serious. No. And then he breaks it down to one. Guilt. Uh, Not worth it. Can you have religion without guilt? Your father's looking at me right now like he'd like to reach through the phone and and grab me by the throat. But you see, that's your guilt speaking. <laughs> that was a projection. I'm, I was thinking about the question, and you're thinking that you must have done or said something <laughs> untoward, and I want to throttle you. <laughs> But it's also, but it's also because you have the white beard and you have a you you're you're you have resting uh, resting um, uh, resting deity face. Right. I I I would say, David, something in your early development, despite being brought up in a secular household, something made you latch on to this. A bad thing. I think guilt for things that you're guilty of is, is perfectly reasonable, appropriate, and helpful. But something made you latch on to much more than where you were brought up. Well, you know, I was toilet trained. This is what I remember from my toilet training. Look at the mess you made. This is horrible. I'm kidding. <laughs> Shame on you. This is the, let's talk about, uh, go ahead. You think you're kidding. <laughs> hmm. I am, I, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very susceptible to guilt. And yet I'm a, I'm a staunch atheist. So I don't have guilt in the, in, in the big arenas like cosmology mm-hmm. or morality or any of that stuff or sin, I have guilt with little things like, like today, for example, our, our oldest dog, he's, he just turned 14 oh. and um, he's very sweet. He's in good shape. But um, my girlfriend suddenly she got very upset because he had, he had peed a little, he's having some bladder control issues. So he peed on the floor a little bit and, I leapt up and suddenly we were in a, there's a lot of family drama suddenly because I took her reaction to him as 
an indictment of me not having walked the dog. I had instant right. guilt. I jumped straight to guilt. When in fact, you know. It's um, the dog who should feel guilty. Absolutely. He's beyond that. Yeah. 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 Narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House, he was in charge of Congress when Donald Trump became president. <clears throat> and a friend, a wealthy Republican donor who was also a doctor, said to Paul Ryan, according to Bob Woodward's new book, you need to study narcissistic personality disorder in order to deal with Donald Trump. So that's, is, is that what he is? He's a, that, is that accepted that he's suffering from yeah. By, by people who studied it and studied him, but it also shows that these Republicans are not stupid, they're just evil. <laughs> right. Seriously, they knew what they were dealing with and they just wanted to somehow figure out how they could master him or use him for their own nefarious ends. Right. What they did. And how common, Ethan, Yes. Is narcissistic. Per How often are we dealing with people like me? Seven. Seven out of what? You choose the denominator. <laughs> because you're such a narcissist. <laughs> you choose the denominator. I can get um, to choose the denominator. I like that's the kind of science I like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, uh, there's a lot of them out there. That's what I would say. I think there's more among the young, the youth these days. There's a lot of narcissism. I think because of Instagram and, and selfies, I think narcissism has become a, a national pastime. So what, what is it? It's not taking into account other people's feelings. It's a self, a, a sense of entitlement. It's a... It's actually, I think in a large part, it's an inability to conceive of the other person's humanity. So you really, you just feel like you're in Ikea all day. Everyone else is just furniture. <laughs> Everyone else is just a, fur, a lamp or a seat or a cushion or a vase <laughs> or a wooden spoon. Everyone is just a thing in your universe. That's what it is. And that is the most brilliant description of that condition that I've ever heard. Well, wow. I, well, it's embarrassing. This is very, this quelling. <laughs> yeah. I don't like, I, I want to say that publicly right now. It's too much. It's, uh, well, let me ask you, uh, going along with your uh, analogy, at what point in the narcissistic personality disorder do you cave in and eat the Swedish meatballs? I was going to get to the meatballs. The, the, you know, that's, I used to go to Ikea. I, since I've been a vegetarian, I haven't. And that's probably, that explains it. Right. Are the Swedish meatballs good, or are you just so broken at the end of the experience that they just seem good? I don't, I don't know. the. I do remember in my meat-eating years that there was an amazing, to get a meatball hero somewhere, Right. that was an incredible thing. That could be an amazing food. Now, at Ikea, why don't they give you the meatballs and the roll separately, and then you have to figure out how to assemble 
That's a good idea. And then I, in a box. Yeah. yeah. And they give you instructions on how to make a uh, a Swedish meatball. Yes. Okay. Tucker Carlson. Yes. I was watching the HBO documentary about, is it Elizabeth Holmes, the Ther- Theranos yeah. person? Yeah. And I found it riveting. I finally got around to watching this woman who conned all of Silicon Valley and exposed, at least in my estimation, how fraudulent the most trusted people in the world are. She got uh, Mattis, General Mattis, to sit on her board. She got Henry Kissinger to sit on her board. George Shultz, who was Secretary of State under Nixon and George Herbert Walker Bush. It was fascinating to see these elder elderly white men who had immense power and were trusted, willing to vouch for the fraud that that Theranos is. And we're finding out right now, uh, the trial is going on right now. They interviewed a behavioral scientist, and this is why I felt helpless dealing with the other side. He said, if you do experiments with people who believe that they're lying for the right cause, they will pass a lie detector. They, be- they believe that their lie is noble and sometimes even forget that they're lying. Is that your observation with liars? And what do you do? I want to play Tucker Carlson. Let me play you Tucker Carlson. I'll play you the short version of him first. This was his appearance on this crackpot Dave Rubin. Uh, But this is uh, Tucker Carlson. Well, it's I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie if I'm really cornered or something. I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. What does that mean? You see why he closed his eyes when he said, I don't like doing it? Yeah. That's a tip off that somebody's lying right at that moment. The other thing I noticed was that he, I, I, this might have been a question of context, how it was cut up, but he said he tries not to lie on TV. But I guess in his regular life. Right. Yeah. Let me play that again. Let, let, think, go ahead, sir. Go ahead, doctor. I think that's the explanation for much of this egregious lying, which is they think they're serving a higher good, like getting the Republican values into this country and and saving the country from the undesirables. Right. Let me play it one more time and watch it closer. Well, it's I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie if I'm really cornered or something. I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. So weird. What the hell was the question? What, what, what was he asked? He was asked about 
the lies that the other side, that the left wing spreads. And this crackpot Dave Rubin, an intellectual pygmy, is saying, you know, why does the left lie? We have the Internet. It's so easy to prove them wrong. And I'm going, really? Uh, and then he admits to lying. And I'm thinking, I would never purposely lie. Certainly not publicly. I would never purposely lie. I correct myself when I make a mistake. I'm lying right now, by the way. How am I doing? Sure. I was going to say also you're single, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. If you're in a, if you're in either married or in a, a long-term relationship, you gotta, you gotta uh, do it, Dr. Carlson, now and again. If you get cornered, <laughs> you get cornered so But that's part of the rationalization that they've convinced themselves of, which is the left is always lying. So we have no choice, right? Is I don't I don't want to put Doctor Hershenfeld in a in in a position uh, where he has to diagnose an entire party. So I'll ask his colleague. Yes, it really feels to me, not knowing anything, that the entire Republican Party is a repository of people who have unresolved childhood trauma. Well, so is every party that's ever been conceived of. That's what, that, that defines people. But I think what you're seeing is the potential of most, not all people, but the potential of most people to act in, in terrible ways if the people that they look up to demonstrate that this is just fine, this is what I'm doing it, and therefore you can do it. It's terrifying. And it didn't used to be this way. These people, when I was younger, these people were on the sidelines. They, they weren't allowed to, to reach as big an audience. Uh, they've been normalized. They encourage violence. It, it, it really, they're, they're very dangerous. And uh, anyway, they win. I'm they sorry? Could, they could win. Go on. They have a lot of guns. They probably have people in the army. Not, not probably, there are people in the army who agree with them. And, uh, you know, who knows what how how bad things could get? I'm going to disagree. I think everything is going to work out just fine. They're uh, you know they have guns. We have guns. We have guns right here. We're completely you know, giant. <laughs> and uh, we're it? coming for them. We're coming for you, Tucker. No, we're not coming for anybody. But um, I don't think. Uh, yeah, can they win? Of course they can win. Was it ever this okay to be stupid? and self-centered and uncaring and call yourself religious. I, I don't remember a time when you could just be for war, for guns, tax cuts for the wealthy and call yourself righteous. I don't remember people being able to get away with it the way they do now. 
Our Constitution is a genius level document. And with all the checks and balances, it has worked thus far. But it's, it's not infallible. The checks and balances seem to be going the way of the dodo bird. Or two, right now, there are too many checks and balances. Somebody like Manchin or Kirsten Cinema have way too much power over. I don't like the whole checks and balances thing. I've always been against it. I like either checks or balances. <laughs> like, it's indecisive. It's indecisive. You know, people say, like, oh, I'll wear a belt and I'll wear suspenders. No, you gotta choose. Not okay. Well, if you had to choose, what do you balance. go with? All that balances. Balances? Balances requires uh, self-confidence and some responsibility. And you, you have to, it takes some integrity. Checks is someone else getting in your way. Balances is you really you have to take a breath and, and hold it together. Right. So this country needs balances because it's personal responsibility as opposed to checks, you're yeah. saying, which is kind of intrusive. Yeah, the checks don't work these days. People, the checks just make the other the other people even even more stubborn and stupid. By the way, on a similar subject, there's a very. <laughs> By the way, checks balance. or checks and balances kind of balances out the the checks, and the checks keeps us from being too focused on the balances. So there is something beautiful about checks and balances as opposed to either one. But you're saying just go all in on balance. That's what I, I'm, I'm going to run on that. That's going right. to be my. I wanted to say on the subject of lying. <laughs> it's very easy to tell if someone's lying to you. And I, I have an experience. I once hired a personal trainer because um, I, I had a role where I thought I was going to have to, you know, be bulkier. It turned out that the, the director didn't want me bulkier. He wanted the other guy bulkier. But this trainer, he started to not he started to miss a lot of meetings. And, and he, he, he said to me uh, once when he was standing me up, he said, um, I'm sorry, I can't show up because I have to pick my kid up from school and my aunt is having dialysis. Someone comes up with two excuses, you know they're lying. Right, right. In one excuse, they might be telling the truth. Two, they're definitely lying. That's just more of a public service. Right. And what would have worked on you? What would have worked on you? Dialysis or picking the kid up? Definitely dialysis, because I feel like the kid could find their way home, but the aunt cannot. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dial and that's a good one. Dialysis. You don't hear that too often. Right. Yeah, that's a good excuse. Given the choice, suspenders or belt? You know what's good about a suspender? It's got it's two things. So if you have to choose, if you choose suspenders, you got two, two things. It's almost like two belts. Right. So I would say go with the suspenders if you have to, because then if you get like, you know, it's a lot of work though. Yeah, it's a lot of work to keep your pants up. Yeah, I don't like them. I don't like them. I did. There was a there was a period in when I did like suspenders and I like bow ties also. That's yeah. And long. what about people who don't wear belts or suspenders who just get their pants to fit just right? Something's not right about a person whose pants, the waist is just tight enough that they don't need a belt. Would you agree? 
They're malignant narcissists. <laughs> So you're up in Cape Cod and are you relaxed? Did you, in all seriousness, did you have a, how was your day today? Was it good or was it rough? Very rough. Took a walk, took a swim. I, I took a walk also with him. With but him. then I had a, um, I had an audition. I had to audition for the role of a, of a sort of low level gangster in a movie. You had an audition today? Yeah, I mean, uh, virtual, you know, I, I've had a lot of them this week. And this one was a low-level gangster and um, whose father is a higher-level gangster. <laughs> and um, so I had to put on, I put on like a sweat, you know, like a tracksuit jacket. That was my costume. <laughs> With no, not, no shirt underneath. That was fun. Um, that was my day. It's stressful. I have to say I'd rather audition for things in person than, uh, than remotely. I tried to have a, a digital detox today and I was only capable of doing like there were some things I just some websites I would not go to the, the ones the compuls the ones that I look at compulsively like TMZ <laughs> no, the ones that appeal to my ego there, there are a couple of things that I'm constantly checking and oh, yeah. it's a bottomless pit of need and I find myself checking it. Like, I'll check it, and then I'll... Like an IRA. No, no, I'm talking about ego stuff. I, you know, stuff and, you know, numbers and stuff. And I'm going, it never makes me happy. Yeah. Whatever the number is, it's not going to make me happy. Yeah. And, and I keep thinking... That's why you do it. Because you're a guilty man. And you want to be look at that finger. Look at him with the finger pointing at you. And you want to punish yourself. That's why you keep looking at things that you know are going to make you. Unhappy. That's not true. And and you state that with certainty. That's definitely not. It's true. true. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you're saying that, I, that that certain websites that I go to to check on whatever, yeah, that involve my career, right? I do that to punish myself. Yeah, I, I feel like that's that's a that's that's like maybe Freudian theory circuit. I don't know. I think I think that I well, think what about that it's just a habit and it's natural to want to know what's happening in your world and what people are saying and how they're rating you. Why wouldn't you want to know that? Do we punish? So you're saying that I punish myself because you know nobody's saying anything good about you. <laughs> Check a website for that. Uh, it's gotten so easy for people to say bad things about people. It it's got. Huh? It's a lot harder to to pay a, an honest compliment. Yeah. Well, it's, why do they call it paying a compliment? And, and and is is that the next like Pat? Like we have cryptocurrency. Is the next step? Will El Salvador can their official currency become compliments? That would be well, nice. One of the big things we atoned for today was saying bad things about people. 
You're saying that like you were a Tony. You were walking on a beach. That <laughs> <laughs> was, was so sanctimonious. Ridiculous. I was walking on a beach, the spirit of atonement. I, uh, we have to wrap it up. I had a realization for, okay. for decades. I would go to temple and atone for wishing bad on people. And I would do it. I'd go through the motions. I've, I've said bad things about people. I've gossiped. I've wished bad on people. For some reason this year, in the lead up to uh, yesterday, I realized how, how truly jealous and envious I can be, how I can read something <laughs> in the newspaper. And I, I've learned, if I don't say it out loud, if I just think it, it's okay. But I've, I've thought in the past year, I've read some things in the paper where I've went, good. But, but does that make you a bad person? I, you haven't hurt anybody except yourself because of your own guilt. But to enjoy somebody's suffering, is that healthy? I think, I think we all do it to one degree or another. And again, it doesn't hurt anybody unless you, it motivates you to some sort of action. Right. I want to just say for the record that there, I don't do that. I just, you say we all do that. I don't do that. I, I wish, I wish sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose and joy and harmony onto my fellow humans and, and other creatures, um, wherever they may be. And, um, I think, I think you're telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I do. I do I, think you're like that. I got to go because I got to pick someone up from dialysis. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, the Hirschenfelds. Thank you so much uh, for doing you. this. Thank you. Especially today. I, I really, it, it, yes, Absolutely. thank you. Well, I hope to see you next week. Thank God you so much. Let us okay. now go to California where you dodged another one. Emil Guillermo is the host yeah. of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I want to ask you about the recall, the fires, oh, yeah, of course, COVID, of course. but suspenders or belts? You know, I heard that conversation you yeah. had, and it reminded me that as a young boy, I, I did use suspenders, but I was talked out of them because... I was made fun of mercilessly by people who said the clips, you know, that clip your suspenders. Your right. They said that that was not right. I needed to have buttons. Right. I needed that. And so it's just like I had a clip on suspender. Right. Me too. And that was bad. And I, I, I felt really bad for that. And I only wore suspenders because I was from San Francisco. And I was like the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, a suspension bridge. I was yes. like, I felt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people will get to the, your segment, but people ruin things for other people. I wanted to wear suspenders, but I only had clip ons. And then I found out, no, you need to go to a tailor and have them sew buttons on the inside of your pants 
and that's an extra $25. Otherwise, you look tacky. And I thought people are very cruel. For example, I have a friend who, when I told him I was vegan, said, do you eat oil? And I said, yes, I eat oil. And he says, well, then you're a bad vegan. I never thought it was possible to be a bad vegan. I have this friend. He's the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And you've ruined, like, I, I made. But David, I, I have saved the endothelial linings in, in your heart. I've saved, you're, you're going to live another five years by getting off that oil. I made a salad the other day, cabbage, mm -hmm. peppers, garbanzo beans. Good, right? good, good. Uh, tomatoes. Yeah. Sesame seeds. Mm -hmm. And olive oil. Yeah. Olive oil? And I'm eating it, I'm thinking, I didn't kill anything. Yeah. The olives? And, and I'm doing it wrong because a meal is going to, in the back of my mind, you shouldn't be eating olive oil. You ruined it for me. There, there are other ways to get your oil if you must have your oil, you know, through nuts. And I know how much you love nuts. Yeah. There are other ways, David. Uh, for example, uh, my, my, for, for my uh, anniversary, I, I bought my wife an almond cow. An almond cow. Yes, an almond cow. That's because we don't use, you know, the we don't drink cow pus. We don't put that in our cereal. We put nut milk. And the easier way, if you don't want to squeeze a nut sack, some people have a hard time squeezing a nut sack. I mean, it brings back bad memories for some people. But they have this thing called an almond cow. And it makes perfect almond milk. And you can make oat milk. You can make all sorts of milk. Anyway. But, just but idea, now you should, you, feel guilty, you should feel guilty about eating almonds because it consumes so much water. No, it's not the water. It's not. I talked to an almond farmer the other day, one of my good friends. He said, no, that water conspiracy, that's BS. You know, this water, you use water, you use water without eating any nuts. You know, so it, it, it's, it's overblown, the idea that almonds take up so much water. Water, almonds actually are, it's a great source of milk, great source of source of protein and uh i've been told they have it what i've been told that no, no, don't how close the are you to chico don't don't believe the environmentalists I'm I'm i i live out here out here by the by the farms i'd rather have a nut farm than a cow farm any day the cow farm the cow farms are bad uh, and well but that almond, doesn't mean almonds are good for the environment just because they're better for you than cows uh, generally, I think they would be better. And like I said, I was talking to my almond farmer buddy, and he was telling me that all the propaganda about the water use for almonds is overblown by. Odd that an, an almond farmer. Be it's odd that an almond farmer would tell you that. <laughs> I got a lot of almond farmer friends out here. I, I'm in the red part of the blue state, but this week. It was actually more blue than red. And uh, that's the big surprise for the whole nation, that California is a lot more moderate than people think in the parts where they used to be a lot more red. And the parts where they were red are way the heck out there where the fires are, up in the north. They're red hot now. 
Uh, yeah, and and I I actually for the first time I was proud of the state being so. Uh, I mean. You look at the state in terms of vaccine mandates and in terms of mask mandates and the public, the public is overwhelmingly for public health. That's what it shows. It's for, you know, what I like to call Vax Americana. It's for the vaccines. It's for, you know, pitching in to help each other. And I think a lot of people who are Republican miscalculated with this recall effort, thinking that you know, this would be a way to to sneak in and, and kick Newsom out because, uh, you know, because this idea that uh, he was doing bad on all these things. But the most number one uh, issue was not what they figured. It was COVID was the number one issue. According to exit polls, it wasn't homelessness. It wasn't wildfires. It wasn't the economy. I mean, the Republicans had nothing. What, what would they say about, uh, you know, the economy when they put forth this recall effort that uh, cost $300 million, possibly more, when you add in all the money spent by the campaign? So I, it actually was a good week. I felt very proud for the state. I thought about moving out at one point with, over the last couple of years. And I think, and you moved out. Now you want to move back in, right? Well, I miss California. I I, I... I didn't want to move out. I was forced yeah. out of the state. But I'll, I'll, I'll get you a fake visa, David. We'll get you back. You. And, and some fake uh, vaccine cards. Yeah. Apparently it's easier. But real almond milk. Yeah. Apparently it's as easy to get a fake vax card as it is weed mm. in New York City. <laughs> it's so, just, yeah. Tell me yeah. about the recall, because this yeah. they say that Trump was on the ballot. Is that true? In other words, well, Larry Elder was the latest iteration of Trump. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I think in the last four weeks, and that's the only time that's the only time that counts, right? I talked to Gavin Newsom. I interviewed him four weeks ago, and he seemed scared. I mean, when Gavin Newsom is willingly going to the ethnic media and talking to uh the Asian American media and saying how much uh, he remembers how important Asian Americans were to uh, to his election as mayor of San Francisco years ago when I when I first met Gavin Newsom. I mean, I it's on my the ALDEF webpage, ALDEF.org slash blog. I wrote I called it the January 6th of California because that's what it was. It was an attempt to really try to overthrow an election three years ago when Gavin Newsom won the state by 7 million votes. It was the I mean, biggest margin. Wasn't it one of the largest margins it, in California no, history? Yeah, the largest margin of victory since Earl Warren, since the 50s. I mean, really, Gavin Newsom was uh, he was a favorite. And somehow, you know, and it, it ties in with the pandemic and some moves and the, the French laundry thing where he, you know, made a, a dumb move where he didn't wear a mask to a very expensive restaurant. It, it really grew a kind of resentment toward him. And that's how the recall people try to position this. They're trying to position this as, oh, it's not the party. It's Gavin Newsom. And yet it was the Republican Party nationally that was fueling this. Gavin Newsom had no strategy to try to beat or try to yeah, try to win this until four four weeks ago when he realized he had to make it about somebody and he made, he nationalized it about Trump and that's when the the numbers started changing because look uh, I think four weeks ago the numbers showed it was almost like a coin flip between Newsom and 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 the recall 
And then after that, as soon as it scared people, because fear is the motivating, motivating factor. When people were scared that Larry Elder could be the next governor of the state, they realized, oh, man, you know, I don't like Newsom for a lot of things. And look, I have not animosity toward Newsom, but I've known Newsom since he was a mayor of San Francisco. We've never really gotten along. But uh, I saw in the last four weeks that, boy, you know, he's a lot better than the alternative. And Asian Americans know what a good guy Newsom has been to them. In fact, the last time I saw Newsom in person was at a funeral for a Filipino woman who was known as the godmother of Filipino local politicians. And he was there in the pews, a regular guy. He was just lieutenant governor at the time. So there's a lot of connection between Newsom and the community. And that's, I think, why a lot of people, at least in the north, there was a lot of consolidation in northern California and among Democrats to come to his support. Elder didn't claim voter fraud. Well, I did not write about it immediately. You know, the the recall repulsed headline in my mind. I uh, my my column in, in the, on the Aldef blog comes out tomorrow, but I was waiting because Elder talked about you know having lawyers at the ready uh, on Monday to to sue. If, you know, because he suspected something would happen. That was the scuttlebutt. And I'm sure it was just his way of trying to fan the, uh, you know, January 6th kind of flames or the, you know, this fear that there was something illegitimate going on in the election. Uh, And to date, I haven't heard anything the night of the election. Uh, Elder said he was going to be he's going to try to be gracious that he had lost the battle, but he had, you know, he was going to win the war, which to me sounded like, oh, he's still going to come back maybe with something. And today he I just checked the California, uh, you know, secretary of state uh, website elder or not elder, but the the recall is still trailing by. Almost 2.5 million votes. You can't you can't challenge a landslide. Is it fair to call it a landslide? Oh, landslide. This is like a major tectonic shift. I mean, this is not a landslide. This is, you know, more than that. This is 2.5 million, 2.5 million margin. There's going to be there's going to have to be a lot of dead people voting for 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 the Republicans to claim an election was rigged. So when you say it's a tectonic shift. I'm 3,000 miles away in Manhattan yeah. thinking, well, of course, it's it's California. It's a yeah. blue state a lot, now. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people were saying that, that, yeah. There's but no Arnold, Cali- they did get rid of Gray Davis in, two, what was it, 2003? 2003, yeah. He was yeah, a Democrat and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger replaced him and he was a Republican. So yeah. the, the California is capable of moving to the right. We got Nixon and Reagan out of yeah. California. There and a lot of people in the, yeah, there are a lot of people in the middle who are who could go either way. I mean, you look at places that are notoriously Republican, like uh, Orange County, uh, like Riverside County. Uh, this is to the south in, in the L.A. area. Uh, they all went. Uh, no, there were no voters, not yes voters. And. and and really by a, a much larger margin uh, than, than you'd figure. And 
I, you know, and, and of course the people in, in, to the north, Northern California, they consolidated around, around, uh, around Newsom. But I think what what's happened is, since the Republican Party is so Trump, they are so far to the right. They've left this vast middle open, so that Newsom has everything from, you know, this middle to the progressives, and he's got quite a. Uh, quite a, a range in which he can roam unless someone comes in from the right to fill in that vacuum or the left I think that he's going or the left right uh, or someone from the left pushing Newsom over to to the middle maybe that's a possibility it seems to me know. that this election people were voting their fears not their hopes and that's uh, yeah, that's good for I the democrats right. because the democrats don't they, they're not what is what is Newsom promising? He's not promising Medicare for all. No, he's he he's just there's a bill there's a bill that's things. sitting there where you could give California Medicare for all. Yeah. He's not yeah, he's just progressive enough on things like uh he's you know, compared to Larry Elder, right? Larry Elder isn't for a minimum wage. I mean you you compare him to Larry Elder and yeah, uh, Gavin Newsom looks like uh, you know Fidel Castro by comparison, right. and so I think I, I think the the challenge is to, to for people on to the left of Newsom to come toward him and and try to drag him over even more uh, while he's he's hot because I think what's what's happening is you know when Kamala Harris got the vice presidency, it really kind of eclipsed Newsom. And they were always sort of neck and neck from San Francisco politics. Newsom was the mayor. Uh, Kamala Harris was the DA. She became uh, AG and then senator and then vice president. And Newsom was just, he goes from mayor to lieutenant governor, which is kind of like a, wow, that's even worse than vice president in a lot of ways, right? right? And then he became governor. And now three years in, he gets... He gets sort of, you know, sideswiped with this recall effort, but he he stands tall. And now he becomes he emerges as a national figure among Democrats. I mean, name another Democrat who could be seen as someone for the future. Right. I mean, now his his star is shining a whole lot more. And I don't know. Kamala oh, that's Kamala interesting. Harris. The guy from Wisconsin, the that horrible governor survived a recall and he ran for president in i guess it was 2016 right he ran for oh president. yeah i forgot yeah, i have a block I, I, on his name the governor of wisconsin yeah i i i yeah name is case but i i know what you're talking about and i i i just think that newsom here's the thing about newsom newsom is always shooting for the top i mean he was one of diane feinstein's favorites and when diane feinstein's name came up over the last week as oh watch out larry elder is going to replace or when feinstein retires you know he's going to replace her i think larry elder wants to be senator not governor because he's a talk show host you know yeah, let me not, ask you about we're talking with emil guillermo he's the host of the PETA podcast. He's a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And you are a, a, a newscaster, long storied history, reporting the news. Larry Elder, did he have support in the African American community? 
Uh, I would have to say no. I would have to say his support came from Republican conservatives around Los Angeles who still revered him from his days as a talk show host. Is his talk um, show career over? No, he. I think he still does some small syndicated uh, show on an, that's based on an AM station. There, I, I'm not. I'm not really sure right now because uh, he's local. Unless you're on a, you listen to a lot of talk radio, and there's all these you know talk radio networks these sub talk radio networks that that are on small am stations so he has managed to carve out his career uh and i think his support is among conservatives but they are a fringe a fringe part of even the republican party here apparently after this you know massive defeat uh this week and i think that's the lesson you can't sell Trump in California. Trump doesn't travel. And I think it's a heck of a problem for people like Kevin McCarthy, people like Devin Nunez, who, who kissed, kissed Trump's butt all throughout, you know, the, the last four years. And, you know, how do they position themselves in their own state when people in their own state have shown how much they dislike Trump or how much they're willing to break away from Trump? Now it's time for the rest of the country of uh, Republicans to break away and say, hey, look, you know, we can be reasonable. We can be sane. We need those sane, reasonable Republicans to come out and engage with with all the rest of us. You know, Trump, I, th I think, given the fact that that book came out with all the stuff about Millie and, and all the things, you know, all the revelations from the Woodward book, I think uh, along with this, I think this is a bad week for Trump. A bad week for Trump. And I and it, it goes into dovetails into the January 6th uh, Lollapalooza that they're going to have in Washington this weekend. I really think that there four, four or five weeks ago, there was a, a, a real threat that that the Republicans were going to take the the governorship in California and they, but the, the Democrats and Newsom were able to figure it out and able to make the enemy the the trump clone right larry elder and when they saw that in california the 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 voters in california were motivated to come out and they spoke i mean 2.5 million margin of uh, voter margin of victory how does that compare to hillary and biden in california uh hillary and biden i i don't know uh i think i, I think it's better it, it's i mean Newsom did better than Biden did. I think Newsom did better than Hillary. I, I haven't seen the numbers for for Hillary, but all throughout the uh, news stations were showing what Biden, how Biden took the state. And I think Newsom did a lot, uh, just slightly better. But you know, I I just uh, I was very very proud of California. I thought maybe uh, maybe it was time to leave the state. Because you heard people like, uh, you know, notable celebrities moving for some reason. And uh, I'm going to be I, playing I Ben I, Shapiro. I, I have a clip that mm -hmm. I'm planning to play for the Reverend Barry W. Lynn of yeah. Ben Shapiro telling people to move out of California if you're a conservative. Yeah. Well, maybe if you're conservative, if you're just a normal person who wants to live a life. I mean, I, I kept telling, uh, you know, my wife, I said, you know, I thought about moving with, you know, over to where her family is in Ohio uh, compared to California. I mean, no. And after after this week, especially and uh, or, or moving to anywhere else in the country, uh, I think California has a uh, 
an undeserved reputation for being the land of fruits and nuts. It is the land of sane, uh, reasonable people who can look at the facts and know when they're being lied to. And I think they know uh, they also have a good heart in terms of public health. That's what it shows. I mean, California wouldn't be as blue COVID wise and as blue politically uh, if it weren't for that fact. I mean, how strict are the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates? Well, I, you know, here's one thing that uh, I was actually a little surprised by. Public opinion polls show that people are for the vax, man, vax mandates and, and, and for mask mandates, but you still see people in large gatherings not masked and it scares me a little bit i'm i'm in in the valley central valley and there's still a lot of people who you know will you know give you the finger when you say hey uh, it, it's a mask mandate here in this this store i mean you're still going to come up with, against some uh, people who will see it as a um, a mark of freedom you know to be able to go massless but I think in general, people are more reasonable. The, uh, the look, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying the, the, one of the guys who was arrested in in advance of the of the insurrectionist protests on the, over the weekend was from California. He was arrested this week, so uh, I, I don't mean to overgeneralize, but I will say that I'd much rather be in California now after this week, after this election, uh, because it tells me something about the how willing people are at least to adhere to public health standards. So on Twitter, I polled my following as small as it is. So I'll give you the percentage, not the number of votes, because the percentage makes me sound like I'm a player. Yeah as opposed to the yeah. number of votes. I, I had a poll. In order to vote, should Americans have to show proof of vaccination? Mm. Is that, has that been raised? That question, has that been raised? No, uh, I've only heard the, uh, the Kimmel thing where uh, in order to get, uh, hospital, ho- you know, get treated in the hospital, you needed to be vaccinated. But I, I, the whole thing about vaccination and voting has not been raised. Well, I polled my follower on Twitter. What percentage of my of him uh, said, yes, you should have to show proof of vaccination in order to vote? But so probably uh, I bet you your audience, maybe 60 percent said they had 65 percent say you should have to show proof of vaccination. I think that's a good 55, compromise. 55 percent, 65 percent. I think that's a good oh. compromise with the Republicans. There should be voter ID, but the mm. idea is proof of vaccination. Fifty five percent of one listener is of that one like listener. Amputee? Yes. Yeah. Oh, come on, Emil. You're better than that. I, I, wouldn't, that I'm I was that, I'm atoning for that. I needed something to atone for. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast. What's the topic this week? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, We atone for our sins. There is a way back after doing something sinful. And uh, there's a professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico uh, named John Gluck. And he was a vivisector who studied with the uh, notorious, infamous vivisector uh, Harry Harlow uh, in Wisconsin, I believe. And he had a change of heart and went from vivisector to outright 
uh, bioethicist, animal rights bioethicist, and he is the winner of PETA's uh, Trailblazing Advocacy Award. And so I do an interview with uh, John Gluck, and he talks about how he used to torture animals and how he, he realized it was just wrong but how he realized that it was like a thing in science he had to adopt in order to move up in his career as a scientist. So we talked to John Gluck. It's a good interview. Great. Thank you. Emil Guillermo, read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuck. So, so, David, I just want I know you like to make jokes about Jews eating Asian food. I yes. just want to point out that the pot sticker really is Kreplock. It's related well to Kreplock. Well, said. you know that, right? Yes. You know that. Right? Yes. Yeah, so I, I do. So it's OK. It's OK. Eat, eat it. Eat up. OK. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. May, may you be in the good book, sealed in the good book or, uh, you know, uh, and not too far distant sequel after they close the book. We'll be back with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm traveling light. Got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little police. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix And my rusty old blender A 50 tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light
Wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fishheads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in LA, and my enemies list. Welcome back. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is about to join us. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and go to my website to sign up to attend office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. We look forward to seeing you. One of the people who sometimes shows up at office hours is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is a lawyer and an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And you have to leave. You're going somewhere, right? I am. We're leaving. You, am I? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, okay. I thought there was some kind of a crisis there. Uh, yes, and I have to leave early to drive back to Massachusetts to rejoin the uh, grandchildren. Why? <laughs> because I miss them. They're really, dragging I, you I, down. I, what? They're dragging you down. <laughs> no, they're, they're building me up. They're oh. so much smarter than the average politician. Do they read? Can they read the New York Times? I think so. Can they discuss the latest article in the New England Journal of Medicine with your wife, who was a doctor? Yes, they do. They frequently have three-way conversations. The, the two little girls and Joanne and I and the little boy are left out of the conversations. Don't you feel yeah. when you're with your grandchildren you're missing out? <laughs> no, I'm having a great time. I don't, I, mean, I don't, I don't get When I'm up there, I still do this show. I know. But you're not as sharp. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm, <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And we're going to have my guests. Whatever you want. Yes, we're going to do that. We're going to interview a woman who's running uh, to replace a corporate Democrat. In the Which California one? There's so House many. Delegation. There's so many. Which know, one? Aren't they? Which one? The, the uh, I'll have to verify that. Okay. I'm not sure where the lines draw, but don't worry. And you've actually had her on years ago. So now she's running. She has a much stronger campaign. And I think we need to do this because I think both of us know that we, we have to give up 
on these corporate Democrats. I mean, you've given up on them long before I did, but I mean, watching Cinema, Mansion, and those three Democrats in name only who voted not to permit the government to negotiate drug prices. I mean, three people in the committee, in the Ways and Means Committee yesterday, said, no, we're not gonna go for that because they they have, the pharmaceutical industry on this one bill alone has spent uh, something like a billion dollars in just to pay for the lobbying campaigns, these very, very disruptive and misleading commercials that are aired on CNN as well as on Fox. And they're very confusing because here's somebody who's talking about how she wants to get pills and the person playing the doctor says, well, we can't get that anymore. And she said, well, why not? I need them. And he says, well, because the Congress is trying to trick you into thinking they're passing something to negotiate prices. But in fact, they're just going to make it impossible for you to obtain these medicines you so desperately deserve. And people buy it. They, they, you know, we have become a country where we believe any damn thing anybody says. And that's really sad because we, if we don't have the ability to do critical thinking, we got nothing. We will just walk sheep-like, to use a phrase often used by the right these days about people like us. Uh, you know, we're doomed. Now, here's why. Can I address that? Can you, do you mind sure. putting a pin in that? This week, I was dealing with somebody who was would not stop criticizing my show. Mm. And I realized this person is an idiot. Yeah. I said to this person, you're very critical, but you lack critical thinking. Oh. It comes very easy to you to criticize and say horrible things, and yet you don't get satire, you don't read, and you can't differentiate between tone. You can't tell if somebody's lying to you through either humor or just plain deception. You lack critical thinking, even though you spend most of your life criticizing people. It's, it's bizarre how lacking in critical thinking. I'm for most of the people who are politically correct. Right. But a lot of the people who are politically correct, a lot, are critical, but lack critical thinking. They don't understand satire. They don't understand sarcasm. Yeah, and that's I, true. And I, I, I know I think there's something to be said for teaching, at least in high school, methods by which young people can actually learn, can, can use critical thinking, can understand issues like sarcasm and the various other kinds of humor. And nobody does that, and, which reminds me, um, you know, I've been writing this book for the last year and a half, and I finally finished a draft of it. Well, there's a story in it about a debate I had with Phyllis Schlafly. I knew Phyllis off and on for many, many decades. And uh, she stands up before the American Association of Remind everybody who the horrible Phyllis Schlafly was. Yeah, the, uh, Phyllis Schlafly is literally, uh, she wrote a book about Barry Goldwater, 
became beloved by conservatives. And then she became a almost one-woman destruction squad for the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. And she, she was a woman. Took it down. This was a woman who worked at making sure women don't work. Her <laughs> job correct. was making sure women can't find work. Yeah, she is quite a piece of work. And uh, I don't think I've ever told. I had this very interesting dinner with her one night. It was CNN in its early days didn't have much of a presence in Washington. So if you were going to be on one of their shows, they would fly you to Atlanta. So one Friday, I get a call in the morning. Will you come be on with Phyllis Schlafly and a woman who ran an organization called the Committee for a Free Afghanistan? So the three of us were on, and they, they were both right-wingers and myself, and I forget exactly what the topic was, but afterwards I remember they, people had seen and, and said, look, here's some vouchers, go out and, and have dinner together, which we did. And it was one of the most fascinating dinners I've ever had. And at one point I say to Phyllis, Phyllis, I said, do you ever get the point? Or do you ever reach the point where you just think some of what I believe is just wrong? It's just dangerous thinking. And she said to me, maybe, but I don't like to think that way. And I said, well, well give me an example of something that you're sure you're right about. Like, what are the roles for a man and a woman in a traditional family when it comes to doing work around the house? And she said, well, taking out the garbage. And I really, that baffled me. And I said, I honestly, I don't even understand what that means. I don't understand who's supposed to take out the garbage. <laughs> and she says, the man and I said, why? And she said, literally, because there might be animals out by the can, <laughs> which in Alton, Illinois, I mean, maybe there's some raccoon. Right. There ain't no, uh, I don't think there's any escaped tigers out in right. Alton, Illinois, where she lived. And she was a lawyer. She had a, she actually had a job, but she was, and she was a wrecking squad. She has, she destroyed, there was a, tremendous support for the Equal Rights Amendment until she decided to take this on. She was everywhere, and she literally destroyed it. And now, you know, there, there's some ways that we might be able to get it back, but, but she did. It was possibly one of the worst, but one of the cleverest campaigns to destroy something that I've ever seen. How close are we to the getting passage. How many states did we need? Two or three? I think we only need two, but there's a big legal question about whether you can extend the time for the consideration of the Equal Rights Amendment. In other words, it, it, can you just keep voting state by state by state? Virginia just passed it. I think there's only one more to go. But then there's this overarching question of whether you can just keep adding years for the uh, for this to be ratified by the states. Right, right. Your thoughts on the chances of Bernie's reconciliation bill getting passed. Are we going to see a vote on it 
by September 28th. Supposedly, we're 12 days away from a fully marked up bill ready to go into conference. Yeah, I don't, I just don't see where, I don't see how you get Manchin. I just, I really don't. I mean, he, he just digs in, he digs in. Of course, his whole family is corrupt. I mean, his, you know, his daughter was a woman who purchased the EpiPens, you know, that are necessary, when they're necessary, they're life-saving, and then decided to uh, package them two in a package. You only need one, and rarely do you even need one, but you had to buy two of them. And she had jacked up the price to, uh, I mean, 10, 20 times uh, what it had been originally costing. So she, she has benefited mightily from this unbelievably callous way to sell a pharmaceutical product. Yeah, and she's guilty of, apparently, according to the Intercept, of price fixing. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, she's, um, you know, in the crime news, you know, everybody's fascinated in the last two days about the missing, you know, the couple... Uh, they live in Florida. One of them came back to Florida. The other one's missing. Um, and you go, how could people do that? How could they get into an argument in a van halfway across the country, and then she disappears? What what kind of an evil boyfriend must she have? And it's you know it's terrible. And it I, I mean I don't hold out much hope that she's still alive somewhere. But the, these are the kinds of things that they make so many headlines and they, they're with us for a very long time. But when it comes to things that are much more contemptible because they affect hundreds of thousands of people and their ability to get medical care, we, we've forgotten about EpiPens. That was like last decade's thing to worry about. And I think when you come to making moral questions or making moral decisions, you have to make them not just about how you treat the, your neighbor or your boyfriend, but how do you treat everybody with whom you have contact? And that's where so many yeah, people I'm, fail. I'm stunned and I'm just as guilty as the next person by not marching on Washington I don't know, two months ago, I did a little tirade on Joe Manchin's idiot daughter who made tens of millions of dollars running. Is it Mylan? Is that the drug company? Um, I think it's. I forget the name. Yeah. I think that's it. And how he passes himself off as the senator of West Virginia representing the poorest people in America. He's a multimillionaire living on a $750,000 houseboat. You would think once this stuff comes out, people would take at least not to the streets, but be outside his office demanding his resignation. They would be appalled. They just chalk it up to business as usual and they they move on. And yet we have these anti-vaxxers who are militant. If only we could harness the energy of the anti-vaxxer and transpose it into anti 
big pharma. Why can't we say to these anti-vaxxers, we get it. You don't like the drug companies. Either do we get on board this bill to allow Medicare to negotiate with the pharmaceuticals. Why aren't the Democrats tapping into rage and anger? Well, I mean, I think part of the anger, though, is not about big pharma. The anger is about a view of of the medical system in the country that is different than the kind of complaints that you or I have about it. it it's, it's a fundamental belief that the medical profession is hiding cures or that they might not spend enough money. It, and most of the anti-vaxxers don't even know that there's a huge amount of, uh, of uh, medical research that's done on behalf of pharmaceutical companies for which they benefit. Merck and, uh, makes ivermectin. No, they're ivermectin. telling they're telling people don't take ivermectin for COVID. If there was a conspiracy, <laughs> look, the drug companies are evil. But if there was a yeah. COVID conspiracy, Merck would be the first ones to say, "Sure, ivermectin. Why not?" They own ivermectin. They're saying, of course, they do. They're saying it doesn't work. So that doesn't yeah. play into the conspiracy. What I'm asking you is. People are angry, and the Democrats are all about tamping down the anger. They're always like, just, you know, we're reasonable. Don't be angry. Mm. Bernie, you don't want Bernie. He, he, he's angry, and he's appealing to anger. You know, uh, Bannon, five years ago, tapped into the incels, the involuntarily celibate. And he said, these are angry men who can't get laid, and they it's a group, it's a demographic. They're gamers, and they've got a chip on their shoulder. This is who Trump, this is who we should isolate and go after. And they worked with Cambridge Analytica and advertised to them. I keep saying to Democrats who, you know, run certain organizations, why aren't you tapping into angry people? They're afraid of angry people. Yes, they are. Of course, I mean, they're, they're angry. I would like to think that there was one lesson we learned from California this week. And that is something I've, I, I'm desperately looking for evidence. And I think this is a piece of evidence for this. I've said it before. I believe there are some raft of people doesn't have to be more than five or eight percent of people who generally believe themselves to be Republicans who look at this crap that's going on and say, you know, I can't associate myself with this anymore. And that's why I think Larry Elder, who looked like he was going to be a serious candidate, turned out to be a massive loser. And in fact, in some ways, it's great that he lost and it's even better that he lost by so much. But the real silver lining is that he's going to be just like trump he's going to be the face and the voice of the democrat of the republican party of california for the foreseeable future and he is crazy yes, and he is enough crazy. people saw that he, enough people saw that they go we're not going to go that way 
he really he is crazy. I think, I think. By the way, you're not I, allowed to use the term crazy. No, I, I shouldn't have, I should not. He's mentally that. ill. No, he's, um, he's just wacky. Yeah. And, I, you know, people constantly ask me when Falwell and I would be debating, does he really believe this stuff? And with Falwell, I, I would always tell them, I think he really does believe it. With Larry Elder, I don't think so. I think Larry's just onto something. I only remember being on one of his shows once, and uh, he, but he just, he's a little bit like Morton Downey Jr. Remember Morton mm -hmm. Downey Jr.? He was kind of a failed lounge singer, his right. dad had been. And then he became a, a talk television host. And he used to do things like uh, he'd smoke on the set, he'd blow the smoke in the face of the guests he didn't like. If, if you were on, I only was on that show once. It was it was a terrifying moment because he would put all of his and I don't want to you know be disparaging about everybody who lives in New Jersey. But it's deplorable. Most of most of his most of his audience was from New Jersey and they were really angry people. And, well, and they and were revved we, up. They were told they were revved up. It was shtick. Morton Downey. Morton Downey worked for Teddy Kennedy. Did he really? Yes. So they, they, yeah. It was a, it was an act. At back then, excuse me for one second, back then in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, these were fringe characters, Morton Downey, Joe Pine, Pat Buchanan, your friend. Yeah. They, they were interesting because nobody took them seriously and it was amusing. Now they've been normalized. Yeah. Now the stuff that they're saying is no longer crazy. It's the Republican Party. Yes. It really I, is. No, you're absolutely right. And and, I, mean, and I think I think Buchanan's in a slightly different position because I mean he was um I spent almost a little over a year almost every afternoon with him for 3 hours on the radio. And he was um but he was very Educated. respectful of, of institutions. For example, when the Monica Lewinsky thing broke, uh, I had to be in New York that day, and I, there was a guy who filled in for me. And uh, I was listening to the show on the train coming back from New York, and uh, he wasn't talking about Monica Lewinsky. And so I got in there the next day. I said, Pat, I was listening to the show on the way home. And you weren't talking about Monica Lewinsky. And he looked at me and said, Barry, this is really serious. This is about accusations against the president of the United States. I'm not going to go out and talk about it until we have more evidence. That shocked me. That's the most shocking thing he ever said. But then he, but, but he, had, but then he talked he against the president. Well, yeah, he did. But I mean, he waited, I think, one more day. And then it was all... Talk. But he had this love of the institution of the presidency. And Buchanan was a part of the history of so many, so much of modern U.S. history. And yeah, he like was, uh, uh, Republicans turning on black people. He invented the Southern yeah. strategy, didn't he? Yeah, but I mean, he, it was a strategy that everybody understood. I mean, you remember famously Lyndon Baines Johnson when he uh, when he signed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he signed it and then turned to a couple of his aides and said, you know, we have lost the South forever. Right. Let me we ask have you. lost the South forever. I was reading Adam Sewer's new book. It's a collection of his essays. 
for, uh, from the Atlantic. And he wrote something that was very liberating. The, he was writing about Trump supporters. And he says they are deplorable and they are racism. They're racists. We leftists say, no, no, they're not racist. This is what happens when you lose your job and you lose hope. You have to blame it on black people. And Sewer, he's a great writer, and he just spells out the demographics and explains that's wishful thinking. We, we like to think, especially if you're a leftist, that all you have to do to cure racism is lift all boats. Racism is stubborn. Trump was Trump knows that it's stubborn. And people were voting because they're white and they hate black people. Trump in every income category got every white, won the white vote in every income every category. category. White women. Yeah. It was racism. The people who stormed the Capitol, racism. We don't like to admit it. We like to say, no, these are people who need health care. These are people who, what did Obama say? They turned to their religion and their guns. Because, guns, gods. Yeah, yeah. No, they're racist. They're just really horrible people. There are a lot of racists in America. And we won't, our side doesn't own up to it. We give them the benefit of the doubt. The people who voted for Trump are deplorable. People say, well, it, no, they're, they're, this is why I love what Adam Sewer wrote. Our side explains the way to go. No, no. If these people had jobs, they wouldn't be racist. And Sewer pretty much says, yeah, like the white plantation owners weren't racist. Like all the wealthy people who live in Greenwich, Connecticut, who have millions of dollars, they're not racist. We have to wake up to the fact that a lot of of this Trump stuff and it's unbridled racism. Yes, it is. And we've I have not read that article, but I will now read that article yeah, because. But I think you're right. People need to spell it, what it is, say what it is, make it clear, and not be so concerned about the backlash and the other words that we tend and to he use says, to justify not saying what we believe. He says the crime in the Republican Party is not passing racist legislation. It's being accused of being a racist. If that for you to call someone a racist is far worse than passing legislation which denies African Americans the right to vote. And that's what the whole politically correct movement is sure it's all about you're censoring me you're calling me a racist all because you're a racist yeah and they're like, why yeah. is everybody being called a racist because you're a racist <laughs> that's exactly. why this is a exactly. racist country it's systemic yep yes it's a um is it Somebody 
somebody asked me the other day if I had ever been in the audience, not on a television show, but in the audience watching a television show. And I said, only two that I can remember. One was the old Merv Griffin show. Yeah. And the other was Pat Robertson's The 700 Club. And The 700 Club, of course, is sitting there. I was on, he had a short-lived kind of political show that he used to do after The 700 Club. So I was sitting there kind of watching uh, watching the 700 Club, and as soon as he opens his mouth, the phones ring. The phone banks, his giant phone banks, everyone, they're picking up the phone. And, uh, but... Was he treated for schizophrenia? Pat Robertson? Yeah. I have no idea. I read somewhere that uh, early in his life he was diagnosed with... Uh, schizophrenia would it surprise well, he was pretty you good at, he was pretty good at buying liquor during the Korean War for the troops that's how he served because his dad was a senator right yeah his dad was a senator and he um, so he had a, a not terribly dangerous number of years uh, in the military where he primarily did beverage service good job if you can get it yep yep hey um, uh i've got a clip yeah. what, what's on your mind before i play you a clip no i i uh i did want to talk a little bit about this freedom to vote act the thing that mansion will support it's uh, the thing is this the john lewis voted. bill would this be kind of like the no. john now this is this is the substitute for the we the people act insofar as it covers voting rights I don't, I, I don't think it's a substitute for the John Lewis bill. Okay. But either way, he, he's he's now supporting it, and so now there's this kind of fiction developing in the Democratic Party that since he'll vote for it, that means they can probably break a filibuster by getting another ten actual Republicans as opposed to four Republicans like Manchin that they can get those 10, and then it will pass. And uh, it's a 588-page bill. Amy Klobuchar was the principal author of it. And um, yeah, I think it's the most we're going to get, but I think if we expect, the country expects that this is going to go through smoothly because Manchin's on board, I, I'm afraid we've got another wake-up call coming because I don't see any way that uh, you can get 10 Republicans to support any useful voting rights bill in this Congress. But they're living in dream world. They're just living in a dream world. They're out of touch. And it gets back to what I was saying about anger. The Republicans appeal to everybody's anger. The Democrats tamp it down and anger turned inward is depression. Our side isn't allowed to be angry, so we're depressed. So when we read about Joe Manchin saying something along the lines of, I spoke to my constituents in West Virginia and they're worrying, they've said to me, this safety net is too big. Really, the people of West Virginia yeah. are worried about too big a, a safety net. They sent you... Yeah. 
the poorest state in the union sent you to Washington to to make sure it lives within its means, really. Yeah. But we're not allowed to be angry. angry. There are no shrill, screaming Democrats who are revving up the mob. Not that that's a good thing, but... You got to get people angry. Bernie got people angry, just not angry enough. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he didn't. But you do have to get people angry. You have to get people upset. You have to get them angry about the right things. About the right if things. You don't, if you don't get them angry about that, then the other side gets angry about everything. What's the angriest that right wingers were in the last few days? Ang- who were they angriest at? AOC. Why? Because she wore a gown to the Met Gala, which I guess is for New York society, the biggest event of the year. She it, wore a white white dress emblazoned with the words, eat the rich in red paint. I think it was tax the rich. A tax the rich. Right. Oh, that's right. It was somebody else who said eat the rich. Right, right. That's what they, you, so people... People want to be good, and they also want to be angry. The Democrats think they're playing to people's need to be good. Anger, people should be angry right now, not breaking things, protesting peacefully outside Joe Manchin's office. This is not... if. If you are reading about Joe Manchin and his daughter and his wife, this is the guy who's keeping us from a Green New Deal, from an infrastructure bill, universal preschool, new highways, new bridges that we desperately need. You know, we can't even track COVID in America. We have to pay attention to Israel's COVID right. campaign because our infrastructure, our medical infrastructure is so broken. You know that, right? Yes. We can't track That's right. people who are getting COVID and dying from COVID because we've cut the NIH and the CDC so we have to look at how COVID is spreading in places like Israel to to determine whether or not we need boosters because we don't have the, the the manpower to do the studies here in the United States. That's right. Yeah, we don't. And um, I mean, if you watch the last few days of coverage about the booster shot, I defy anyone. I mean, there are doctors and there are serious epidemiologists, but I am unconvinced that any one of them has enough information to do more than speculate about what the course of this drug or the Moderna virus, Pfizer virus, Moderna vaccine, Pfizer vaccine, Johnson and Johnson. I I don't think anybody has good solid data, and part of it is what you just say. We don't do very good in this country at tracking things, and we can't even be sure that we're getting good raw data from places like Florida, 
where as DeSantis's numbers start to dip, he gets less and less interested in being forthcoming and being transparent about just how serious this disease is in his state of Florida. So Why my my understanding of this structure that doesn't work. My understanding of the situation, and again, I you're married to a doctor, and I'd rather be talking to her, but uh, my understanding is this is like cancer. And when I see Republicans saying, so which one is it? Is it masks or a vaccine? Uh, it's medicine, you child. We don't know. We really don't know. Do Are we going to need boosters or not? It's medicine, you child. There, we don't know. We don't know. So why not wear a mask and get vaccinated? Child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because we don't want to be implanted with DNA that's been that's part lizard creature. and Well, that's true. Yeah. That we should so, be more honest about. <laughs> so tell me what you're going to talk about. You're going to have a Ben Shapiro. I have clip. a Ben Shapiro clip. Okay. This is his response to the California recall. He says it's hopeless, as I'm looking for this. He says okay. it's hopeless in California. He should move out. And he's calling for, it's a three-minute clip, if I can find it. He's calling for a, a federation of states because we're just going to get more and more divided the only solution is if you're a Republican, move to a red state. And if you're uh, on the left, move to a, a blue state. And it would be nice if I could find it. Uh, let's see. Here we go. If you are a Republican in California, things are going to get worse, not better. I've been saying this since I left. Right. Follow me. Get out while the getting is good. Move to a purple state. Turn that state red. California is a lost cause. I know there are a bunch of people who are hanging on over there. I was one of them until a year ago. I, I'm much happier now that I have left the state. The state is, again, in an inexorable state of decline. The voters there are not interested in turning away from the path that they are, are now trotting. They're not turning away from higher taxes. They're not turning away from more regulation. They're not turning away from, from terrible records on, on crime and horrible records on education. They're not turning away from any of that stuff. They're embracing it. They're embracing the suck. So get out while the getting is good. There's plenty of opportunity in other states. So that is the takeaway from the California election is that the continued sorting effect is going to continue. And that we are going to be a country where the red states become redder and the blue states become bluer and the purple states will either shift over into red or blue and then follow that path inevitably. As Virginia has, right? Virginia went from purple to blue, and now it seems like it's going to continue moving blue. It seems to be the trend over in Virginia. On the other hand, Ohio went from purple to red, and seems like it is going to get more red over time. Florida moved from purple to red, and seems like it's getting more red over time. California is going to move from blue to deep blue to, like, dark night blue. That's what's going to happen in the country. And the predictable result of that is going to be further polarization at the federal level. 
So on, on a national level, why should we care about California? Because what it actually presages is not just politics in California. What it presages is a question whether we actually do want to remain part of the same body politic. If we do want to remain part of the same body politic, we're going to have to construct a system of a federal governance in which Texas can be Texas and California can be California. However, California has to let Texas be Texas. And herein lies the rub, because the federal government has no interest when run by Democrats in allowing Texas to be Texas. They would like Texas to be California. And if that's the case, what you're going to end up with is a fairly ugly split between states that wish to be left alone and states that wish to run their business from the top level of the federal government. I think this is why you're hearing so much talk these days about a quote-unquote civil war or talk about secession or talk about the country breaking apart. It's a serious question. Whenever you form a body politic, which is what happened at the founding and what happened again in the aftermath of the civil war, if you form a body politic, you have to decide whether you wish to remain part of the same country. And if so, what common rules can you hold at the top level that everybody can agree to? Well, if the basic notion of American government is that the federal government is going to make all the rules and it's just going to be a struggle for the power of the one ring, then this country is not going to last this way. It is just not. And maybe then the best hope for a lot of conservatives and maybe for a lot of liberals, depending on who's in control of that federal government, is uh, a friendly separation. That is what that force ages. And not that, that California is the wave of the future, but that California and its polarization is the wave of the future. And that we're going to get, I promise you, in the aftermath of this, real estate values in Florida are going to go up. Real estate values in Arizona, in Texas, in Nevada, they're going to go up because Republicans are going to continue leaving. And maybe that's what the California politicians want. So be it. So what do you think? The sorting out. I always thought we couldn't have a civil war in this country based on politics because it wasn't geographical. You know, your your brother can be a Republican. Your you know, the the civil war in my mind was the North versus the South. Now Ben Shapiro is talking of sorting the states out. We heard it with Trump. I never before heard a president complain about governors of red states letting their people down, you know, calling a state a red state or a blue state. Uh, Is this where we're heading, where there's going to be a sorting out? And if you (laughs) may not be a bad idea. No, no, I was going to say it might not be an entirely bad idea. But of course, once you if you look at the five states that are in some ways the worst, including the worst in dealing with COVID, West Virginia, Wyoming, Idaho, Alabama, Mississippi, those are the five worst ones. Those people all suck at the teat of the national budget like nobody's business. Right. They need to be part of this country, of a country like they this are the, country. They are the takers. Because they have no money. They're the takers. they have no people. They, they are the takers. Money. They're the takers. Louisiana, the takers. Uh, I think even Florida, takers. They, they contribute less to the federal treasury than they get in return. Yes, that's true. And um, there was an interesting uh, book. I I wish I could remember who wrote it. The guy, it was about 10 years ago, 
the guy wrote a book about how, in a very thoughtful way, how to separate the United States into two countries. With and, and he had really done a lot of research. Like, let's say you like where you live, but you know that this is not going to be a place which politically you're going to like. So you'd have 10 years to move. You'd get certain subsidies under certain circumstances. But it was such a such a shocking book that he couldn't even get most people in the political class to even talk to him about it. I remember he was telling me he tried to talk to Jim James Carville about it, and Carville said, I won't even talk to you because it's such an astonishing, risky proposition even to talk about it. But I do think that there, <laughs> there's a point at which maybe you have to do two things. Maybe you have to really look at the prospect of this becoming two countries. And the other thing is radically rewrite the Constitution. To go back to Phyllis Schlafly, the only thing Phyllis and I ever agreed about during the 70s and early 80s, don't have a constitutional convention to rewrite the Constitution, which is one of the ways the Constitution provides for amendments. Because in her mind, liberals would take it over and rewrite it in the Barry Lynn standard. And I was scared, and my bosses at the ACLU were scared, because they thought, Phyllis Schlafly, she will be so good at organizing people at the grassroots to come together for constitutional conventions that she will prevail, abortion will be unconstitutional, and everything that she stands for and the suppression of women will all happen because she will get her people to come out, rewrite the Constitution, and then vote to ratify it in the states. So how, how does it sort out? Because we were talking earlier about this comedian, Jim Brewer, who has breadcrumbs of knowledge. He's a good comedian, but they're just little fragments of information that got solidified by listening to right-wing talk radio. He's become this anti, I don't know if he's an anti-vax, you know, it's, it's your choice, but don't make, sure. don't force the vaccine on me. And I watched his rant that he posted, so self-righteous, so self-serving, and so convinced of his moral integrity, and so lacking in reason and book learning. There's no getting through to these people. They are, they live to hate something that's not themselves. And they're provided with that. They get a daily diet from Tucker Carlson and Fox and Newsmax and Trump and blah, 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 to don't hate yourself. Don't feel stupid. Don't feel inadequate. It's them. Hate them. And it's not necessarily black people. You can't, it is. And it's not yeah. necessarily the LGBTQ, but it is. It's not the Jews, but it is. It's the Democrats. It's the Democrats. But are we that polarized? Aren't we being polarized because it feels good? It's tribal. We need to belong to a tribe, isn't it? 
Well, you know, you go watch college football. You put some to me, I watch a college football game. I don't watch it, but I see the crowds. I go give these guys a give everybody an AR-15 and they'll go kill anybody you tell them to. As long as it's communal. They just want to be a part of something. The right has tapped into that need to be part of something, the need to otherize, to hate, because if I, I, I can't turn it inward. I mean, Jim Brewer is an intellectual pygmy who's felt stupid his entire life, and the right wing gives him license, a target. These are the people who make you feel stupid. You're not stupid. Kill all the smart people, Jim. Then you won't be stupid. How do we how do we put this back into the bottle? I wish I knew, and I don't, I don't have an answer for that. And in fact, there are days when I think uh, the bottles it's open, it's all leaking out, and it's now polluted the entire uh, country. Uh, but when you see something happen like we saw this week in California, the rejection of this um, recall, this is where I go back to this. And I, I keep attempting to get you to tell me whether you think I'm right or wrong. I believe in the midterm elections, we are going to see in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, even Ohio, we are going to see not perfect candidates, but more or less progressive candidates who will get votes from traditional Republicans who look at what happens, look at what happened on January 6th, look at the power that Trump continues to maintain over the Republican Party and say, you know, I can't buy into this anymore. I'm going to sit out this election cycle and we'll see what happens. That's wishful I believe thinking. That those people exist. And I think they came out. Yes, it was a lot of money spent. It was a lot of money wasted uh, on the uh, on the recall. But you didn't get recalled. Here's and, why I disagree with you wholeheartedly. Yes. It's wishful thinking. In order for. In order for. Republicans to either sit out an election or vote for a Democrat, they need parenting. Where are the Republicans? Where's the, remember Jim Jeffords? Sure. Republican, disgusted by Bush and Cheney. This was before 9-11. Of course. He was disgusted and he caucused with the Democrats. We don't have one Republican in the Senate. We don't have one Republican. The closest you have to a Republican who's remotely like Jim Jefford is Kinsinger and Cheney, who are willing to serve on the Capitol riot committee. Right. There was a story of a lawmaker in New Hampshire who switched sides. Absolutely. Just one. Yeah. So if you can't get the parents, the leadership to say to pull an Arlen Specter. 
Didn't Arlen Specter become a Democrat? He ran as a Democrat? No. No, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. I think he I think he did. I don't know. We'll have to check. I actually knew him. He was a weird guy. But he's a guy like like Kinsinger. I can't stand watching that guy. Because what, the day he comes out and says, you know, I've decided that it's not just that I'm anti-Trump. It's that I'm pro-choice. And I support the LGBTQ community. When he says those things, then I'm going to take him seriously. Right. Now, I could care less whether he's on the committee, not on the committee. I don't want to like to see him. He's on every day on every network because he is, with the exception of Liz Cheney, who's also terrible on the merits mm-hmm. on most issues. She's not for the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, health insurance for every American. She's not in favor of any of those things. So good riddance. If she's right. if she quits the committee in order to save her seat, which I think is impossible, more power to her. Go for it. I don't want any of these clowns to represent the Republican Party because they don't. And if they did, it would still be the corpse of a political machine still. And who's animating the Republican Party? This benefits both parties to have this kind of vitriol. As long as the problem is the Republicans, then we take our eye off taxing the the rich. This is exactly what they want. They want us hating the other side instead of hating what's above us. If you hate a Republican, you're hating your neighbor. You got to look up. Exactly. This is exactly. Uh, this is vertical, not horizontal. No, it, it is. It's beyond. You know, this has been going on for decades where people tried to figure out what is it that makes people believe that there's a chance that they can rise economically in a dramatic way. Do you think your children will be better off than you are? And the average Republican goes, yes. What do you base that on? Well, there's the American dream. These are white people, so they can have an American dream. People don't change. We don't change. We don't have dramatic shifts. We don't become wealthy people. Unless we're looking at Mavis. So anyway, so we've been we've been facing this for decades. People want to believe so desperately that there's a chance that their kids are going to be better off than they are, that they're going to have more opportunities, that they're not going to have to step on somebody's head in order to get up the ladder, but they'll be able to do it with all the vim and the vigor that they have personally. And this is all nonsense. If you're in the 1%, you, you could lose half your wealth tomorrow and you would lose nothing. There would be nothing that would trouble you. If you're, but you know, we, we can't, um, you can't convince people of that. When I used to do talk radio, I would get people who call, would call in and actually say, I know this is hard to believe. They would say, why do we have a national debt? 
Dinko, because you sometimes have to spend money in a prudent way in order to build better. You, if you want roads, you might have to borrow some money to build the infrastructure, to build more bridges. They go, well, that's not the way I function. And they go, well, how do you function? And they go, I just pay my bills. I say, okay, so you rent a house. No, 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 I own a house. I said, do you own it? And they would say, uh, well, the bank and I own it. I said, that's the point. You just borrowed money. How about your car, brand new car? No, I owe on that too. You borrow money if it's important for you to build up your life, to build up the structures of what it is to function. You don't worry about it. If you are borrowing money to buy groceries with a credit card, maybe you ought to rethink that. But if these big investments that people have that are going to help them, that are going to move them forward, that you borrow money for. I remember telling Pat Buchanan once, to get back to Pat Buchanan, I said, I thought the biggest problem with the federal budget was that it's not two budgets. We don't have a capital budget and then an expenditure budget. That's what most companies have. They do borrow money in order to invest in things that will make them wealthier in the long run. But they don't borrow, you know, to buy potato chips for the workers on Friday afternoon. That's the difference. Yeah. Reverend, I'm uh, we have to wrap it up. I'm struggling. With, I really am struggling with something. Okay. I am being serious. Yep. The I never wanted to be the guy who said Americans are stupid. I never wanted to say the people on the other side of the republic, like somebody like Jim Brewer, a comedian. I, I never wanted to just say he's stupid uh, or, or troubled or mentally ill. And I watched his rant that he and and I this is what upsets me because I have nothing against Jim Brewer. He makes people laugh. That's you're doing God's work as long as you're not you know, doing it at the expense of other people. Then he gets hold of his YouTube social media and talks to his fans and reveals that he has maybe a couple of quarks of information, maybe one or two quarks that can be found, that can't even be found with electro uh, magnetic, whatever. Uh, not bright, not a bright guy, okay? Okay. And I don't want to call him stupid. Right. And I don't want to call Joe Rogan stupid. Because I worked for Bill Maher for a couple of years, and one of the joys that I used to get was sitting with him and the other writers, and he would call Americans stupid. And I would laugh, but I would think... I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be Bill Maher calling the American people stupid. And then I realized, because I stopped watching Bill Maher, now I've discovered he's stupid. And I mean that. Like, he just stopped reading. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Somebody stopped reading. 
So he's stupid. So I, you know, I don't want to call people stupid because I don't think I'm that bright myself. But there's the celebration of stupidity now. That that does it, Reverend? Does it help to start pointing out that some people are ignorant and you shouldn't be listening to them? Does that help? the conversation is it does it help the conversation to to call out ignoramuses yeah um does it help or does it hurt i don't know because i in my private life i find myself saying more and more why why do we allow ignorant people to be so influential people who don't read why do we why do we make put them out front? Well, I um, I do think it's important to call people out. Now, the two things, uh, but I, I don't want to impinge on, on Marianne and the professor's time, and I do have to go. But I, I think that it, it's one thing to point out to somebody that their hero is a person who is ignorant. It's another thing to look at the person who lives next door and go, you know, you really are a stupid son, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, because he might sick his German shepherd on you. Right. Or it's just impolite. But if you wanted to have a conversation with somebody and say, you know, I know you like X. I know you like Y. But I don't think those people really have your best interests at heart. I don't think they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Those conversations, I think, are good to have. And I have them. And I think people should have them. Thank you. I, I guess for Unless years I used Minaj, to... In which case, you really can't. With the swollen testicles. Yeah. So I, I don't follow the news that closely. Was it her testicles that got swollen? From the oh, COVID? no, but I think you need to read some basic. Okay, I should I'm if you even asked that question. Okay, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran United, the Americans United for separation of church and state. Now more than ever. Now I have some clips, Reverend, that. Uh, and besides being a lawyer, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Enjoy the grandkids. Give my warmest regards to your brilliant wife and the grandchildren. It remains to be seen how. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, maybe I'll bring them on. Show them if they here, here's my dilemma. Should I show them five minutes of me on YouTube with you, like the last five minutes? Well, I have to cut the testicle part. Yeah, no, but, no, don't. Or, or, it's not for kids. Um, or should well, I watch Peter Rabbit with them? Watch Peter Rabbit. Okay. That's better. Unless they you want to do a roast battle with me. Uh, oh, How old are they? Four. That would be a good roast Four battle. I could, I could win that one. Thank you, Reverend. Possibly. Thank you. All right. Hopefully I'll talk week. to you next week. Thank you. Okay. Bye well, bye. let's see. We do have the professor and Mary Ann. Let me bring them in here. Hang on. Can you unmute Professor Bick? Hello. And is Professor Ann Lee going to join us, please? 
we we don't have. Hang on, I don't see Professor Hussein. Uh, is Professor Ann Lee here? Well, okay. If she's here, Dan, why don't we do Dan before? Uh, am I, I didn't keep anybody waiting. Correct. Oh, you're looking good. Okay. Do you want to do community billboard? It's ten oh six. You want? How are you doing on time? I'm good. We'll go after the professors. Right, and then what's what's after the professors? I think that was the end. That's that's the end. Are are you going to be okay? Yep. All right. Thank you. It's the professors and Marianne. We have Professor Jonathan Bick. He's a political scientist, and we have Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Ian Faluna is. He sent me a note. He won't be available for a couple of weeks, unfortunately. And I don't know where Professor Hussein is. And so uh, it's just the three of us, not just the three of us, unless <laughs> Professor Ann Lee uh, is here. Okay. Well, uh, David, Professor, Professor Ann Lee is here, but she's under P. She put Professor in front of her name. So oh. you, could find, you could find her. You know who else her- is under P? Donald Trump when he's visiting the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow. There she is. Six. I, I, I just pissed off Professor Marianne Cummings. Pissed off. Shizzing. I mentioned Russiagate. There's Professor Ann Lee. All right. Did, did you know that Jen Psaki's uh, P is silent? Yes, yeah, so that's what I heard. Her, her okay. P is silent. What is on your mind, Professor Jonathan Bick? There's Professor Ann Lee. I, I, well, I wanted to just um, briefly talk about the difference between stupidity and ignorance. Please. So uh, <laughs> I'm suffering. I, I really am because I, I, I really don't want to do a show where I'm calling other people stupid. It's unap- and ignorant and whatever. And uh, well, yeah, that's what that's the point I wanted to make. Yeah. Um, Unless it's to us directly, David. I'm yeah. sorry. Unless it's to our face directly. <laughs> no, it's not behind our back. I know. I, I'm, I'm talking about some things I saw. Uh, go ahead, please. Yeah. So um, stupidity uh, is, you know, linked to intelligence. So you would be saying they have a lack of intelligence. And that's not something that people can do anything about. Um, on the other hand, uh, being ignorant is something that people can do something about, right? And and sometimes it's not people's fault that they're ignorant. There are different reasons for that. Uh, you know, they live in an area where they don't have access to quality education. Um, both parents are working, you know, uh, two jobs each. Uh, they don't have time to read to them. They don't have time to spend with them. Uh, there are lots of different reasons. Learning is a could. luxury. Learning is a luxury. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah. Um, willful ignorance is something else. Yes. So that that is uh, much more pernicious. And uh, I think that's what you're really getting at. It's people who don't want to know the truth or that are completely indifferent to the truth 
because it conflicts with their already preconceived notions of the world, with their self-identity, and they don't want to change that because it would be uncomfortable for them. So I, I, it, it's important to make that distinction between stupidity, ignorance, and willful ignorance. And it's the last one that's the most problematic because ignorance can be resolved, right? You, you can do that. You fund education, make education interesting, uh, you know, uh, make sure that the parents have time to spend with their children by making working conditions less harsh and, and brutal. There are all sorts of things you can do, but you're frozen. I think that's what you're yeah, I'm frozen. You, you froze a little there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, so that I just want to make that initial point. Yeah. I feel, I don't want to say guilty. I, I never wanted to do, I'm repeating myself, I apologize, but I never wanted to call people ignorant, like the other side ignorant. I always felt they could be brought over to our side with a little understanding and compassion, I don't know if that's possible anymore. I Willful, I love what oh, you said. What's our side, David? I mean, you know, uh, I think part of the problem is the Dems as a whole have not given people much reason to vote for them if you're not already a Dem and your parents were already a Dem and right. that's part of your identity, which is most people, by the way. Those people will grow up in a Republican household, will just be Republican like they'll be Presbyterian. Um, and I think that uh, Thomas Frank said it best. He said, you know, because he did a he he did a book before Listen Liberal, it was What's the Matter with Kansas? But he was critiquing the Democratic Party in this. He said you keep telling people they're voting against their interests. Do you know what their interests are? Because you're, the way you behave, you don't really know what people's interests are. Like having a decent community, decent job, you know, very basic stuff. Um, and when people do not feel so economically under siege, they're a little more, you know, relaxed or curious or, or uh, just generous in terms of considering gay rights, you know, a uh, whole range of civil rights issues, <clears throat> the climate, you know, wars off in distant lands. I mean, you know, people are battling every day in and day out here. So the only politician I have seen who's consistently and ha addressed these people in a compassionate non-condescending way has been Bernie Sanders. Right. Right. So. Right. Professor Ann Lee. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I agree completely. It, it is unfortunate that um, we have people that are just purely reactionary or, or people who will just say any damn thing that'll come into their heads. Uh, like today, uh, some guy on the Daily Wire accused uh, Barack Obama of killing off the uh, rock and roll. I, I have no idea, Abby. It's just so bizarre. Was wow. I, wait, 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 but it was a joke, right? No, he was perfectly serious about it. He was talking about 
um, white male angst that uh, that just the fact of uh, you know Obama's being there destroyed you know uh, a whiting the ability of white anxiety to express itself. I what no, yeah, they just missed Antara. It what? was just strange. And the Daily Wire has a fair audience, as you may know. But that is the right wing, right? That's Ben Shapiro. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it was just a Breitbart kind of thing. But uh, needless to say, uh, uh, Twitter got hold of it. What do you, uh, we were talking about Adam Sewer earlier. I've been reading him from The Atlantic. I know that Professor Marianne took exception once to my saying that Trump supporters were racist. Uh, to not at all, because half my family are Trump supporters, and they're not racist. That's what Adam Sewer said. Adam Sewer in the article, right? Uh, Sewer, and I'll pronounce it right. People say. Uh, Trump supporters can't possibly be racist because my family voted for Trump. That's well, they can be racist. They're just not all racist. That, let's make let's be clear. Right. They, they, this is. Uh, I'm going to send you his piece. He breaks yeah, okay. it down where <laughs> it's like all these reasons, wishful thinking, white liberals or leftists refuse to accept that the real attraction that Trump has is he's a racist. It's white nationalism, pure and simple. Well, it certainly is a comforting thought to the establishment Dems. Like, it couldn't possibly be us and our policies. They're all racist. That's an easy, that's one of those easy uh, answers. Right. But the well, easy both, answer, Sewer says, I'm mispronouncing his last name, Sir. He says the easy answer for the left is it's economic insecurity. You turn on blacks, Jews, Arabs, you believe QAnon out of uh, economic insecurity because that furthers our argument that we need to lift all boats. And they're, they're finding that, I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, Adam says, uh, very wealthy people are racist, you know, the plantation owners were racist. People with plenty of money, plenty of stability, plenty of uh, comfort, racist. But, but by the way, uh, leftists, you know, true leftists and progressives, we don't, I mean, the, the impetus behind a just and equitable society is because you want to maximize a good human existence. You know, we're not primarily doing it because it says it's going to get rid of all the bad things and qualities of human nature. But when you have people who are not struggling, it's a little easier to then do the kind of politics you want to do. So, but I haven't read the article. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Okay. Uh, he, but it's it's not the racism, David, that caused the plantation owners um, to support slavery, right? It, it was their economic position that uh, 
enabled them to use uh, prejudice and racism in order to justify their position? Yes and no. Again, I've been reading Adam Sewer, and he has a piece about Robert E. Lee, who, when you read what Robert E. Lee wrote, he was a racist. He believed that black people needed to be enslaved. It was a it was the white Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee, whose statues are being taken down, believed that part of the white man's burden was to keep the black man enslaved to protect them from themselves. So but that's a cover. Uh, I think people with slaves were, easy, were richer than people without slaves. I think it's a little simpler. <laughs> he also White. beat. He also beat his slaves, whipped his slaves, uh-huh. threw brine on the wounds. There's a little more going on than just justifying your position in the caste system. When you, when you're delighting in whipping slaves and separating them, Robert E. Lee was notorious for separating the families of slaves, something that doesn't get discussed until recently. The the trauma of separating slaves, Robert E. Lee delighted in separating his slaves, selling off parts of the family. That isn't about protecting your social status or your property. That is just being vindictive and, and delighting in the suffering of slaves. No, it's just simple supremacy. It, it's treating people as subhuman or to rationalize it, which is, I, I think, you know, how apartheid works. Well, they're on a different developmental track. This is that whole business of being civilized versus being primitive or or pre-civilized in that particular context. It, 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 it's so easily rationalized. And, uh, you know, th- it's that whole thing about civilizing discourse or whatever. They're just closer to nature. So, therefore, we treat them as though they were in some state of nature or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's why whipping makes sense, you know. Buckley, I mean, Bill Buckley in sixty. Four said black people weren't ready. Yeah, that that he the he, in theory he was forgiving the black people the vote. Bill Buckley, but they're just not ready yet to vote. They, they weren't civilized yet. I don't know what that has to do with maintaining your status in oh, society. Because it- because David, it's used to maintain their status. It's used to, first of all, to establish that status. White Europeans didn't go to Africa to save the black man, right? They went there and they didn't go there because the countries were poor. They went there because the countries were rich in minerals, in resources, in labor. And they found that, gee, you know, how can we say that these people should not be treated like people. Well, look, they look different than us and they dress different than us and they're savages and we're civilized. So therefore we're we're trying to help them become civilized. And the way we're gonna do that is bring them to our country 
and force them to work for us for no pay, but we'll bring them, uh, you know, the word of Jesus. Uh, We'll destroy their culture and we're trying to help them and bring them up. But all of that uh, narrative is in the service of transferring wealth from one group of people to another. But is that, again, I'm just having a conversation. I don't want to, I'm enjoying this. I hope I'm not being rude to anybody. Uh, it feels, and again, I'm, this is coming from spending last night reading Adam Sewer. So I'm uh, wondering politely if you have a hammer in other words, you have this tool, you, you have a way of seeing the situation and it's, you're utterly convinced. And I think it's been, a, it was a problem when Bernie was running. We ran up against it on our show where we didn't understand identity politics, especially mm-hmm. me, where I was saying, you know, who, forget being whatever you are. It's the 99%. And the pushback I got was, you don't understand. There are other things besides class struggle. Like, I'm, you know, uh, I'm part of the LGBTQ community. We get raped by police officers. That has nothing to do with money and social stat. Well, it does, but... uh, and just reading Adam Sura last night, like he mentioned, I'm just quoting him, that if a rising- Is it a book you're reading? Huh? Is it a book you're Yeah, reading? it's a collection of his essays for The Atlantic. And what, one of the things he said that just blew me away is that if the left is right, if a rising tide lifts all boats and then we don't resent each other based on race. They can't divide us. How do you explain the rampant racism in the 30s in the union movement? We had Professor Horn on the show, and he wrote this great book about Hollywood and the unions. Black people weren't allowed in the trade unions in Hollywood. I guess you can explain that away as manipulation and control and if they but that the racism persisted there there was this need among white middle class union members not to 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 separate themselves from black people to say you know uh i rather be poor and better than a black person than be middle class and equal to a black person. That yeah, is, well, that's a stubborn thought that we don't talk enough about. Well, this, this is about the kind of cultural developments. And when you think about it in terms of the 1930s in California, if you're talking about certain types of, of unions that you know, California had a migration thing from the Dust Bowl, et cetera. So you have a lot of very specific uh, racial divisions or separations that are, that get freighted with it. And and so the, this is that argument about, well, class is not the same as intersectionality. Well, no, it, it's quite integrated, uh, as it were, it's quite combined. 
all of these structures of domination are, don't just break along lines of wages or wealth. They, they break along a whole variety of other senses of being different. And, uh, you know, there, there's plenty of, sec- I mean, this is that issue of, of why uh, uh, Chicago is highly segregated, is a highly segregated city. And I think you see that same structural uh, differentiation, even in places that are much more diverse, like California, for example. I mean, you could see that that the racial divisions are, are are much clearer, but they don't, they just aren't as explicit. I mean, the differences between where Latinos had to live or got to live, this is that whole business, well, just to speak personally, of Chinatowns, for example. And I remember uh, people still arguing, going back to the apartheid position, is that whole business of separate but equal, these, these you know, uh, uh, when I was much, much, much younger, uh, uh, it, they they brought over uh, a guy from the uh, the South African embassy to explain why there were you know why there were these little enclaves for for uh, for for black folks and in South Africa and I said well no it's it's separate you know they, they need to develop on their own whatever for their own purposes and. We're there to help them do that, and and you know, and, and rationalize an entire system of subjugation. Right, and they learn apartheid was what forty eight, forty nine. Yes. So they they learned it from the United States. They learned. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we. Yeah. I'd like to point out that racism has a function in our economy, right? It's not an accident that race is being used to divide people who have something in common. And that is that they, um, their wages, their, their quality of life is negatively impacted as the owners of businesses uh, make more profit. So when you can use race to divide those groups against each other, then you'd be successful in maintaining an economic system that does just that. It it has a real uh, functional value to the ruling class. And, and, and it's much more in, insidious. I, there's, a, there's a recent article uh, that talks about how a black family's assessed value for their, they were trying to sell their house. And the assessed value of the house went up by $100,000 because they had put portraits of their white neighbors in, in the house. And, and that's just like, I know that's, that's very anecdotal, but crazy. I mean, and yet we know that, that de facto redlining still exists. Right. Which also. Well, David, I, I have to uh, ask you, though, because you said that, you know, we in the Bernie movement were insensitive. But Bernie Sanders whole movement, you know, from the first time. He, well, yes. really, from the time he was uh, in politics. But is a I hear you. Racial, diverse collection, I, working class coming together. I've seen the pictures of him being in Chicago trying to integrate, I think it was a public housing 
being dragged off by the police. Yes, but, I mean I, he he was uh, he he was presiding over the gay pride parade in in uh, Burlington, Vermont. You know, the first one they had. You know, to uh, to much ire and uh, consternation among letters to the editor there. But nonetheless, right. that Bernie has always been that way. He's always had that sensibility. I think. Um, racism and sexism and the whole nine yards was used very cynically by the uh, by the Clinton team, you know, to yeah. go after Bernie. Well, it, but I it did, was just complete cynicism and, you know, just uh, there's, there's Bernie. Who's perfect. And I mean that. And then there are <laughs> some of his followers, some of whom and I know. The Bernie bro thing is a myth. But I did doing this show and talking to white male Bernie supporters. Uh, there was pushback on identity politics. From Bernie supporters who didn't want to hear it. Uh, kind of in, I'm not, well, the I don't have this. Is why didn't they want to hear it? Did, did they not want to hear it because it's been cynically used against working class, weaponized against working right. class, or they just didn't want to hear it because they were themselves racist or sexist? I think what the, the or just completely clueless about racism in this country, which I think I it's the former. I think it's there. They feel that identity is used to divide us. Mm -hmm. But. Again, and this is anecdotal. Sometimes my gut told me it was the latter, but that's anecdotal. There was sometimes I would talk to people and I would hear something and I go, this may not be about divide and conquer. Your fear of divide and conquer through identity politics. Sometimes I, I, I sensed just intolerance. I picked up on it. I was I, five years ago, I would have joked uh, inside of me, but I don't want to get uh, people don't have a sense of humor anymore. Uh, anyway, let, let, let's what else, what is on your mind, uh, Professor Ann Lee? Well, I I wrote a thing on uh, the uh, why Australians are getting nuclear submarines. That may not seem horribly important, but- Oh, they're mad at France. Isn't France pissed off? France is very pissed off. They're, they're, they're out $66 billion for uh, French diesel submarines. And, and it, it, it's more about uh, balance of power in the um, Indo-Pacific area because and it's much, much crazier than that because it's it's being waged at a very strange level. In other words, the Australians decided to break a contract for uh, several diesel electric submarines. But it, I think it's part of another deal where they're really pissed off about destroyers um, and a bunch of other things. But it, it's a deal where they're going to get nuclear submarines from either the U.S. or the U.K. And these nuclear submarines are important, I think, for Australian national security in the sense that they have a lot of uh, area to patrol. 
and a nuclear submarine is certainly a lot easier to work with um, uh, because there's the Pacific is incredibly vast. The problem, of course, is that uh, they can't possibly visit New Zealand because New Zealand will not allow nuclear-powered ve- uh, vessels in its in its waters. And the other thing is that nuclear uh, submarines of the type that that they're going to buy from the U.S. or from the U.K. also can deliver nuclear weapons. So, and and that's where it's going to change the entire balance. This is on the on the heels of the uh, South Koreans launching a submarine uh, launchable uh, missile. Was that the North uh, Koreans or the South? I thought it was the North. South, the South Koreans. The South Koreans just tested a submarine-based launch missile, which which means that essentially they can just you know plop a little nu- nuclear warhead on it. Um, and and the, this changes balance of power issues. Uh, the, the Chinese uh, put out a uh, a little press release saying these were these are more running dogs and uh, let's say <laughs> the usual rhetoric, right? <laughs> Angry rhetoric. Um, and of course, uh, the French are very mad. They they canceled the gala that. Uh, that uh, uh, was supposed to be this week. Uh, uh, they they canceled it to disinvite a whole bunch of people because of this. So Macron is a little bit uh, annoyed by this. Help me out here. The 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 figure sixty billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Is that true that that Australia is going to spend sixty billion dollars on nuclear submarines? Uh yeah. And who gets that money? Well, no, it was originally 60, 60, 66 billion dollars for diesel electric uh, uh, French submarines, an entire fleet of them. But uh, uh, they realized that by the time they get them, that they're going to be obsolete and that it was much more economic. I mean, I, you could argue that it was much more economical from a, a cost of operation to get nuclear subs. It's just that the nuclear sub that they're going to get are incredibly dangerous objects. I mean, from a, a nuclear point of view. And so who is it's the United States who will be making these submarines? Yeah, uh, big money. I think it, it, it's actually a, a boon for the U.S. from a, a military industrial complex point of view. It means they can build more, for example, Virginia class submarines. In order to build $60 billion worth of submarines, there has to be a threat. Well, it's a deterrent. And and $60 billion is really only 20 submarines. But the threat I'm is... I'm sorry to say. The, the, threat would be, <laughs> the threat would be China, not New Zealand. Correct. It, it's part of an alliance that... That doesn't include New Zealand. It used to be ANZAC, but now it's just the UK, Australia, and the US. And and, and Biden just announced this today. It's it's just it's quite interesting because the Chinese are very pissed off, and now the French are very pissed off, and you know it it has lots of other implications. The, the Chinese have one aircraft carrier. Uh, yeah, but I think they're going to build a second one. They they really want uh, they like having a big carrier group, which uh, includes submarines. 
they're if you read the neoliberal mainstream they the west exec people who now occupy the oval office have testified before congress saying it's only a matter of time before china moves on taiwan is that because we have to build weapons or is china really eyeing taiwan i i don't uh, i think they're in it for the long long term i don't think they're ever going to attack it. i just think that they're they're going to uh, i don't think they there's going to be an invasion or anything i just think they're going to throw their weight around is 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 taiwan kind of like abortion a good fundraising technique if if I mean, the, the worst thing, as we all know, the Republicans could do is get rid of abortion because then they stop raising money. Is the threat of China invading Taiwan that keeps the military machine in the United States humming, right? I would say so. I mean, I, I don't think it's about submarines. I think it's about selling people cruise missiles. Each cruise missile is, you know, a, a, a couple million bucks a pop. And you can only use them once. That's right. You don't see Elon Musk coming up with reusable cruise missiles. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great to see some, you know, bomb a foreign country and then see the missile land safely back in the United States so we can reload it. That would be a funny, that would be a great petition to try to get people to sign. Professor Ann Lee, do you think that if the French had upped their game, uh, you know, if they had stocked the uh, diesel electric submarines with red wine and brie, yeah. <laughs> that have pushed it over the top? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> trying to help them. I don't think they want to share their nuclear technology. That's the big deal. Now, um, are they, the did, did the French, oh. after Fukushima, did they decide to retreat on nuclear power? I know Germany did. Uh, no, I don't no. think they did. No. Only the Germans did. Interesting. In fact, they've got a big project uh, going on that's uh, uh, reprocessing spent fuel. Part if we switch to nuclear power. Yeah. What's this? Theoretically, if we switch to nuclear power, it would solve climate change, correct? Uh, we'd have to all go vegan, too. And, you know. <laughs> I don't know how for remote transportation you replace diesel immediately. Maybe you have to have a next generation battery up from the, you know, hydrogen cells or lithium batteries we have now for it to be really, which we could do. I don't think marketplace is going to get us there. We have to have like some serious, you know, commitment to R&D. Right. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ideas kicking around. But... Yeah. Um, well, back for to electricity, that would make that would make tons of sense. 
there, there is no one solution to climate mm-hmm. change. It's, it's going to take a, a number of changes across different areas of, of our lives in order to address this problem. And, and you know, just switching to nuclear power is, I don't think it's even going to be, you know, the majority of the, of the problem. So, no, if you consider that electricity is what, only uh, about 20% of the greenhouse gases is uh, electricity generation. And then you have transportation, and that's a big one. And then you have agriculture, and that might be the biggest of all. Right. And uh, animal-based, you know, livestock and things like that is an enormous source of greenhouse gas. Plus, not just in in of itself, but the whole ancillary, you know, the clearing of land, the clearing of forest space and, you know, to to graze cattle and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is it is a multivariate approach. Um, any you you can you can attack these things on several fronts though and and get some type of uh, relief. I mean, um, if you if we just replaced all of the light water reactors, um, if we just well if if we upgraded them, we basically decommissioned them and just start building our systems. Or there are other systems that aren't do, don't do as deep a burn as our system would. But look at all that stockpile of nuclear waste because it's one pass. I mean, it's, it's hideously inefficient. You've gotten like about five percent of the possible fission energy out of this, you know, because they were basing it off of light water reactors from the nuclear submarines, right? So, um, but. You have all that stuff sitting there. Nobody knows what to do with it. I mean, nobody knows what to do with it. There's all these schemes for burying it. And how do we, like, come up with a sign language that people a million years from now could understand that this is really bad stuff we're storing? Here's, you don't b- even bother moving it. You start burning it in place. And, uh, and, and the buzzwords are closed fuel cycle. In other words, if you can burn, we would say, for about 200 years, um, these this uh, spent fuel that's sitting in all of these light water reactor sites, um, you could get it down to a radiotoxicity level that could be ambient radiotoxicity. You know, basically what natural radon is and things like that in the ground. And you could just, you can uh, reduce it, the radiotoxicity by orders of magnitude. How big, how big are these, is the waste? In other words, could you put it on a rocket and send it to a uh, put it on a rocket. <laughs> Bad idea. What Bad idea. No, I would up? say that we. I did a crude calculation, and I think I came up with it would basically fill a big box Walmart store. The amount of waste that we have. So, what if we were able to? Just, you know, we tell Jeff Bezos to move to the moon and then we just nuke it. We just <laughs> said, I mean, there's no plate. We can't find like a planet to just fire this stuff at, get it out of. Uh, yeah, we would be fine. You have to understand what payload is. By the way, nuclear, uh, not nuclear reactors, but nuclear batteries is what will what powers any kind of long distance spaceflight these days. I mean, it's. You know, the, the Voyagers, the two Voyager um, 
uh, apparatus are out there and they're being powered by little nuclear batteries that continue to just decay and provide energy and, you know, will do so for quite some time. Because of the, I mean, this is a little, getting a little discursive, but what people don't understand, what made the industrial industrial revolution possible was the sheer energy density of oil, of diesel. Um, you know, burning wood, burning it, you know, a lot of these alternatives, you know, which biodiesel or things like that, you're burning a lot of wood chips. I mean, you don't... It, it, doesn't begin to deliver the amount of impact that, you know, a, a gallon of oil, a gallon of gasoline would will deliver. And nuclear is a million times more dense than that. That's why, you know, any serious long-term space flight is going to have nuclear on board because the payload for this stuff. Yeah, uranium is kind of heavy. Uranium oxide's still quite a bit heavy. So you're talking, if you want to get it off the planet, you're talking about so many flights with an initial burn up of energy just to you know break the uh, break the earth's gravitational pull i mean it's, it would be any one mishap and how many mishaps have we had over the last you know 50 years off of a launch pad you know many yeah. so that wouldn't be a good idea now we have a good idea to do if we just shift our minds like uh, like uh, Professor Tom Weber last night was talking about, you know, one of the um, one of his lectures last night was a philosophy where three, three pedestals, but one of them is just shifting your whole mind view on a problem. So if you can just shift your mind view and view our nuclear waste as invaluable amounts of, of energy that can power us for a thousand years, literally, as we develop real sustainable technologies, as we figure out, and it's not going to—it's going to be messy at this point. Uh, there's going to be no—I I, I haven't read through the latest um, uh, uh, IPCC report, um, but you know, it's—it's it's red alert basically. They've been—they've been—that's the nickname it's been given, and it's—we're uh, going to be living with the effects of what uh, of climate change. I mean, climate change is here. Yeah, IPCC is that's the UN. Those are the scientists yeah. who said it's. Uh, I'm still waiting for the League of Nations to issue their report. <laughs> when did the League of uh, Professor Anley, parenthetically, when did the League of Nations say, you know what, this ain't working? <laughs> did, they, did they have a, like in the lead up to World War II? Was it was there still a League of Nations and they just said we're going to dissolve? Well, I- Technically, there was, but, you know, they had no enforcement power. I mean, you you just see all these, uh, some of these were nice ideas, but, you know, even in the U.S. context, I mean, you know, the the, uh, Congress didn't didn't support it. Uh, You know, you have all of those, the weakness. I mean, the real weakness went on with the the earlier naval treaties as though, uh, you know, battleships could be... uh, you know, you could control aggression by controlling the size of battleships. Well, you know what? I, I preferred the League of Nations to the U.N. because League of Nations had the designated hitter. But uh, <laughs> it just didn't do it. that rule. Yeah, I know. I just I liked it. I, I, you know, as you get older, you like to see some guys get up to bat. Uh, indulge me 
in a thought exercise. So the I, it's the IPCC, is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay, that was my thought exercise. Now, uh, they say <laughs> even if we respond to this code red, the next 30 years are going to be a nightmare. I've noticed here in New York City that we've been acclimated to the climate change. People talk about the weather now. Uh, they make tentative plans. <clears throat> the flooding in Manhattan, uh, for some people, people, we never had flash floods in Manhattan before. And one of the things, mm -hmm. just indulge me 30 seconds here. I thought, well, I wouldn't wish Wall Street to get flooded because people live there, but this is being caused by Wall Street. All of this is being caused by the tip of Manhattan. What if the next 30 years we don't have to do anything, climate change will do it for us? Is it possible, this is an ugly thought, maybe not, the planet will heal itself by destroying all the oil refineries, that the planet, the climate will shut down, will just destroy the infrastructure that's destroying the planet, that, that in many ways, this sounds cruel, but these hurricanes are the antibodies, that these fires are the antibodies that is protecting the planet. Eventually, these fires are going to hit the source of climate change. Is that possible that it'll get so bad it'll get better? It very well could, David, but the, the human race won't be around in, in any significant numbers to observe it. If we allow the planet to heal itself and we do nothing to reduce the effects of climate change, we're not, we're not going to survive as a civilization. Unless these, this is ugly thinking, but these are ugly times, unless the weather starts destroying the sources of climate change. Yep, but think about the implications of that. Uh, you, you would have uh, transportation being disrupted, which would uh, trap food, you know, where the food is grown. You wouldn't be able to distribute it to the cities and to the, where pe most people are. So you would have cities without enough food, people starving, um, it would lead to, to mass chaos and, um, well, I mean, to get ugly for a second, if, how can there be chaos if people can't get, if people are stuck? Well, you haven't watched much science fiction, have no, you? No, I haven't. <laughs> no. So, no, it's like, 
I think uh, Professor John brings up a, a great point. I mean, basically, if the oil, for instance, were to disappear, just completely disappear, the carrying capacity of this planet would just plummet down to a billion probably less because nobody here knows how to do anything. I mean, well, maybe in third world countries, they still don't know how to make their food and how to make their clothes and shelter and stuff, but suburbanites here certainly do not. So yeah, it will be a very bad time. That's why we really want to expeditiously get off of oil. Now, Joe in Norway had a question, and I'll answer it briefly, if I may. Yes, that uh, China is preparing to test, it, to test a uh, prototype thorium nuclear reactor it's going to be it's going to be put online very soon small one it's going to be running thorium it's going to be running thorium and molten salts now thorium reactors thorium is that really the least reactive is that the least reactive yeah. of all the reactors? I, would, I don't know if it's the least reactive but it's very weak reactive you have to irradiate it um and to excite it to turn into uranium to you you change thorium-232 into uranium-233, and that's what is radioactive. However, one of the there's many, many radiochemical pathways, and we just chose the one in the early 50s to commercialize that was optimized for weapons production. And one of the nice things about the thorium chain reactions is that there's really not you know, a sin, single, it's not making plutonium, basically. So it's, uh, it's much safer from a nuclear weapons proliferation point of view. These, I believe, these are going to be um, the small modular reactors. And small modular reactors, most of the commercial nuclear reactors are BMS. They're big things, one-off type of designs. These are much smaller, walk away. You know, the surface-to-volume ratio is such that you know, they can design them so that they're walk-away heat. Uh, the nice thing about the molten salt is that the coolant and the fuel are one and the same thing. So you have a very tight sort of engineering little parameter space to operate in. And anyway, I could go on. But uh, so there, so that is happening. And I think India really is interested in this because India has a lot of thorium. Well, there's a lot of thorium. There's a lot more thorium than uranium. And it's uh, much less uh, of a ecological disaster to mine. But, yeah, if you want to get off the fossil fuel, I mean, that's the energy-dense source that will power not only our current needs, but the kinds of energy we need to completely transform everything, all our infrastructure, the infrastructure we have in place that took centuries to put in place. We have to replace that. And windmills and solar panels alone aren't going to do it. Plus, we're going to have to have the next generation solar panels. I mean, that's going to be a big R&D project, and there's a lot of promising technologies for that. But the nuclear is here. It's a way that gives us a maybe breathing room if we get our act together. I don't getting our act together. It, it's, not a, it's not the big technical problems. It's the social problems. We, we've sort of, you know, dodged the nuclear, all-out nuclear war bullet, but we're not really you know, handling the climate bullet right now. For some reason, I've been paying attention to my garbage. And I have too. Yeah. Really? Go you, you go first. No, no. I have just noticed that uh, I am like using my uh, my garbage dispenser more. I am very I'm looking at packaging more. I am, you know, I'm just 
I first of all, I just hate putting out garbage. <laughs> but secondly, it's like um, I'm just aware of just how much I can just put out. Now, I'm, I'm not an advocate of putting it on the individuals, but right. I am an advocate of trying to figure out how we can have better human life, not poorer human life, by being more responsible. So, yeah, like once every three weeks, there's a small kitchen container of garbage, and that's all that I generate in with a little bit more cat litter. Cat litter will probably be the number one waste that comes out of my house. Everything I'm shocked. I'm shocked at, for some reason in the past month, I've been paying attention to how often I have to empty the garbage, what's cardboard, what's plastic. I pride mm -hmm. myself on living, you know, not living basically and i'm just stunned by the boxes and the cardboard and it's uh uh i have some bad habits i have some bad habits like my the way i make my coffee these little separate cups to cut down on coffee i use these the keurig cups so i can monitor my caffeine well those things are bad for the planet what is on yeah, but i've got one of those things that you know you you can put curric type cups in there but i have something where you can actually have a little basket and you can put your own amount of coffee in there. so do i i know it's more it's no it's not as it's it's not as convenient yeah because you have to clean it up somebody gave me that and i woke up one morning looked at it and said i want my effing coffee i just want my coffee can I at least have my so set it up the night before? You're a different person the night before. Because you every don't even night know the person the night before when you first wake up in the morning. Every night I go to sleep thinking tomorrow's the day I quit coffee. <laughs> nah. That's my here's something that's interesting, and then I'll ask uh Professor Marianne what's on her mind. Uh your gas stove. I may be getting a stove. My apartment has a 40-year-old stove, maybe 50, and it doesn't work. I may be able to talk them into a stove. Now I'm finding out I'm not doing veganism right because I have oil. You can't get a gas stove. Gas stoves, according to Brady Seals in The Guardian, gas stove is polluting your own home. You need an electric stove. This is from The Guardian. The gas stoves in your homes are mostly methane, and it's a potent greenhouse gas with 100 times the climate warming harm of carbon dioxide over a 10-year time frame. When burned, methane converts to carbon dioxide and burning gas in buildings for heating, cooling and cooking is responsible for a tenth of the United States carbon emissions. One tenth of our carbon emissions in the United States is from burning gas in buildings for heating, cooling and cooking. And even worse, children exposed to gas stove pollution have an increased risk of asthma and of course, 
After 50 years of research, they've discovered that children coming from low-income households and people of color are more likely to be harmed by this pollution. So I can't get a gas stove, correct? Did he say the stove or the oven was the bigger source of the methane? Well, I'm the bigger source of the methane. First, I cook the, I cook the food and eat it, and then I'm the methane producer. I think that's what that study means. Yeah, well, I think you get, need to get your gut bacteria right. So there, there you go. That's another thing you can do for the planet. I know. Actually, in all honesty, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm doing pretty well on that front, or that end, actually. that I'm a vegan, <laughs> and uh, yeah. What's on your mind, Professor Marianne? Well, I'd, I'd like to be positive. I mean, there's a couple things that have uh, really perturbed me about the whole reconciliation package. One is the three Democrats that don't want to Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And then there's this vote that has to take place on the bipartisan bill uh, by the 27th. And I just don't understand this. Uh, you know, it's, uh, there, there was an action to call your Congress people to uh, vote against that. Um, they, you know, Nancy Pelosi, as I understand it, is the one that. This is the deal Nancy yeah, made with Gottheimer? Yeah. And so it's like, but she can really pull, can't she pull rank here? I mean, it's, I still have this feeling that the Democrats are setting themselves up, the Democratic leadership is setting this up to fail. Uh, and I'm listening to uh, Bernie Sanders in the last few days, and I've just noticed, and it is just me and my gut, uh, but Bernie Sanders has been sounding a little more strident and more insistent and very unambiguous about we are going to have it, you know, we have the 3.5, not whittled down, 3.5 reconciliation package with the bipartisan package or nothing's going to happen. And I think he has real power as chair of the budget budget committee to sort of have a little teeth behind that. So I don't know, something's going to happen. I still am banking on Bernie to be able to surprise us all and pull it off. But Me too. we had a little bit, yeah. I, I think you, this you, is, this will be his bill. Uh, I think he can. Uh, this is wishful thinking, right? That he can some. He needs mansion and cinema, right? Well, Bernie has has been one of deemed one of the most effective leg, legislatures in Congress. He was the amendment king both in the House and then in the Senate on bills that passed, and not not signaling bills or symbolic bills, I mean, real solidly left-wing amendments into must-pass bills. So I think I know he knows what he's doing. And if anything, if anybody can do it, Bernie Sanders can pull it off. It may not be doable, doable, but, you know, he has to push this. And I think that, you know, um, that's what I think is going on. All these things are coming up. There's a million excuses that Nancy Pelosi seems to be lining right up and they're, they might fall back to the uh, Senate parliamentarian or, or the uh, House or Senate parliament. Congressional. Is it one for each or just one for both? I don't really know. 
but um, whatever. I think they, but I, I think if anybody knows this, it's, it's Bernie Sanders. So that is might be a little bit optimistic, but there is even a better uh, little piece of news that came down the pipe today. Uh, Do you, does anyone remember India Walton? The, she's going to be the next mayor of Buffalo. If the real, be, and it looks like as of today, she is going to be the next uh, mayor of Buffalo. It's a very democratic state. She won her demo, her her primary against this guy, incumbent Brown, who's been in there. He was running for his fifth term, and she beat him fairly solidly. She's a socialist. She is a, calls herself a democratic socialist, and from all from everything I have read about her, she really means it. And you know, this is. When somebody asks about a, a deep bench, where are we going to get the next Bernie Sanders? Who's going to be running for president? It's just a bunch of really hideous people that are being pushed in front of us. Somebody like her, you know, with years as a mayor and as as part of her background, so she understands executive action, but working with legislatures and work. And as mayor, you work with all levels of of the government because you've got federal law, federal grants, this and that. Sometimes internationally, your right. city does business, whatever. So I'm. But anyway, what happened today was well. I'll, I'll just go back. What happened after she won? As most of us know, or some of us do, that uh, Brown decided he wasn't going to accept that. Uh, he at first launched a write-in. He was going to announce that he was going to have a write-in campaign. Then he forms a party called the Buffalo Party, the Buffalo Wild Wing Party. I don't know, the Buffalo Party. Unfortunately, he filed like some uh, two or two and a half months after the May 25th deadline, remember? Because you have to file before, I, I guess that goes along with sore loser laws. You know, you have to file before anybody else's primary, right? So anyway, some uh, some court ruled that that was copacetic on grounds that most people found flimsy at best and really problematic. But higher courts today, two of them ruled that uh, that was out of bounds and was un- and you know violated uh, state of New uh, state of New York election law. So I don't think he's going to appeal to a higher court. He still gets to run as a write-in candidate, but you know the value of having your name on the ballot is you know is incalculable, especially if you're a you know. You're a name that people know. And so right. a lot of people go in and vote and they just vote for the name they know. So oh, that was a big victory for her. And boy, she has some smart legal team. I mean, she's not uh, putting up with this crap. I like it. So yeah. that was, you know, my uh, my little bit of optimism. Going up I against the, the, to bring to your show. Yeah, David. It's, it's the it's the real estate lobby that doesn't want her. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, I mean, look, many, many years ago, somebody, uh, uh, there were a couple of people at Fermilab had run, scientists had run for local office like Alderman and won. They, uh, and one of the guy told me, I mean, this is years before, you know, I was listening to Bernie. He said, look, you know, you find out when you have a problem with anything that all of your Aldermen, they're just to first order a bunch of real estate guys. You know, because that's this is the kind of people that benefit from rezoning and tax breaks and, you know, all kinds of things that uh, city councils do. So that's why I said you had to have somebody from a, you know, different background on there. So, yeah, I think it's 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 always the same type as 
what did, I think it was uh, Chris Hedges said there's there's never permanent allies, but there are permanent interests. Hmm. And, you know, there are permanent interests that we're always fighting. You know, the names on in front of them may be the same, may, may change, but, you know, it's, it's the same story. So good for her. Yeah. Well, November is still two months away. So it, it remains. I understand that. And, you know, I was a person who watched uh, uh, Nina... Uh, Nina Turner's campaign just kind of go down the drain. I remember you talked about her deep bench. Or not her deep bench, uh, but she... I don't know if she's going to be doing much prep if she's going into Cenk Uger's universe. Oh, what's she doing? Huh? She's joining the... She's going to join TYT. Good for her. That's good. So she's going to make some money, I, I think. Um... Uh, that was not the announcement a lot of us were anticipating. She said she had an announcement, and a lot of us were hoping since, you know, this was just a special election, the next primary for the regular election is uh, just a few months away. It's May 3rd, I believe. Hmm. And we were all kind of hoping that she would just regroup, figure out what happened, and run again. But uh, when she knows which district she's in. Right, because that uh, that's going to be an October surprise for a lot of states. Uh, I can't wait personally for the one from Illinois. That's going to be hilarious to look at. Before everybody goes, I want to play you the full Tucker Carlson. And I just want everybody's response to this. It's uh, I'm sorry. Bowtie boy. Bowtie. He did an interview with, what's his name? Dave Rubin. And I, I really don't know what we do with people like this. Other than ignore them, but, but if you ignore these people, they come, they, they get more powerful. That's the problem. This is. Uh, if you keep talking about these people, they get more powerful too. I mean, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but please. they're influential. By the way, very quickly, number one cause of death for cops this year. Can anybody guess? Suicide. COVID. COVID. Huh. Ah. This is an important stat before we get to Tucker Carlson because we live in a in a police state, if you're a person of color, this is a police state. Our cops have been militarized in the past 30 years. Every time they pull over an unarmed African-American, they're terrified and they end up killing unarmed African-Americans like Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, George, well, George Floyd, Andrew Brown Jr. goes on and on and on. Cops fear for their lives. So this year, 2021, 155 police officers out of 350 million Americans died this year. 155 cops died. 28 died from firearms. 28 cops were shot this year. Every death is a tragedy. 
especially when you're shot by a cop and you're not carrying a weapon. 28 cops have died this year from firearms. That's a shockingly low number. Of, of course, one is too many. But that is a shockingly low number of cops getting shot in this country, considering how terrified they are every time they pull over an unarmed black man or woman. If you're a cop, you're more likely to die in a car accident. And 71 have died from COVID. 71. 700 and yeah, 700,000 cops roughly in the United States. So if you're afraid of getting shot, don't be a cop. If, If you start every day as a cop worrying about getting shot, don't be a cop because you're going to end up shooting an unarmed black man. 28 cops died this year from firearms. More die from COVID. The problem is COVID. If you love the blue and you think blue lives matter, then you should be caring about vaccine mandates, making sure they're masked. You know, if you think blue lives matter and they do, then you should be 71 have died so far this year from COVID. If you think blue lives matter, 38 more cops died from car accidents than from guns. Tell the cops to slow down. These car chases are overkill. If you think blue lives matter, we don't have as big a problem of cops getting shot to death as the police unions, the NRA and the right wing want us to believe. If you care about the cops, work the problem. The problem isn't cops getting shot. The problem is COVID. They need a shot. They need the vaccine. But, but we have these cops who wake up every morning and think they're going to get shot by an unarmed black man. If you think you're going to get shot by an unarmed black man, there's no draft. Nobody's forcing you to be a cop. Don't be a cop. We don't need you. And it's not as dangerous a job as being a construction worker. Stop. If you believe in if you believe blue lives matter, we got a lot of terrified, paranoid cops who are too armed. Twenty-eight cops shot this year. How many unarmed black men were shot this year? That's not what I wanted to show you. This is Can I just just yes, add to yes, that? Sir. David? Yes, sir. So I I don't think that uh, police officers have ever broke the top 10 in terms of most dangerous job in the United States. Uh, The the most dangerous job by far, I mean, by much more than number two is arborist tree workers. Right. Uh, And and cop 
you know, cops don't again, make the top 10 and sometimes they don't make the top 20 most dangerous jobs in the United States. So this whole idea that, you know, every time they go to work, their lives are on at risk. Well, not, not as much as many other workers. Right. So th- there's no reason that they should get off, um, you know, from killing and they, and police kill over a thousand U.S. citizens every year that we know of, that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes substantially more. If there was a little bit more mental health and more sanity done in our whole legal system, I'm seeing here that 228 police officers died by suicide. More die from suicide. They die from gunshots. In 2020. Or yeah. in uh, 2019, excuse me, that yeah. was January 2020. That this officers, so like yes, officers do die from gunshots, self-inflicted. Yes. Yes. So we have we have put way too much on the police. That's part of defund the police. We put it on the police to do things that w- should be done by mental health care uh, experts and sociologists, and just you know more community type support, but we put it all on cops. Um, we did watch Fahrenheit 911 the other night, and it just great. reminded me of the two negative encounters I've had with cops in Aurora, which has been mostly, you know, um, civil, were both of them, for some reason in our interaction, told me that they were Iraq war vets. They were angry, hostile. They were jumpy. That's what mm. I, I, I what think What happened? That was Why? Did something place. happen? Did something happen in Iraq? Me Did something happen in Iraq that would make their <laughs> nerves raw? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I wonder. Right. So that's another aspect of people who are in our police forces. Yeah. Again, I don't hate the police. I think we need police in, in a limited way. But they are the problem when there's a protest, they bring the violence. When you're an African-American getting pulled over by a cop, it is the cop who brings the violence. And if only, again, only is a harsh word, but we're told by the people who say blue lives matter, the Republicans downplay the COVID deaths. They'll say it's, you know, only, it's like the flu, you know? Uh, Well, more cops die from COVID than from guns. Stop telling me that the cops are scared when they pull over unarmed African-Americans. It's a lie. Speaking of lies, listen to Tucker Carlson and then we'll go to uh, Dan in the newsroom. Just these these clown people, when you have to cover it, right? Or Don Lamont, as you call him. Like, what? how do you think they live with themselves at this point when they just lie again and again? And we have the internet to expose the lies. If this isn't 20 years ago when you were on CNN yeah. and, we, and we couldn't expose things, we can expose it now and they still do it. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. But to systematically lie like that, 
mm-hmm. without asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? So if, if these people ask themselves, why am I doing this? You say, well, because I want to protect the system because I really believe in the system. Okay, who's running the system? You're you're lying to defend Jeff Bezos? Like you're treating you're treating Bill Gates like some sort of moral leader? Like are you kidding? Like how dare you do that? How dare you use your power to protect and guard the powerful even as you clamped you know put your boot on the neck of the weakest piece some some catholic school kid from kentucky it's like a parody are you kidding he's a child and you're using your power to to crush him to wreck his life like that that shocks me and i have to say there have been many times in the 25 years i've been in tv where i think you know are we using this like very substantial power that we have to put pictures on the screen to hurt weak people. And I have done that inadvertently over the years because I got carried away, but I really try not to. And everyone who works on our show is very aware of like the most basic rule, which is don't piss down. Don't attack people beneath you. If you're gonna you know, take a punch, make sure it's upward. Someone who's richer, stronger, more powerful, in charge of more things than you are. Punch up. Like that's just like a life rule. And people who punch down are the are the worst. They should have no power whatsoever, in my opinion. Right. And the irony is they're punching down while pretending they're doing the opposite, which is the which is the, the grossest part. Let's talk about punching up. The hey, life hey. rule. I'm sorry. Up, 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 up. Let, let's talk about the life rule that one should always punch up. So, or at least punch sideways. I mean, you know, let's make it a fair fight. So if you're a, if you're a uh, transgender kid, that's punching up. If you're George Floyd and, and you're attacking him and his family, Tucker, that's punching up. Seems to me, last time I looked, George Floyd was on the ground saying, I can't breathe. How's that? I don't even know what they were talking about, by the way. Who, who were they referring? Oh, the Catholic kid? That there was an incident in the Washington Mall where a Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Actually, that was a badly reported story. And I don't think lefties really behaved well throughout that, you know, saga. But, you know, that was was a a Native American kid who was taunting this Catholic school boy who kind of was stone faced and came across as being arrogant and entitled when in fact he might have had, he might have been on the spectrum, but it looked like- Or it just had a weird old dude suddenly come up to him banging a drum and you know, most teenagers would go, what, you know? That, that but he was seemed... wearing a MAGA hat. Yes, he was, a bunch of them were. Uh, I kind of wondered where their, oh, I, I had a similar situation, by the way, when I was asked to chaperone some high school girls who were going to surround uh, an abortion clinic opening up. And I didn't like that either. I didn't like the fact that they were sending high school kids to situations that could get tense. So I spent my whole time trying to get between the... Uh, ugliest part of the anti-abortion crowd and the younger girls 
But uh, I told some of the activists later, I said, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't send kids into heated political type, you know, situations, especially when they're just not. Because, by the way, there was a funny aspect of that. There was a guy, there was a priest there. This was the guy that got shot in his, um, who was it, the guy that Bill O'Reilly taunted for years and finally got gunned down in his church. Right. The abortion the provider. Killer. Well, that was yeah. his clinic that was opening up. So it was a big media circus. But there was one priest and these nuns that were sitting there praying and being very, very effusive and dramatic. And one of the teenagers turned to me and said, you told me you grew up Catholic. What order wears a pink habit? And I said, uh, I don't know any orders that wear pink habits. So I got a little closer to the priest and these nuns. The nuns were all guys. <laughs> they were all guys. They were like female impersonators. Ah. And they were doing this performative stuff for the anti-abortion side. And I'm going, oh, my God, these guys are freaks. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It was a real circus. It was kind of funny, but I had a tension headache like you wouldn't believe because I was always on the lookout to protect these kids. And so that's what I kind of thought. You let these these high school boys, you know, in this church go down there to a uh, pro, well, they were marching in a, a pro-life march and there's marches that go on every week down there. But then you had them waiting unchaperoned. I mean, this is like, where were the adults? That, that was just my question because I'd been in a similar situation that I equally thought was kind of inappropriate for kids to be in. But yeah, right. we should always, yes, listen to Tucker Carlson. We should always punch up. Yes. Except when we need to punch sideways. Right. Professor Lee? No, uh, ultimately the kid, uh, the kid made out like a bandit. I mean, he got a big Yeah, oh yeah, they sued. Uh, he had, you know, he had a PR firm and good lawyers. I mean, and now he's an undergraduate in college and whatever. He's just no happy as a clam. Well, that's maybe a little bit of karma because uh, the behavior of the adults and the people reporting the story and the left were kind of losing its mind. You know, this is, this is, the left can kind of be as dogmatic and wanting to have an enemy as the right. Some, you know, I, I get people get frustrated, you know, but uh, he was a kid. I mean, that, that, that's my bottom line. He's right. a kid. Well, leave I, the kids out. It's getting don't late. Punch, don't punch down. Last, I, punch I have an ethical issue. This is Dan, and we'll, we'll do community billboard. There was a preacher standing outside the University of Alabama holding up a sign that said, Women belong in the kitchen, not in college. Did you see this video of this co-ed? I'm going to play it one, <laughs> one more time and then I have a question because I don't approve of this. So this is going to be the 53rd time I've watched this and I know I don't approve of this video because I've watched it 53 times, 52 times, and each time I watched it I said I don't approve of this. This is a, uh, a young female beating up a preacher and then I have a question about this. Oh, 
Remember Liz Estrada? <laughs> where, where women were just going to, we're not going to sleep with men <laughs> until they get their act together. So that is a, a very strong woman beating up a man. And I don't approve of that. But, but she was punching up. <laughs> the question I have is I have other videos of women beating up men. I should not show these on the show, correct? It's not appropriate. Especially when they were clients. What? <laughs> no, not that kind. Not the beautiful kind. Is it wrong for me to show women just beating the sh Yes, it's wrong. Yes, I won't show I that again. You, you I, may have been misinterpreting what was happening there, David. Uh, she had just come from the kitchen <laughs> and she brought him some punch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what was going on. I don't know. I just, with the abortion laws and people being cute about, well, we're just going to stop having sex with men until they give us the right to it. <laughs> I looked at that girl. She's a girl. She's a high, oh, she's a college woman. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think she's way past Liz Estrada. I think it's just like, I don't, I, sh I don't approve. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Let us now go to Rochester. Sorry to keep you waiting there, Dan. Let's go to Rochester, where America's favorite pretentious douchebag is standing by. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, I, so, I sorry, did I screw up today? Because I didn't see you at the beginning of the show. Well, the panelist invites earlier went out saying the show started at 7.30. And then oh, later on, right. attendees got one. Yeah, so I didn't right. get one that said 6 o'clock. Oh, okay. F me. It's a, tech, it, it's a technical issue. It's okay. Yeah, F me. We decided, and by we, I mean me, that because I was not eating today, we would run Henry at the top of the show but I felt I should open with a little something. And then uh, not a bad show, considering we just slapped it together. Here's my oh, complaint. Yeah. I have a complaint. It was just Friday. We well, just did office hours. And we're do it, it, is time moving exponentially fast? Yes, we're getting old. It it's unbelievable how quickly time is moving. It is terrifying. All right, did you go to Tom Weber's spirituality? I did, I did and not activism? go last night. I did not go last night. I went. I had to go to work last night. 
So I did not make it there. But when you were talking about how you felt earlier, when the pictures come up, I, I uh, recorded that selfie you sent me uh, earlier today. So we'll get to that. Okay. Should we look at uh, what's happening in our community? Sure. We, right. we do have one from Tom Weber uh, called The Weight. It's a pen drawing he's done of a man sitting anxiously on a chair while puffing a cigarette. And it's left up to the viewer to create his or her imagination uh, to set the reason for this fellow's concern. Well, to me, it looks like Lincoln having a smoke. Watching a show? Waiting for uh, a more perfect union. There you go. Does that look like Lincoln? Yeah, without the hat. Yeah. Or, or the head injury. There you go. <laughs> you always have to take it. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, 1972, you could make, it was no longer too soon. There was no, no descendants of Lincoln who would be offended. 1972. Did you know so that? We're uh, 40 or 50 years removed from that. Really. You get the memo. You can now make fun of the Lincoln assassination. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. I smell something cooking in Glenn Costick's home. Nice tablecloth, first of all. Yep. There's one string bean that's kind of curled up. It looks like a the snake from uh, Jungle Book. Well, the picture didn't come through very well. What happened? A, it was a whole uh, slew of long beans and then a Oh, right. There, there we go. Top. Can you see it now? Yeah, because we were talking about this on the last show, right. about the, the pickle and beans. Now, this this here is uh, from an older gentleman's garden. The, the beans are just a lot longer than the cucumber, mm -hmm. but they still look they still look delicious. Oh, I see what you see. Yeah, they're fresh. But I, I see what you see. I, I, you see a an older gentleman. Mm -hmm. And if if you squint your eyes, the beans are hanging low. Right. They're way longer than the cucumber. Right. They're, but they're, the cucumber is still perfectly good. Yeah. But they're hanging low. Yeah, they're real low. Like uh, Cardi B's cousin right it's um yeah was it cardi yeah. b whose cousin got the swollen testicles that's what she's claiming yeah i haven't seen any actual evidence but that's what she's claiming yeah we'll need more evidence okay you have to say next slide leonard next slide mr feldman this is uh Neck Kessie's from Lane, and uh, this is the colored version where he's uh, a few months ago in June, he did a black and white version of this drawing where he was kind of timid about putting color to it because he was just getting into the black and white and getting his drawing skills back from years ago. Mm -hmm. So then the next slide is from back in June when it was just black and white. Well, we'll compare. And, Let's see. Yeah, you can you can. Uh, Tell the advancement and what he's uh, furthering his, himself with in the uh, interesting in the artistic realm. And yeah. uh, I asked him what Nack Kessie's meant, 
And Nack is the nickname for the Siem Colliery, which is uh, like a coal mining area with the buildings and everything. And the Kessies is a nickname for kestrels, which is, is a hunting hunting bird, which I did not know. I didn't know any of those. That's why I specifically asked him. And uh, the kestrels are birds in the falcon family. There's, ah. generation, there's generations of, of them roosting in the tower. So the in the the colliery, the the winding um, gears of the tower used to make this uh, knickknack sound. So the whole thing came together, knack kessies. Ah, okay, so that was really interesting. All right, thank you. Uh, okay, and next we have. Let me enlarge that. That looks. That's Hungry Feldman that you that you sent me your uh, selfie a few hours ago. Is that me? That's me yeah. without any clothes on. Well, you were starving. Oh, I see. You, I'm fasting. You were, very, yes. you were fasting. You were very hungry. Uh -huh. You were uh, trying to keep your energy up by dancing and uh, jumping uh -huh. up and clicking your heels together. Uh -huh. Did you make that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just used uh, the face app. I love... Bad Photoshop. <laughs> I think bad Photoshop is the best. I don't understand why people work so hard at it. That's great. You used to be a, a Emperor of uh, Palpatine a year or two ago. <laughs> I remember that. Yes, this is from uh, Joe in Norway. He specifically sent me this to say bean sprouts are vegan. He says, community PSA, just in case it was not clear to anyone, bean sprouts are totally vegan. Thankfully, it's stated clearly on the label. I'm vegan. Yep. Bean sprouts. Bean sprouts are delicious. Do you think they would find us in Norway? I think so. You do? Yeah. All right. Sure. All right. We got to get out of this place. Lastly, we just want to promote the uh, Ralph Nader Radio Hour. We talked about it on the, the last show and the, the previous few, so just go to Ralph com and check out the, the shows that are coming out every week. Enjoying the Congress Club. Go to com and sign up for the Congress Club. That's a great picture. Very. Uh, thank you. Uh, how do people contact you if you are interested in getting something in the community billboard? You can send an email to dentfeldman at gmail.com. And uh, from the previous show, we just wanted to bring up, uh, we are promoting Mike Ortega, which was uh, Ortega for Congress.com. And David mentioned a few times to call Senator Joe Manchin. Be polite, but the phone number is 304-368-0567. Let me put that up there so people can see that. Give me the number again. 304-304. 368-0567. Please make sure that's the right number. Are you sure it's 304-368-0567? Yep. Okay. Uh, be polite and tell them, get on board Bernie's 3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. All right, you ready for uh, ready to quiz me? 
Yeah, I'm ready. Here we go. All right. That's Joe Manchin's phone number. So uh, Henry did two interviews at the top of the show. Yep. Laquan um, Nation. First you did, yep. First you did the news and then it was a the doctor, Jackie, Luck, Jackie Luckman. And then the doctor. OK. Emily Nelson. Yes. Yep. Very good. I, I, I OK, so I'm wrong. I didn't get the names properly. Uh, then you would have gotten them, but I, I cut you. No, off no, no. I, I'm tired. I, my, I'm out of my mind because I, I had a little snack before after sundown. You heard the siren giant, and you got confused and scared. Okay. Yes. Okay, and then John Ross. Yep. Hershenfels. Correct. Emil Guillermo. Mm-hmm. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yes. Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Marianne Cummings. Correct. You got it. 100%. Okay. A plus. Fantastic. Uh, okay. And what do we have planned tomorrow for office hours? If you would like to attend office hours, go to my website, hit attend office hours. You'll get an invitation. And what do we have planned to our group, to our Zoom group, sign up to teach a class or to moderate and uh, no uh, course is too silly. Teach a silly, whatever you want to teach. Uh, didn't my daughter teach farting jokes or something? Yep, she taught farting jokes. I'm waiting for someone to teach origami. Like all this paper here, uh -huh. fold some paper. All right, should we see, uh, there, I see a hand raised. Oh, hey, Dan. Dan H. Is this Dan? Didn't I go ballistic on Dan once? I'm pretty sure you did. I did. Are you asking for another apology, Dan? You have to unmute yourself, Dan. <laughs> oh, I get it. He just wants me to go ballistic because he won't unmute. And we're going to roast Andy and Sarah. Hannah and I are going to roast Andy and Sarah tomorrow. Fantastic. Dan, you had your hand up. I try to call on you. Okay. I went ballistic on him. I had to apologize. I don't remember the circumstances. Me neither. I, I just remember I was stressed out. And... <laughs> I went. Do we have a clip of that? I should that should be played all the time as a reminder to calm down. All right. You had to go to work yesterday in the evening. Yeah, we're busy. That's we're good, busy. right? Yeah, it's good. Okay. All right. Well, Dan, I tried to call on you, but once again, you've ruined my show. Not you. Dan Frankenberger, Dan, Dan H, <laughs> D.H., the designated hitter. All right, everybody, I'll see you all. Remember, that phone number is 304-368-0567. Call Joe Manchin's office and tell him to vote yes on the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill and be polite. We'll see you at office hours uh, tomorrow, remember to stay strong and protect 
the week. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way (laughs) 